Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Telus is being brought to you live and recorded live on January 15th, 2022. The time right now is 9.40 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We have a free roll, and that free roll is $50, donated by Frank Rizzo. 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. You can find that on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It begins at 9.45 Pacific Time, so you have all the way until 10.10 p.m. to late register with a full stack. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, exactly as it sounds, to understand the rules to qualify for the free money, which I can pay you in one of various ways, like Zelle, like Cash App, like... Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, or other ways you might be able to think of where money can be transferred online. So a lot of ways to get paid. It is real cash money. We give it away every week, almost all donated by our user base. And thank you to Frank Rizzo for donating $50 for this week. We also have $50 from him for future free rolls, and we have some more money behind that we still have not given away yet. So thank you to everybody who has donated to Poker Fraud Alert Radio's free rolls, past and present. And I did a bunch of payouts in the last uh, two weeks or so, so we're getting very close to having paid everybody that was waiting for payouts. Sometimes they're not quick, but you get it. If you want to call the show... The phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. We have the Mount Charleston line, which is an old 70s rotary phone, which sits on top of Mount Charleston and forwards to me wherever I go. That phone number is 702-430-1808. It's a separate line into the show. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. You can text the main phone number at any time. Not the Mount Charleston line, but the main phone number you can text any time. 775-372-8355. Morning, noon, and night. I don't care if it's during the show, after the show, before the show. You can always text me. 775-372-8355. I may read your texts on the air if I receive them during the show, unless you ask me at the beginning not to do so. You can go into our chat room and chat during the live show. If we're not live, don't bother. But during the live show, you can chat with other people listening. You do need a form account in good standing to be able to chat in the chat room. If you're not listening live, don't bother because there won't be anyone in there. But the chat room does work with any device. The call to listen line is a line you just call up and listen. It's not a way to speak to me, but it's a way to listen to me. The phone number is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736. We also have the alternate call to listen line at 641-741-1095. You can call either one. It is totally free to call as long as you can call for free within the U.S., unless you have T-Mobile, in which case it costs you one cent a minute, which I don't get. T-Mobile charges it for some reason. Everybody else who can call the U.S. for free, it is a free call. It never buffers. It never freezes. It does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require a computer or the internet. No, 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 no. It just requires a phone that can dial, and it just works. When we're not live, you can call the call to listen line, or you can go to the radio page on Poker Fraud Alert, and you can listen to our streaming reruns where it just picks... One of our more than 400 shows we've done in the past 10 or so years, 
and runs it. And when it's over, it picks another one, another one, another one, until we come back live on the air. So there's always something running on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. The only time you'll hear nothing is I will turn off the streaming reruns shortly before we come on live, just so there is not confusion. Sometimes I'll do it a few hours before, sometimes a few minutes before. But if you hear nothing, then it's probably a radio day and we'll be starting soon. There's many ways to listen to the show in the archives. You can do it on iTunes. You can do it on Google Podcasts. We are on Spotify, iHeartMedia, the TuneIn app, which also has a way to listen live. We have two entries on there. We have the Bullhorn app, which has its own call to listen line, and you can also use it just to listen to the show normally in podcast form. We have Stitcher, which is a longtime app to listen to podcasts. We've always been on there. And you can also listen on Amazon Alexa. You need to say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast. Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast. Say it slowly so it understands. And it will play you the last episode. And to go to the episode before that, just say next and keep saying next till you get to the right episode. It's very simple. You can download the MP3 file of the show or just play it. Just click on it. Just go to the radio subform on Poker Fraud Alert or click the MP3 button near the bottom of the screen of the radio tab and it'll take you right there. You don't need an external player. Just every device can just play an MP3 file natively, meaning it can do it without any other player you install. Or you could download the MP3 and keep it. I don't care. So those are a lot of ways to listen to the show. And if there's any other way you want to listen to the show, let me know. And I will see if I can add it, if it's not too much trouble and if it's not too costly. Okay, so here's the agenda and then we will get going. The top story this week, a class action suit was filed against PayPal for their seizures of people's money without any good reason, where they just jack your money, take it and say tough luck and won't even tell you why. A case was filed in federal court this week by none other than attorney Eric Benzamokin, who is going to come on and talk to us. My son Benjamin has Omicron. He has tested positive for Omicron. I knew he had Omicron. There's no question he has Omicron. In fact, I knew he had it before he even tested positive. It was pretty obvious to me. I thought there was an outside chance he had a cold. But no, he has Omicron. He first showed symptoms on Sunday, January 9th, pretty much just after I concluded last week's show. He was tired. He didn't tell me about it until the end of the day, but he was tired. And then the next day, the rest of the symptoms showed up. I do not have it. That is why I'm doing the show. I currently have no COVID symptoms. So it appears the vaccine, at least the booster, is doing its job. I'll tell you more about Benjamin's experience with Omicron and how I'm handling it here. I have a small case update to the Mike Possel situation, and I'm going to clarify a few things. You may have read some stuff about how it has been settled and sort of, but not completely. A part of it's been settled, a part of it hasn't been, so I'll explain in detail when we get to that segment. Then I'm going to tell you some updates to how I'm feeling about the Mickey Maz interview that we did last week. There's been some reaction to it. I'm going to respond to that reaction. 
The reaction was pretty good, by the way. But I'm going to answer some of your questions about the interview that I've had since the interview and tell you where things stand right now with me possibly meeting with him to see his win-loss statements, whether that is likely to happen. Then we will have Druffy Time Theater. This week, Druffy Time Theater is going to be about how a $14 mistake on my cable bill in the 2000s led to a massive cover-up in one of the departments at the cable company and what I did about it. Then we have an update to a story from 2020. Remember the traveling Cuban cheaters that were going around the U.S. and cheating in poker games? Well, they're back, and they are presently in a state they haven't been before, to our knowledge. So I'll tell you about where they are and how to watch out for them. Sean Deeb has been accusing Mark Herm, who's known as Diphthrong, of multi-accounting for 20 years. Wow. I will read you these very public accusations which are on Sean Deeb's Twitter and then tell you my reaction to these allegations and to how Mark Herm is handling the response. And by the way, Mark Herm was on this show back in 2015. A high roller gambler named Brandon Sattler is accused by creditors of running a scam regarding installing video monitors in casinos. His victims claim that this whole thing was just to get money from them and that he had no contracts in place and that he simply took the money and blew it. So I'll talk about this weird story and some odd things that have spawned from sanctions that were against him from U.S. Bankruptcy Court. The WBT has signed DJ Steve Aoki as a promoter and ambassador. I'll tell you how I feel about that. Phil Helmuth is going to take on another heads-up match against Tom Dwan. This will be the second time he faces Dwan since losing to him in August of 2021. Tell you when that is and what the details are. And finally, what should you do if someone in your house or someone who is in your workplace has Omicron, but you don't appear to? How cautious should you be? I will tell you my take on it, and I'll also tell you how the CDC currently feels on this one. So that is our agenda for this evening. Okay, so I want to get into our first topic here. And by the way, while I was rambling there, I threw Cal White on the line. He had to go for a moment, but he'll be right back and join me during this first segment and until he falls asleep. Anyway, the first topic, as I mentioned, is the very big story that the class action suit or the hopefully to be certified class action suit against PayPal was officially filed in federal court. This occurred on January 13th, 2022, so just two days ago. And, of course, it was filed by friend of Poker Fraud Alert, Eric Benzamokin. And we're going to have him on here after I give you an intro to everything that's going on. And he can tell you in his own words the update to the case. But before that, I want to go through the legal paperwork, which you can actually find on Poker Fraud Alert 
if you go to the Scam Scandals and Shadiness forum and find the thread about this PayPal case, you will see that I posted an update with a link to a PDF file on the Poker Fraud Alert server, which you can just click on and see all 37 pages of that complaint that was filed on January 13th. And it's a pretty interesting read, especially the first half of it. Or you can read the whole thing if you have some time. It's pretty interesting. And you can see in detail the full story of all of the plaintiffs. Now, there are various issues here. They're trying to get it certified for class action. So that's not an automatic thing. It's got to be certified by the court to be a class action. The situation also requires that uh, it, it doesn't end up in arbitration. So there's that as well. So I'm going to tell you about the three named plaintiffs. And there's probably going to be way more than three plaintiffs when this is all over. But uh, there are three named plaintiffs basically to get the class action going. The way class actions work in general is there has to be a lead plaintiff. There actually has to be an individual. Uh, maybe a company can do it too, but I, I, I believe it's individuals. But uh, there has to be a lead plaintiff who is affected by it. And then when there's other plaintiffs similarly situated, as, as it said, then once it's certified class action, they can join as well. And then it becomes uh, a whole different type of lawsuit. So just because there's not many people at the beginning doesn't mean much. That's just the way it has to start off. So this case is Lena Evans, Ronnie Shmetov, and Shabadan Aikalabikov. I, I hope I'm saying these names right, but the only easy one to say is Lena Evans. And the only one in poker is Lena Evans. If you don't recognize those other difficult-to-pronounce names, that's because these are not poker players, or if they are, uh, that's not something they do professionally and they're not associated with the community. I don't believe either of these other two play poker and their confiscation had nothing to do with poker or gambling. These are business people. Lena Evans' confiscation did have to do with poker and it's good that she's part of it. It's kind of representing the poker community's interest in the whole thing. There are nine complaints listed here. Conversion, civil RICO, violation of the Electronics Funds Transfer Act, breach of written contract, breach of fiduciary duty, violation of California Business and Professions Code, unjust enrichment, boy, that one's true, <laughs> and uh, declaratory relief and accounting. So those are the nine complaints there. And you guys know a lot of this story. We've covered this previously on the show. And uh, I, I'm not going to go into it as extensively as I have in the past because it would just be a repeat of prior episodes in 2021. But I, I do want to recap it for everybody to understand. Uh, it's pretty simple that PayPal has a bot that looks constantly at all the accounts on the system. And if the bot determines that your account is in violation of any term, it will suspend you. And the term it is very important here. It's not he, it's not she, it's not Z, it's not someone who's uh, using a, a new preferred pronoun. It, it's an it, it's a computer, it's a bot that looks for anything it can find. And when I say anything, I mean anything. It could be something that someone who paid you wrote in a note that it doesn't like. Anything it finds suspicious, it will suspend your account and you will be, quote, limited. When you're limited, 
you can't do anything with your account and you can't withdraw your money for 180 days. The only thing you can do is refund people. Now, if there's people who've paid you on PayPal in the last four months that you know and you trust, you could refund them the money and then they can pay you another way. But if you're a business person, that's very hard to do. You can't just go refund randoms and hope they're going to send it to you a different way. They're, they're probably never going to send it to you. So that doesn't work. But that's the only way to get any money back at that point. That's kind of a loophole, but most people can't use it, especially business people. And also some people don't think of it. But that's the only thing you can do is refund people during that six-month period. Now, the very misleading part of this whole thing is that it is made to sound like that you are going to get your money back after the six months pass, and it is justified that they're holding your money because they say, well, if anybody has any complaints about your activities, they want to be able to refund them out of your money. Now, that almost makes sense, but that's not really what they're doing. And after those six months pass, it is becoming increasingly common that they just take your money. They don't refund it to anybody. They just take it. So people are expecting to get it back after 180, uh, after 180 days pass, and they don't. They get the very frustrating email that the money has been confiscated, and you actually get a receipt that PayPal has transferred it to their own account. Chris Moneymaker got that. He was holding $12,000, which was 1000 from 12 people, that was sent to him for a fantasy sports contest. This is completely legal. Fantasy sports has always been legal. And, in fact, it was part of a carve-out about 30 years ago when a federal law was passed regarding uh, sports betting. That fantasy sports specifically, specifically got an exception so people could have little fantasy sports leagues at work or wherever else and not be worrying about uh, violating gambling law. So this has always been legal, fantasy sports. That's how these daily fantasy sports sites got started. That's huge now, but that's how it eventually got going without having to get licensed or any of that stuff because it was not considered gambling thanks to that carve-out. So anyway, Chris Moneymaker, just with 11 other people he knew, presumably through poker, uh, he, he was holding $12,000 for this fantasy sports league, and PayPal froze his account, told him he'll get it back in 180 days, and then after 180 days, they just took it. And that caused him to show up on Twitter and tell this whole story and, and post screenshots of what PayPal was doing to him. And as Eric uh, would, would tell you, what happened, the way he got involved, was that I saw Chris's tweets. And, and I know Chris somewhat. We're not close friends or anything, but we've always had a good relationship and, and we talk every so often. I said, hey, you know what? I have faith in Eric as an attorney. I got to personally see how he handled my case with Possle. So I'm going to ask Eric first if he would have any interest in taking Chris's case here. I wasn't thinking class action at the time, but I was just thinking maybe he could help Chris. So I asked Eric, would you be interested in this? And by, by the way, I haven't revealed this before. This is the first time I'm uh, revealing this. And Eric's okay with that. But I before had not said that I hooked the two of them up, but I, I actually did. That was me. And uh, I was just thinking, I want to see Chris get his money back. Chris is a nice guy. He's a good ambassador for poker. This was totally unfair. This is bullshit. He should not lose 12K over this. He didn't do anything wrong. 
and what he was doing was completely legal. So I asked Eric, would you like to be in on this? And he said, yes. So I talked to Chris and I recommended Eric. And so then the two of them talked and Chris decided to retain Eric's law firm, which is great. So then Eric had the idea to not just sue PayPal on behalf of Chris, but to try to make this a class action. And that's where it all got going. Two weeks later, when this started to get some publicity, PayPal obviously heard about this and realized that they made a mistake antagonizing someone with so much of a reach. You don't want to antagonize uh, someone who's semi-famous like Chris Moneymaker and have him going around Twitter talking about how PayPal are thieves. So they quickly returned the money to him once they saw this was going on. Not when he was asking for it initially. They told him to kick rocks. But when they saw that uh, there's going to be this lawsuit and that he had an attorney that was gearing up to do a class action, they did not want Chris Moneymaker as the lead plaintiff. They didn't say this. This is my assumption. But it looks pretty clear to me that they kicked back the money. They didn't give him any explanation why they kicked back the money. Just one day he wakes up and he has his $12,000 back. But he's the only one, to my knowledge, that got it in such a fashion. So he could no longer be part of the lawsuit. And I'm sure they knew this when they were refunding it, that he could no longer be the lead plaintiff because he had no more damages. However, there's plenty of plaintiffs with damages. And Chris, instead of saying, you know what, I got my money, so F it, goodbye, I'm out of this, Chris decided to stay on, not on the lawsuit, but as someone who'd be working with Eric to publicize this and to help others who have had the same situation as him get justice. And I think that's great. And Chris has been very vocal in the last few days. I'll read you some of his tweets. He's been very vocal on Twitter about this matter. And he is still actively trying to help. And he has a pinned tweet up on his uh, very well-followed Twitter about this matter. And he's had it pinned for a long time. So Chris is very dedicated to seeing PayPal pay for this, even though he won't get anything from this personally. He already got his money back. So that's how this whole thing got going. And there is another attorney that I'm not familiar with or another firm that has joined in because it's going to be so much work. And let me tell you about the three plaintiffs here. Lena Evans, you may or may not have heard of. Uh, Cal, what, have you heard of Lena Evans before? It sounds vaguely familiar, but not, not off the top of my head. Yeah, I describe her as like a semi-known poker pro. She's not a household name, but she's also not a nobody in poker. She's kind of in the middle where people who follow the scene, uh, some know her, some don't. But she's one of these people who's very much an advocate of women in poker. And she ha- she runs something called the uh, Poker League of Nations. And... Uh, This is like a women's poker league. And what they do is they run charity events where people enter these tournaments and a certain amount of the prize pool is earmarked for uh, various women's causes. And uh, even in some cases, they they help out women in need directly. So the whole thing looks like a good cause to me. I don't know a whole lot about it, but she's well-respected in poker. And uh, she's been at this for a while. And someone needs to talk to her about branding, though. I don't know if League of Nations, given what happened after World War One, <laughs> is, is really a great thing to be going with. But anyway, whatever. Yeah. So uh, it's no also known as PLON, 
but I, I don't know how she chose the name, and I'm not sure. I, I am a little unclear what League of Nations has to do with women, but that that's what it's called, Poker League of Nations, and it is a, a women's poker organization. She has been around for a long time. Uh, in case you're wondering, she's around my age and uh, looks very good, though. If you looked at her pictures, you wouldn't guess that she's around 50. But anyway... She had $26,000 confiscated from her in relation to Poker League of Nations back in May of 2021. And I didn't even know this until this case was filed. I haven't talked much with Eric about this PayPal thing in a while. I I talked with him a lot about it when it was first happening, when I got him hooked up with Chris there. And uh, I I was regularly communicating with him about this PayPal story. And then it just kind of fell out of my mind because there, there hadn't been much news with it. And it was just something that was happening in the background while Eric and this other firm were working hard to get all this put together. I hadn't really kept up on it. And uh, then Eric told me on the day it was filed that he just filed it and sent me a copy of the complaint, which I then posted on Poker Fraud Alert. And I saw Lena Evans was involved. I didn't even know this before this was filed. I didn't know she was even victimized by them. But yeah, they they took uh, $26,000 of hers and she was not able to even reach somebody. Remember, in 2021 and presently in 2022, it is very hard to reach a lot of companies over the phone. Customer service has gotten much tougher due to worker shortages and all that. Now, that has nothing to do with what PayPal has been pulling here. They've been doing this way before COVID, but this makes it even harder to reach them. So she claimed that uh, when this happened to her on on, uh, May 22nd, 2021, that she never received a response. She emailed them several times, she claims, and that she tried calling them and could not even get a live person on the phone. Now, I guess I can give her some consolation here, which I'm sure Eric probably told her as well, that even if had she reached a live person, she would not have gotten any answers, that getting answers on this is very, very difficult. And then when you do, you get shut down. So there really isn't very much value in reaching anyone when they won't tell you anything. But she couldn't even reach anyone. So she's been twisting in the wind ever since uh, actually November 22nd when they froze her account. And then six months later on May 22nd is when they seized all the money. And you actually get an email, as I said, that they're seizing your money and they transfer it to themselves. And they justify this by claiming that they are charging you $2,500 per violation. So that adds up very quickly. So in Lena's case, if they feel that she violated it 11 times, which is very easy if 11 different people sent her money in what they consider a violation, which I assume it's because uh, maybe they sent her money for things related to this uh, Poker League of Nations. They go, oh, poker, that's gambling. Oh, ho, 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 ho. And they say, okay, $2,500 each time. So even if someone sent her $10, they consider that a $2,500 violation. So all it has to be is 11 times and there's all her money. So they, and, and this is obviously being done on purpose. That's why they made it $2,500 per violation. And they claim that's their cost of investigating it, which is BS, of course. There's no, they don't give any justification for why it costs a flat $2,500 each time you violate their terms, even if you're violating their terms in the exact same way each time, where the, even if there is an investigation, should be very quick after the first one. They shouldn't be able to multiply it by whatever number of times that you did it. 
But it's not up to them to fine you like this. They're not a court of law. They're not a law enforcement body. They can't just determine that they're taking your money just because they're holding it. And that's something that has really, really bothered me about the situation, aside from the fact that they won't ever let you speak to them, find out what you did, or appeal it, or even have a human being review it. Because remember, a lot of this is done by bots. Almost all of it's done by bots. They are making themselves the judge, jury, and executioner in these situations. It's not like they have a judgment against you from a court of law and this is the way they collect it. No, they don't have any judgment against you. They have determined on their own that you're going to pay them $2,500 per violation and because they're holding your money, they just take it. That's the way they make you pay. They take it. It'd be the same thing as them breaking into your bank account and just taking money out of your bank account or them breaking into your house and taking your cash. They just happen to be holding your money. So they take it. They have no right to do that. And again, they don't have any kind of judgment. They can't even say, we're holding your money. We have a court judgment against you. So we're just going to keep it. That would be a lot more justifiable. They have no court judgment. They just determine on their own. We feel you owe us this and they take it. Could I do that? Could I just say, I feel Calwatt owes me a million bucks and just take a million bucks from him? Hey, hey, come on. Take it easy. That's it's insane that they think they can do this and get away with it. But that's what happened to Lena Evans. Now, what about this uh, Ronnie Schmetoff? Well, th- this one is really, really crazy, if true. And I think it probably is. I don't know this person. I've never sp- spoken to them. But because these stories all seem to have a similar situation and the way PayPal handled it, I have to think these are true or mostly true. Ronnie Schmetoff, that's Ronnie, R-O-N-I, Schmetoff, S-H-E-M-T-O-V. I have a feeling she's Israeli, by the way. But she was selling... What makes you think that, Trump? It's from the name Schmetoff and Ronnie. I think it's... I have to I'm say... I'm kidding. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but Ronnie Schmetoff has been selling yoga clothing on eBay since 2014. In March of 2017, PayPal froze her account. She could not reach a live PayPal employee on the phone. By the way, notice this is way before COVID. Can't blame this one on COVID. And the people that she did reach told her that her account was frozen and closed and hung up on her. So I guess she took a long time to finally reach someone. Then when she did get them, they said, they said, well, your account is closed. That's it. Goodbye. And then when she argued, they just hung up. She was never given a reason why her account was terminated. She learned sometime later in 2017 that PayPal was investigating her, but she didn't know why. Now, keep in mind, all she was doing is selling yoga clothing. It's not like she was uh, doing anything related to gambling or even fantasy sports. In September of 2017, PayPal seized $10,000 from her account. And then two months later, or two years later, sorry, on November 26, 2019, they then seized another $32,351 from her account. And they actually sent her a receipt of transfer, which is attached to this lawsuit, to this complaint, of where they're transferring from her account to their internal account. She sent a letter to PayPal's lawyer named Cassandra Knight in San Jose. She did not receive any response from Cassandra Knight. Then she tried calling PayPal again on three different occasions. One person told her that she violated PayPal's acceptable use policy by using the same IP address and computer 
that other people on PayPal did. And her response was, well, wait a minute, but I have other people living with me. So these are separate people. There's that nothing also just in this modern age, that doesn't make any sense anyway. You yeah. know, if she's using it from a cell network, she could be using the same IP address as other people too. I mean, yeah. So, uh, well, it's, they said the same IP and computer, so they probably they may have had cookies on there seeing that, but whatever. Even uh, if it's okay. the same computer, why can't her husband use her computer? Why can't her kids use her computer? They, it's a, that doesn't mean uh, there's any violation here. People live together. Not everybody lives alone. So she probably had family members that had separate PayPal accounts, and she stated that uh, these other users had different names, social security numbers, and addresses. Than she did. I guess some of these people didn't even live with her. Maybe they came over and used it at her house, whatever. Uh, another of the employees at PayPal told her that she was suspended for multi-accounting. She said that's not true. She said she's only had one account, probably related to that same allegation about the IP addresses. And then a third employee of PayPal said that she violated it because she violated the terms because she was selling the clothing for 20 to 30 percent below retail cost <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay yeah what's what's the problem so she can't price things what she wants like where is it in their terms that you have to sell merchandise there at retail price though the whole point of ebay is that people may go on there to get something cheaper than they can buy at the store i'm not going to go on ebay to buy something if I can get it for the same price on Amazon and ship to me in two days. I'll go to eBay if it's something I either can't find on Amazon or if it's cheaper. So, of course, she can price it cheaper. That's up to her if, if she's selling clothes more cheaply. That's that's a crazy excuse. Anyway, she lost uh, $42,737 as a result of this whole thing. And here might even be the worst part. She was sent an IRS form dated September 1st, 2020, stating that she owes taxes on that 42K that was taken from her. I don't understand how that happened, but somehow PayPal made the IRS believe that she had 42000 in income, even though they took it. They now that may have just been a reporting error where they their system that reports to the IRS of what someone receives on PayPal sent that and then didn't bother sending a correction that they took it and that uh, she actually did pay about a thousand dollars in taxes on money that PayPal seized from her. I'm not sure why she did. I would have said no. I would have told the IRS this wasn't income. I never got it because basically the burden of proof is on the IRS to show that you had income that you didn't pay taxes on. They can't just theorize it. So, for example, I could announce today that I just won $2 million on a sports bet, and I could be making the whole thing up. Let's say I'm making the whole thing up, and I just want to impress you guys, and I say I won $2 million on a sports bet, but in reality, I, I didn't even place a bet yesterday. And let's say someone recorded me saying that and sent it to the IRS because they suspected I was not going to pay taxes on it. And indeed, I did not pay taxes on it because I didn't really win it. And then the IRS were to contact me and say, where's our money for that $2 million you won? And I would say back, no, I was just lying on the internet to make myself look cool. <laughs> well, that would actually be a valid excuse 
Because what the IRS would have to do at that point is show that I really did win $2 million. And the burden of proof is on them. It's, the burden of proof is not on me to prove I didn't, though I, I could also send that to expedite the process. But the point is here that in order to ultimately make me responsible to pay that tax, they would have to prove even you know internally. But the, there would have to be some sort of uh, form of IRS hearing where they would determine through actual evidence that I did receive $2 million from a sports bet that I didn't pay taxes on. So no matter what I would claim on the internet or claim anywhere, it doesn't matter if I didn't really get it. And 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 yes, a valid answer is I didn't really make it. I was lying to the internet. That's completely a valid answer to the IRS if it's true. So the bottom line is that if she did not receive this 42K and PayPal took it, then uh, she wouldn't have to. Pay. The only possibility I can think of is that because this has occurred over a period of years, they could claim that she made the money in previous years and then they took it in a subsequent year so that this was actually income, say, from 2017 and a loss in 2019. Maybe that's what it was. But anyway, she paid $1,000 to the IRS over that. That's the only way I can picture that this would have ended up having to be paid. I I still think she could have gotten out of it, but whatever. That's a moot point here at this juncture. So the third person, Shabadan... Akil Bekov, he has had a PayPal account since 2016, and his wife had a separate PayPal account, and her account was actually a company account called ASIC Logistics, Inc. that she established in January 2020. And ASIC Logistics, Inc. performs truck repair services owns and rents trucks, and uses trucks for interstate hauling. Again, nothing having to do with gambling. On January 4th, 2020, he started using his wife's account for the sale of what's called Hyaluron pens. H-Y-A-L-U-R-O-N. Hyaluron pens. Have you ever heard of those before? Never. I haven't either. So he's the CEO of the Hyaluron pen store which was created in June of 2020. It says in this complaint, a Hyralon pen is a biological in- a biologic injectable using Hyralon... Hyalur- I don't know why I have such a hard time saying this. Hyaluronic acid, which is a beauty product for the treatment of facial wrinkles and acne scars. And it's manufactured by a Korean company. And... Uh, it has the it has FDA approval in Europe. They don't have an actual FDA. It's something different over there, but it's basically the equivalent. So it's approved by something similar to the FDA in Europe, but not approved by the US FDA. About 2 or 3 months after he started using PayPal, he began hearing from customers that they were unable to get PayPal payments to him. They started getting rejection notices. So then he looked into it and found out that PayPal had done that limited thing where they froze his account for 180 days. They did not give him any explanation. They just limited him and said that they would be holding his funds for 180 days. And then after that, they would be available to him. Same story we keep hearing. He kept uh, checking his account and was hoping that maybe they would finally unfreeze it. Well, they didn't. In fact... He found that they seized 
$172,000 from him without any explanation, and they transferred it to their own account. He would not get any explanation. He wrote letters to the legal department, no response. And finally, they wrote him a letter in May of 2021, and they told him that uh, he violated PayPal's acceptable use policy by accepting payments for these pens because they're not approved by the FDA. They claimed that they took this 172k from him for, quote, it's liquidated damages arising from those acceptable use policy violations pursuant to the user agreement. They also told him that they're going to be using these funds to reimburse customers who had purchased these pens and to compensate themselves for their, quote, damages. Well, it looked like they kept the entire 172k because he has never heard from a single customer that they got a refund. Any customer he asked, did PayPal refund you for the pen? They said no. So there's no evidence any customers got a single refund for these pens. So it's not even like PayPal took it and said, okay, anyone who bought these pens is going to get an immediate refund. It appears to Mr. Akobekov, from everything he can see, that they refunded nobody and just kept the whole thing themselves. It's possible what they meant is that if anybody asks for a refund, we'll give it to them. But other than that, we're keeping it. So it appears they kept all or a large portion of that 172K and did not refund people. So that's the biggest one in the out of these three. They lost uh, 172K. So those are the three plaintiffs here. And these are the named plaintiffs right now. But a lot of plaintiffs can join in later. Anyone who's been victimized can contact Eric at uh, info at eblawfirm.us. So I'm very glad this was filed. And uh, this has appeared in many places. But the one that's been most prominent so far has been Fox News. I was very surprised when I heard about this and how quickly it got on Fox News. I, I don't even know how they found out about this. Maybe because it was covered on Bloomberg and elsewhere. They must have these uh, producers of Fox News that go look for stories like these. Uh, Fox News, of course, is a 24-hour news channel. So they are looking for a lot of content for their various shows to talk about. There's something they have to talk about every day, of course. So they have to find enough stuff to say. On a show... I think Fox News Live Tonight or something like that with Shannon Bream. They did a segment called You Be the Jury, and they've done this before, where they have two attorneys who take the side of one one for the plaintiff, one of the defendant, and then they debate it back and forth. So Shannon Bream, the host, introduces it, and then the two attorneys go back and forth, and then the viewer is supposed to decide for themselves whose side they're on. So they chose this lawsuit, the one just filed by Eric, to be the one they're going to discuss. Now, they didn't mention Eric by name, but they did mention Chris Moneymaker, just in case anyone thinks maybe this is a different PayPal lawsuit. Nope, it's this one. So this aired on Friday the 14th on Fox News at around uh, 9.30 p.m., Pacific time. And I'm, I'm going to play you the segment here. And it's pretty interesting. It is time now for Night Courts. PayPal facing a class action lawsuit tonight from several customers who say the online payment service unlawfully froze their funds without any explanation and eventually just took the money out of their accounts. 
The suit was inspired by poker player Chris Moneymaker, who claims he had $12,000 from his fantasy football league entry fees placed on hold. Now, he says he was preparing to sue, but then PayPal returned his money so he could not be part of this class action. PayPal says this is all spelled out in the user agreement. So let's bring in tonight's legal eagles, criminal defense attorneys Andel Brown and Brian Claypool. Gentlemen, welcome back. Hi, Shannon. Good to be here. We start with uh, Exhibit A. This is from the complaint. Defendants offer no reasonable way, meaning PayPal, for users to challenge their actions or to obtain any due process from the defendants, PayPal. As noted above, defendants routinely act without first contacting the user in question or allowing them any opportunity to explain or dispute whether the activity is in violation of the acceptable use policy. Brian, I'm reading these stories over and over again. These people claim that their money was frozen and then eventually just zapped and they couldn't get anyone to answer their questions or, or to make their case. <laughs> well, boo-hoo, wow. Sounds awful, doesn't it? Sounds like PayPal stealing everybody's money. But this isn't PayPal, it's PayPal for these gamblers. If they looked at what's called an acceptable user policy, Shannon, you have to read it, and then you take your finger, and then you click it and say, I read this and understood what it is. Well, what does it say? It says that if you do something against the policy of PayPal, one of the policies is you can't set up, you can't pay money through PayPal for a gambling reserve, which is what they were doing here, then you are subject to a penalty. What's a penalty? Well, I believe it's $2,500. It's what's called liquidated damages. That's not some phantom term. That's a legal term that says that PayPal's determined what your damages are. What are the damages? Well, it's for the cost of PayPal to canvas to find people who are breaking the rules. Also, it affects their reputation, so they need some money for that. Mm because PayPal doesn't want to be associated with gambling. And last, PayPal gets charged by some of its licensees when this happens. So those are the damages, and this isn't stealing. Okay. All right, let me get Andel in here. Exhibit B, these are part of the PayPal terms. So you do click off on this when you decide to get involved. Unless the merchant has been approved by PayPal, account holders may not use PayPal to send or receive payments for any form of gambling activities, including but not limited to payments for wagers, gambling debts, and gambling winnings, whether conducted online, in person, or through any other means of communication. And Andel, they say, it's not just about gambling. There can be other ways that they feel like you're violating terms of service, and you've agreed to this. Yeah, and, and that's the tough part, Shannon. You have people where there are no allegations of gambling. You had one of the plaintiffs say that I lost 40-something thousand dollars, not $2,500, 40-something thousand dollars, didn't get an explanation. I was selling yoga clothing. I wasn't doing gambling, and my money's gone. That's the problem. You have other allegations where people are saying they lost more than a hundred thousand dollars had nothing to do with gambling didn't get a proper explanation we've seen people go through it when it comes to social media where your account gets closed down you're, you're saying i didn't violate the policy show me how imagine losing six figures without an explanation yeah. and poof your money's gone and they won't tell you what happened that's what some people are saying they're going through and that's the problem that we're looking at and that's why they say they filed this class action suit because they don't want to have their money gone with no due process and no explanation as to what they did wrong yeah you would think that that paypal would at least be obligated to give some kind of explanation if they're going to take your money away we're going to follow this case it's a very interesting one uh, andel and brian thank you for making your arguments tonight we leave it to the jury at home okay so that was the 
appearance on Fox News. You heard the two uh, attorneys going back and forth. I thought the one who was pro the users did a much better job, but he, he did have the easier job to do as far as arguing it. On oh, the other guy, I was just such an unlikable dude. It's, <laughs> it's not uh, PlayPal, it's PayPal. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> boo-hoo. Uh, they're gambling and didn't get their money back. Oh, cry me a river. I yeah. love it. And, and oh, you know, PayPal is such a noble organization. It doesn't want to be associated with gambling. Yeah. Look, at it, look at this shit they're doing, man. It's like syndicated crime. Well, what's funny Amazing. here is they do associate themselves with gambling. So Jeff Dime pointed this out on the Poker Fraud Alert forum. He said, interesting that PayPal keeps talking about their policy in regards to gambling when they are a major deposit and withdrawal method for almost all the major regulated online sports betting apps. And so then he posted a screenshot of the BetMGM app. And right there, you can use PayPal. So PayPal is happy to partner with online gambling firms if uh, it's legalized, but for some reason they act like, oh, you know, gambling's so terrible. Oh, the, we're, we're going to confiscate uh, the Poker League of Nations money because Lena Evans has the nerve to collect money to give out to women's charities. But the truth is they weren't even thinking when they did that because it's a bot doing it. It's an automated process. And it is an automated process on purpose. They do not want human beings to be making these decisions. And I can't tell you exactly why that they have chosen this method. But I would think if they just shut down all conversation after they confiscate the money, then that makes it most difficult for people to get it back. And they keep the maximum amount of money. And they have the least amount of conversation on the record about it. And they also don't have to task any human beings to make decisions to keep people's money. This way, it's just a bot, a cold bot does it that, of course, doesn't think and doesn't reason. It just does what it's programmed to do. And if there's a lot of false positive seizures, then so be it. Then PayPal just keeps extra money. This is a, a very, very obnoxious thing that's happening. And the whole thing's obnoxious. The, the fact that they're fining people $2,500 per violation just taking the money and not giving you a way to talk to them. In general, when any company bills you for something and you can't talk to them, it's very hard to reach someone who can have a meaningful discussion with you about an incorrect bill. That is incredibly frustrating, and I've had that before. But can you imagine when money is actually taken from you, not just billed to you, and you cannot talk to anyone how frustrating that must be, especially if you know you have not violated the terms? Or... Even if you realize you were violating the terms, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and they have imposed this horrible penalty upon you that they shouldn't have a right to do, if they feel you've damaged them in some way, they can sue you. And then if they were to win a lawsuit, then they could enter a collections process against you. But they, they can't just take money they're holding. It's crazy. As of the time we're broadcasting... We see that there's articles on Arts Technica, Endgadget, Bloomberg, Yahoo, Law Street Media, Cards Chat, Law.com, and now, of course, uh, Fox News did that segment as well. It's not an article, but it is a video. You can actually see this Fox News segment if you'd like to see it, not just listen to it. Just uh, Google Fox News, 
PayPal, and uh, you should find it among the first video results, at least as of right now, and you'll be able to watch it. Initially, you needed a, a login, like a cable login, if you subscribe to cable service, to be able to watch that. But uh, they posted a video of this available to everybody. Not on YouTube yet. It may not end up on YouTube. Sometimes they post these clips on YouTube, too. But right now, this is only on their own foxnews.com site. But you can just find it by Googling. It's the easiest way to do it. And you can watch it if you want to see the segment that I played there. Chris Moneymaker has been very actively speaking out about this again. Chris Moneymaker texted, or he tweeted this. The lawsuit has been filed against PayPal. It is amazing what they're trying to do to people. Hashtag thieves. He then wrote, had an amazing amount of people reach out to me about their PayPal horror stories. If we are successful in getting them to be a class action lawsuit, then everyone can join in on the lawsuit. My goal now is to get as many people money back as possible and cause max pain to PayPal. So you can see he's pissed. Then today, January 15th, he tweeted, people asked me how I got my money back from PayPal. The short answer is I have a big following and a voice, and they did not want me to use it to attack them. My money was mysteriously in my account after threatening them on social media. The lawsuit I started is for the hundreds of thousands of people that don't have a voice. PayPal has caused extreme hardship to so many people, and they need to pay. And he's also been answering people directly, telling them how to reach Eric. So Chris Moneymaker very actively involved in getting people to discuss this. Okay, let's get Eric Benzamokin on here before he falls asleep. He is not someone who stays up late like I do. So let's get him on the show right now and hear his take on this entire thing. Hello? Eric Benzamokin, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Hey, Todd. Good to be back on. Yeah, it's good to have you back here, and uh, I guess that destroys the theory by uh, Ryback Feed Me More on the forum that there's some sort of beef between us, because you haven't been on in a while. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, l- lucky for me, it's just that I've been super busy with stuff. Yeah, well, we're going to hear about something you're very busy with here on this phone call, the reason we're having you on tonight. So we talked about, back in the summer, about a lawsuit that is involving PayPal and does not involve me. I want everybody to understand. Uh, again, this does not involve me in any way, but uh, it is something that involves a lot of people in poker. A lot of people have been victimized by this. We talked about this extensively over the summer, and uh, Chris Moneymaker was uh, one of the victims, though he's not going to be part of the suit because they refunded him his money, presumably out of fear of this lawsuit. But anyway, PayPal has been for years now, freezing people's accounts, refusing to tell them why, claiming that they have to wait six months to get their money back, and then after the six months ticks down, they just take it. It happened to Chris Moneymaker for 12 k It happened to Mike Matisau. It happened to so many people in the poker community, and it happened to so many people outside of the poker community who, uh, I mean, the number of people who've been hit with this around the world has got to be staggering. And the amount of money that PayPal has stolen in this way has got to be staggering. And uh, so Eric got involved with this uh, originally with Chris Moneymaker back in the uh, in the summer. And even though Chris is not part of the lawsuit because PayPal panicked and refunded him the money, as we talked about on this show when that happened, 
Uh, there's many, many more victims who did not get refunded and won't get refunded. And uh, Eric has been working on this class action case against PayPal. And uh, he's been working very hard on it. And if, in case you've forgotten about it, guys, Eric has not forgotten. And on January 13th, 2021, that case was officially filed in federal court. So, Eric, why don't you tell us about what you filed, what was the uh, reason that it was in federal court, and uh, we'll go from there. First, I apologize if I, I sound a little off. Uh, I Believe it or not, I, had, I got a, uh, one of the breakthrough uh, COVID infections after uh, being vaccinated and boosted. Um, so this Omicron is, is no joke just for people out there. Uh, luckily, it's been much, much more mild um, than the first time I went through uh, the COVID. So uh, I'm grateful for that. But if I, if I sniffle a little or cough a little, I apologize. Yes, we'll definitely uh, tolerate the sniffling, the sneezing. and the, you, you can even blow your nose on here. It's fine. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Uh, so first, let, let me say this. Even though uh, you, Todd, are not a, a plaintiff in the lawsuit, this really wouldn't have been possible had you not reached out and actually put me in touch with Chris Moneymaker to begin with and sort of vouch for who I was. Uh, you know, Chris had never heard of me. And there were a lot of, you know, sort of higher profile lawyers that would have been more than happy to sort of get on his, you know, rise his coattails, so to speak. But uh, but I'm eternally grateful. You know, you put us in touch, and we spoke to him, and you know, he kind of interviewed me and our firm, and, and you know, he felt comfortable enough, and you know, we forged uh, a really nice alliance. And so Chris, you know, put out a tweet that hey, he's coming after PayPal, and he retained our firm, and we're gonna we're gonna try to make this right. And less than two weeks after he did that, mysteriously one morning he woke up, and all of his money was returned. Um, so we knew at that point, myself and my co-counsel. Uh, we knew that the PayPal's kind of monitoring the uh, the airwaves, so to speak, the Twitterverse, whatever you want, you know, all the different cool ways of saying it. Uh, so we had to be much, much more low profile after that. Um, and along the way, we learned there was uh, a Reddit thread that was set up dedicated to uh, this lawsuit and people that have been affected by PayPal and had their money seized after having it frozen for, you know, six-month period of time. We found that there was a Discord server uh, hosted by someone who had this happen to them with close to a thousand members participating uh, from all over the world, um, and uh, and we we also found out within a few months that those Discord messages were likely being monitored. So we we had to keep it very hush hush. Now because Chris got his money returned, Chris could not be the lead plaintiff in this case. And while many people reached out to us, really, and it all started with Chris's tweets and kind of getting some awareness as to this issue, uh, we really wanted to make sure that we had somebody representative uh, from the community because this really does affect a lot of poker players, a lot of people that are into daily uh, fantasy sports, um, which, by the way, is, is not illegal at all, DFS. But nevertheless, uh, and so through the course of vetting the various plaintiffs and through uh, Chris and his direct referral, we met uh, Lena Evans. So many of your listeners might know, but I'm sure you know even better than I do who Lena is. And she's been in the community for a very long time, very well respected. She does a great deal of charity work, founded Poker League of Nations, nonprofit to help people in the community and, and with all different types of issues and, 
And so, and we heard her story and she had, you know, 27 some thousand dollars confiscated by PayPal uh, after another alleged violation of the terms of service and their acceptable use policy. They froze her money. And keep in mind, these were charity, she was running charity poker events, not keeping money, not taking a rake, you know, just collecting charitable entry fees and then donating the proceeds um, to either lymphoma research or somebody uh, needed help with a child custody issue. I mean, there were various different sort of the, you know, like charitable causes that she would give money to. Um, but nonetheless, PayPal, again, without due process, without explanation, confiscated her money. And we started receiving horror stories from all different types of people involved in all different types of industries from all over the country. And we, you know, the other two plaintiffs, we could have had as many as 10 or 20. We limited it to three because we didn't want to overly, uh, you know, like muddy the waters as far as the initial complaint. Um, we felt that the three that we went with were fairly representative of the overall bigger picture here in the issue of PayPal simply confiscating funds with impunity. There, there is no real investigation that we believe is happening. No investigative results are provided to the end user or the account holder. Can people be added to this later? Like if people who are not listed, not part of these three who've been victimized in this way, can they be added? And when can they be added? And when should they contact you about this? It's a great question. So there, there are several procedural steps that have to occur first. We have no doubt that PayPal is going to try to compel this into arbitration and get it out of the federal court system. There is an arbitration clause in the terms of service. We're well aware of that. Um, we, depending on the particular judge or magistrate and their outlook on arbitration clauses and the enforceability of it, we may end up having to arbitrate these initial three claims with our lead three plaintiffs. Um, now, it could turn into something called a mass arbitration, which is similar to the class action where we add more people as we go, but it's through an arbitration through uh, the American Arbitration Association. Uh, or we can also have it certified as a class. Now, if it's certified as a class by the you know, federal district court, then that opens us up to anybody who's similarly situated to the three plaintiffs that we use. And that's why the complaint lists uh, the three named plaintiffs, and then it says, and anyone else similarly situated in the world. And this can say, and you're not limited, we're not limited to the uh, continental United States or anything else. This can be potentially for anybody that has had their funds seized and kept by PayPal for an alleged violation of their acceptable use policy. The amounts don't matter. We chose three plaintiffs that had varying amounts, all five or six figure amounts, but we've had people contact us for as little as $50 that was taken. Um, we've had other people who've had over half a million dollars allegedly allegedly confiscated by PayPal out of Singapore. Um, it, it, it's so widespread, and it's almost impossible at this stage to even estimate the number of people that this has happened to We've had inquiries since this story sort of broke Thursday evening, um, and, and there's been a tremendous amount of coverage uh, this point, so far in this early stages. Uh, we've had people send us an email inquiries that had funds confiscated as far back as you know 2003. So we can only go back four years pursuant to a statute of limitations. 
if that just gives you an idea, this has been going on for almost two decades. And nobody's really able to shut this down. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. And I've heard of this going on for a, a very long time, much longer than four years. That 2003 doesn't even sound like uh, something that is hard to believe. Uh, it probably has been happening since the beginning. Though from what I've observed, it seems like the total confiscation of the funds after 180 days, it seems to be happening much more often in the last few years as compared to before. That's just from my observation. I think you're probably right. There are more e-commerce transactions today than there were, you know, 15, 18, 20 years ago. It's become much, much more trusted and much more mainstream method of uh, paying things. Um, most, a lot of businesses online and brick and mortar at this point let you pay through PayPal. You have the PayPal apps now and, you know, the sort of like tap your screen sort of thing. I don't even know the name of these technologies, but I, I just know it's pretty impressive as far as how far it's come. Um, you know, but PayPal really is like the world's biggest digital wallet. Uh, it, and most people believe that it's a safe, secure place to hold money, to, to use to purchase crypto and other things, to purchase um, products uh, or services. And they hold themselves out to to be a safe digital wallet. Um, and, and also keep in mind, PayPal has a lot of other subsidiary businesses that all touch currency and finance. And they have like Loan Builder, so they offer business loans and personal loans and and then they have the Venmo, of course, which is really like a money transfer and another form of a digital wallet. Um, it's almost impossible to conduct business today without using some form of digital wallet or means of moving currency in, in, in a digital way. And PayPal is really the leader in that. And so what that does, unfortunately, is that sort of subjects everybody to their whim. Um, and of course, the problem, you know, is, is so great because and the, and the biggest complaint we get from all the people we've interviewed. And by the way, I want to mention between when the real media coverage started late Thursday night, Friday morning, through this evening, we received well over 500 new email inquiries from people. <laughs> Just sending us blunt emails. This happened to me too. This happened to me too. And it's all different kinds of weird stories. They froze my account for six months. Then they kept it frozen. It's still a year and a half. They haven't confiscated it, but they haven't released it yet. We're getting some of that. We're getting some people that are just just angry. We're getting some people that are saying, you know, I finally got my money back, but, you know, fuck them, go get them. Uh, and, we're, and we're getting more people that are saying, yeah, this exact same thing happened to me. I'm so glad somebody's taking a stand. How do we, you know, where can we help? How can we get in touch? Um, and I, and it really, it's just in the last really 48 hours. This is just scratching the surface. Right. This is only a, a very small percentage of people likely who, who uh, had this occur. And uh, I, I have seen it's it's blowing up on the media. In fact, uh, Fox News even had this uh, this lawsuit. Eric's uh, lawsuit here is, was on Fox News last night for about uh, four and a half minutes. I was uh, surprised to see that, but I was like, "Wow, that's cool!" It's a, this is really getting coverage in a lot of places, and I think everybody can relate to it too. Even if this hasn't happened to you, people can easily picture themselves in this situation where a large company confiscates your money and then shuts down the conversation. They won't even have a conversation with you. And that's that's really the most amazing part in this whole thing to me. Not just that they're taking people's money, but they're taking people's money and refusing to discuss it with them or even tell them what they did wrong. Yes, that's, that's one of the most extremely frustrating points to all of this. And why so many people are so bent out of shape because they have no, there is no explanation given. People are forced to guess 
and oftentimes there, there really is no violation. You know, the, and, and this is actually, you know, interestingly enough, this was sort of covered on the Fox News segment yesterday. Um, look, there are a lot of people that have reached out to us that have nothing to do with gambling or poker or daily fantasy sports. They're just business people, you know, conducting business. And for whatever reason, <coughs> something gets flagged or there's some kind of algorithm or something is running and there's nobody to actually talk to and nobody that's tasked with making a decision and nobody that's willing to look into these things and say, oh, you're right, we may have very well made a mistake. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't appear as if this is for gambling or you know, any number of things that we find to be deplorable. You know, there's just nowhere to go and nobody to talk to. And it doesn't seem like PayPal really cares. Yeah, and it's, in fact, it's to their benefit that uh, they can't be reached about this matter and that even if you speak to their reps, they, they can't give you any answers. So even a rep there that wants to help you can't because they simply don't have access to that information and they don't have any decision-making power in that uh, the end result is PayPal gets to keep your money because there is no way to appeal. There's no way to find out what you did wrong. And um, tell me if this part's true, the less conversation they have with the victims of this, the better for them legally, because then it's one of these cases where anything they say can't be used against them because there's nothing being said. PayPal won't say anything, and and therefore uh, they nothing that they tell these customers who had their money confiscated can be used in court later. Well, yeah, sure. It's just less of a record and less of a paper trail to get later through discovery. But what's equally disturbing, and we've heard this on multiple accounts, is that there are a few times where somebody gets through to someone uh, and then they're told, well, if you want that information, go get a subpoena. All right. Well, how, you know, how do you tell the guy that is looking for the $1,200 that they just took, uh, you know, go get a subpoena before we'll tell you anything or give you any information as to why we froze or permanently banned and confiscated your money, you know, banned your account, shut you down, confiscated your money. It's absolutely, it's just gross. Uh, yeah, yeah I, it I, is. I can't think of a better way to say it. It does. It gets, it gets me mad to think about this and to read some of these stories of some of the people who were victimized and you can say oh yeah these people who knows if they're telling the truth there's so many stories just like this that are all saying the same thing and uh it's it's got to be true or very close to 100 percent true in just about all of these claims because we keep seeing the same story over and over and paypal this clearly seems to be how they operate and it's it's really really obnoxious and offensive and that's why i think the average person reading this will be outraged because they can imagine if they were in this spot and how mad they would be and this is ruining people's lives this is ruining businesses this is ruining people's livelihoods this isn't just uh, an annoyance with losing a little bit of money for some people it is for some of the people this is really major as you mentioned someone had more than a half million dollars taken in this way now i do have a question for you regarding a response. We saw this on Fox News, and we saw this uh, also in some places on the internet where some uh, naysayers are poo-pooing this entire thing, and they're claiming, well, you agreed to the acceptable use policy, so if you don't like it, tough luck, you agreed. What is your response to that? Well, I have two responses. So first, that doesn't mean they can just keep the money. And even even banks, if they suspect something that violates the law or their policy, they can close your account, they can ban you, they can kick you out. They can't keep your money. Um, that's just the bottom line. Even the federal government can't keep your money without due process, without at least giving you the opportunity to be heard. So I, I think that that's really the issue. It's not a question of 
was the acceptable use policy violated? In some cases, it, it very well may have been. That just doesn't, but that doesn't give PayPal a license to steal and keep the money. Number two, or the second response is more than the uh, more than half, I'd say close to 75 to 80 percent of the people that have reached out to us don't believe they violated their acceptable use policy, and they likely didn't. Um, and so, how does PayPal respond to that? Well, okay, even if you know, even if the acceptable use policy outlines the 20 things that PayPal thinks is deplorable, we don't want you using our platform for. What about the people that didn't do any of those 20 things and still their money taken? How do you justify that? Yeah, and how do you and justify? Let me, let me tell you. Oh. Yeah, and also how do you, how do you justify yeah, yeah. not not even being able to contact them to say, hey, look, I didn't violate it. Can you please take another look because your bot suspended me uh, unjustly? You can't do it. Well, and let me tell you one one small benefit of quarantining again is I've got nothing to do but read these 500 emails today. You know, and so I can tell you a few that stood out the most. Well, one one lady in Wisconsin. Obviously, I can't read her name out, but um, she applied for the uh, EIDL, which is the um, basically the uh, COVID-based disaster loan that the SBA was offering to business owners. She was basically self-employed. She cleaned houses. She had a two-year-old daughter that she supported on her own. The SBA granted her a loan and wired $11,000, and she had it sent to her PayPal account. PayPal immediately flagged it as, quote, fraudulent, locked it out, and she couldn't get her money. Uh, for, you know, and this went on, and then they kept it. $11,000 from the SBA. Now, this, it's not difficult to trace the source of that money. So the U.S. Treasury, just like a tax refund, right? How do you, you know, so also, and she, and she wrote in this email, I sent them the, the loan documents, my, my ID, my social security card, everything, the SBA approval letter, everything, it didn't matter. How do they justify that? How can they possibly say that this is somehow fraudulent? And who are they to say that anyway? Even if the loan was obtained under fraudulent circumstances, which I don't believe it was, but even if it was, why is PayPal the arbiter of that? And, and, and PayPal didn't give the money back to the SBA. They kept it. That's true. This is one example. And yeah. I'm, I'm telling you, we've got hundreds of these emails today. Well, uh, so so I guess the last thing, I'll let you go to bed uh, and uh, get some rest. Maybe the Omicron will be better tomorrow when you wake up, or at least mostly better. Um, but the... Last question I have is people who are in similar circumstances like this woman you just described who had that loan uh, money grabbed from by PayPal, uh, at what point would they join in with this? I know you said that uh, it has to be it has to be certified class action and you have to get past the arbitration issue where uh, PayPal is going to try to compel that. But when should, should someone email you now if they have something going on? Should they wait until – it's possible for them to join in. What would be the best time for someone to contact you about this? Well, they don't have to necessarily wait. They can contact. Um, we set up uh, a general email box, uh, info at eblawfirm.us for people. I've got some legal assistants now that are manning that, that email address in that mailbox um, that are reaching out and corresponding and communicating with all the people that are sending us inquiries. Um, there are certain cases that we will take independent of this and, and, and we'll go to arbitration and cover those costs if need be, uh, because it's just so long. So somebody like this woman uh, in Wisconsin, we can still compel arbitration or, or initiate arbitration against PayPal 
um, on her behalf or others situ similar situated to her where they really couldn't afford to wait and they can't afford to hire their own private attorney, you know, we'll, we'll step in and we'll do something for, for some select people that are in that book. Unfortunately, like with anything, we have gotten, you know, emails on the other side of the spectrum where somebody claimed that, you know, PayPal confiscated 100 bucks and they suffered, you know, extreme emotional anguish and distress over it and they want $100,000 now. You know, we're reading through those too. And you know, we've gotten a few of those. Okay. Well, uh, anyway, so they should email you right now or sometime soon at info at EB Law Firm. That's Eric Benzamok and EB lawfirm.us info at eblawfirm.us and then uh, you said you have somebody who is, is going through this and uh, responding to them and will and ho hopefully people will start getting their money back soon and uh, just to repeat to anyone who has been a victim of this uh, if if they do retain you for this matter in, in either way, whether they join the class or whether you uh, do something sooner for some of these larger or at least somewhat larger cases, uh, that there's no cost to anybody here off the top that it, you, you would only be uh, collecting some percentage of any judgment won. Is that true? That's correct. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Everything is on the street contingency basis. None of the plaintiffs had to pay anything up front. We cover all the filing fees and the time to draft and compl the complaint. Uh, I do want to mention, if possible, a little shout-out to our co-counsel, uh, Shriver and Shriver and Encino. Um, they also have a tremendous amount of class action experience, and, uh, and they went up against some of the larger firms, and, uh, some of the larger outfits in the past, Microsoft, Google. Um, so we're really lucky, I am, I should say, really lucky to have them uh, with me and my firm uh, co-counseling this, this with us and and kind of taking this crusade with us. It's not, it's far too much for one small firm like mine to do on its own. Um, and I, I knew it was going to be uh, a lot of people and I knew it was going to be a big case. I think I severely underestimated the number of people that this has happened to uh, and the amount of money that PayPal has what I believe to be legally confiscated or seized. Hmm. Um, and yeah. It was just, you know, this is an attendance stated and this could be a several years, you know, very long road. I, I have no doubt that PayPal is going to fight this tooth and nail. Um, but at the end of the day, I got to just hope that, you know, justice prevails and, you know, they do what I think. Yeah. Ho hopefully this really ends up in federal court and, and is certified class action and uh, that it's not forced to arbitration. But uh, the most important thing, of course, is that there is some justice at the end of this whole thing for what this to me, appears to be a very egregious violation of people's rights and just outright theft by PayPal. This is just really awful and unconscionable. I tell people the story, they have a hard time believing it at first, that this could really be happening. I go, no, it, it really is what it appears to be. So, uh, and yeah, I see on the legal paperwork, uh, Schreiber and Schreiber. So it's good that you're uh, partnered with them and they're uh, they've got some experience in class actions. And I, I'm very happy that uh, I was able to bring this to you. I, I had faith in you and that you could help Chris. And even though Chris ended up getting his money back, that uh, uh, you guys can read the 37-page complaint that I posted. And you'll see, uh, in my non-legal opinion, it was, was very well done. And, and I hope this is going to get justice for a lot of people and get uh, the money back for a lot of people and also punish PayPal for, for what they've been doing. So I'm glad that I alerted you to this and uh, hooked you up with Chris there. 
And uh, definitely very much good luck with this, and we will be covering this. And, and guys, keep Googling this because you're going to see more and more large outlets are going to be covering this. I mean, Fox News, they they had a segment with two attorneys who were playing like for as if they were representing the plaintiff and defendant going back and forth. Fox News actually made a segment about this. And regardless of what you think of Fox News politically, uh, this is obviously an apolitical issue. This is one of the few things that both sides of the aisle could probably agree is, is terrible. And uh, they... Uh, so this is the, the biggest news channel in the country. And they made a segment about this. So And it was on Bloomberg.com as well. And it was on uh, Arts Technica. And... It's going to appear in more and more places. This is a very big story here. This is far bigger than just the poker community. And I'm glad that Erica could be part of this. And and I hope that PayPal not only has to pay for what they've done, but this will hopefully stop them from doing this in the future as well. I, my, my heart really does break for some of these people. I picture myself in their shoes and I go, I would just be going nuts if this happened to me. So... I, I hope they yeah, all get that's, that's really. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Matt. Sorry. No, no. Answer the question. I just before you leave, I had a couple of questions for you, but go ahead and answer answer his question. Oh yeah. Well, what I was going to say is that's really the, the the goal. Of course, we want to get as much money back for these people as we can, but really, we want PayPal just to stop doing this. You know, get get a team in place to investigate. You know, these claims. Get real people to answer the phones and actually look into these allegations and let people tell their story and let them explain why this is a mistake or they were flagged, you know, uh, incorrectly. And when somebody wrote the word card, he meant a baseball card, not poker, you know, and there was no reason to flag that a card. And, and, you know, that's what we're really striving for. I know it sounds, um, you know, cliche, but we really want to get change out of this more, you know, as much as we want everybody to get their money back. Yeah, definitely. Cal, what were your questions? <clears throat> Yeah, Eric, I just wanted to ask you, uh, given the broad scope of this PayPal issue, do you think more people are infected by the PayPal virus or more people are infected by the Omicron virus? Well, I, I think I think Omicron still got the lead on that. Um, it just seems like so many actually, people have it. Yeah, I mean, we, and actually, we're getting so many responses from people and inquiries, but our, our case is really actually more narrowly focused because they've already litigated more than once about freezing of accounts and the 180-day lockup policy and whether they have to pay interest on money that they hold and things like that. But we haven't found a case here where anybody's actually gone after them and taken them to test for, for seizing the money, and which we know is a lower percentage. So a lot of people have gotten their accounts locked. But some people are getting their money back, and a lot of those people are still reaching out saying, well, they, they, you know, they screwed me or they forced me out of business because I couldn't pay my vendors and, I couldn't pay and that's tragic, but we have to be very narrowly focused because remember the one key to a class action is that everybody has to be similarly situated. So we have to focus only on all of those who have actually had the money seized by PayPal as a form of compensation for violating the acceptable use policy and what they claim to be liquidated damages and the cost of investigating and things like that. Yeah, and I, I just had one other question, too. I mean, you, Drew, you mentioned that this is something that both sides of the aisle can uh, agree upon. Do you think uh, more people agree that PayPal is in the wrong here than agree that vaccines work? <laughs> I think just about everybody would agree that PayPal – I think if, if a poll was taken on this, I think you would get a very high percentage of people taking the side of the users – 
provided that all the information was given to where they understood that this wasn't just uh, PayPal clamping down on illegal gamblers. But once, if people understood what was really happening, and I, I don't mean from an opinion standpoint, I mean just the facts of what is happening, who got their money confiscated, what happens when people try to contact them, I think you would get a very, very high percentage of people who would be on the side of the aggrieved users, not PayPal, much higher than the people who are on the side of uh, taking the vaccine. I think so, too. Yeah. So that's pretty amazing, Eric, that you've hit well, upon something that everyone well, agrees on. That's incredible. Well, here's here's some food for thought. PayPal has an approximate, approximately 325 million user accounts. If they only did this to one half of a percent of all of their accounts, you're still talking about over 1.5 million people. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> It's a yeah, lot that, of people. That, that's an interesting way to think of it, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's it. I can only imagine the amount of money. I was thinking about this earlier today. The amount of total money that has been seized from everybody they've done this to, even in just the last four years, it's got to be a staggering amount of money. And also, what percentage of their profits does this uh, comprise? And it might be a lot higher than some people think. Well, we, we are honestly... Uh, my co-counsel and I, we think we're in the nine figures at this point. Shit. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. Like, It really wouldn't surprise me because there were some large ones in there and just the sheer number of them, they they all don't have to be large, even even a bunch of medium ones together. Yeah, it, this this is really huge, and I'm, I'm so glad that this is being done. This is one of these things. It, it, it reminds me a little bit of civil forfeiture, just something when you hear the details of it, like almost nobody would support it. Almost everybody would say this is uh, an obscene violation of people's rights and just outright stealing people's property. So this, is, I'm glad that uh, you're standing up to them here and that hopefully they're going to have to pay. And uh, Calwa, do you have any more questions before we let uh, Eric uh, get in bed and uh, try to fight the Omicron? No, I have nothing to add. Just I, I hope you feel better, Eric, in, in all seriousness. I hope you uh, end up recovering from this. Has it been too bad for you or – no, uh, I've been really lucky. I'll tell you, I, I, I pretty much believe that the, the vaccine and the booster are helping. It's been more like a bad cold than compared to the first time I got it. I never got a fever higher than like 99, and it was only for a very small period of time. And oh, so it's the fever. second time you've had it. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Second time. It was a breakthrough. Mm. Uh, it was a breakthrough infection. Um, yeah, he, but wow. it really is. It's more just stuff, stuff he knows. A little bit of body ache, but nothing compared to the first time. Like the, well, the, the, the first, first time, time it was much worse. The first time was probably the Delta then, or did you have it real early, even before Delta? No, no, I had it earlier, but before the before we were that far down the Greek alphabet, and before any vaccines or anything. Else. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think that I had it, but it, like where I first found out about the whole uh, COVID thing going down, I was actually in Australia, and. I didn't even know how I was going to be able to get home. Like, I thought it was going to be locked down. I think it was like, I want to say it was in February or, or March that I was down there. And when I got home, I don't know if it was psychosomatic or what, but man, I had a cough <laughs> and, and I didn't feel great for a little while. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I ever had it, but that's crazy, man. That's crazy. You got it twice. I'm glad to hear that second time around post-vaccine was uh, a little bit milder for you. 
Yeah, yeah. I, and I'm, I'm, even today I feel probably close to 80% back to normal. I'm hoping by yeah. Monday morning or Monday afternoon. And I'm going to test again Tuesday and just kind of see if uh, after five days without symptoms or four days without symptoms, I'm okay. So hopefully Man, I'll tell you, since this Omicron, I, I know so many people that just in my circle that have tested positive for it. Like, it's crazy. Well, so a, a, many as, people. as we're going to talk about in yeah. a little bit later, later segment, somebody in my house tested positive for it this week. Yeah. Well, my not in my house, but my wife's sister, uh, one of their kids got it at daycare. And, you know, he's, he's doing all right. Everything's going uh, going all right there but i'm just saying like the the scale of the number of people that are, are getting i don't want to turn this into a, a, a covid thing but uh I'm, I'm glad to hear that this is kind of mild for you and i hope you're feeling better soon eric i appreciate that very much thank you guys both yeah okay well eric thank you for coming on here and uh we will be updating this we're going to be following this as I happen. want to see Eric on Fox News getting well, grilled by Tucker Carlson on this. That'd be amazing. Oh, That'd be so cool. I don't. I don't think you want to see me on Fox. Well, the, the funny thing I do is, want to, no, I do want to see you. No, but I don't hilarious. think Fox is going to come at him though. See, I don't because this, this isn't really political. I have a feeling they'll actually be on Eric's side. As, as strange right. as it is, even though Eric d- doesn't uh, align with them politically, I, I think they're actually going to agree on this one. It, yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be the story of you know corporate malfeasance and this horrible thing that PayPal is doing. I, I totally could see it being a, uh, you know, forget about anyone's political viewpoint. I, I could totally see them being on your side here. Yeah. Yeah. So it, yeah that'd be a strange thing. So far, so far, yeah. So far, nobody from Fox has reached out. But, uh, we'll, see, we'll see that. <laughs> I want to see it. I, I want to see it too, to for sure. Moment. <laughs> but look, it would be good publicity for this whole thing if you got on Fox News, regardless of... Uh, how you feel about uh, their politics. This would definitely be a, a good thing for the case, and uh, I, I, ho- I hope they reach out. Yeah, it might not be Tucker Carlson. It might be like a business segment or yeah, something probably like be. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they did say they'd be following it, so we'll see. Yeah. All right, well, thank you, Eric, for coming on here, and uh, we'll uh, have you on again about uh, this matter if there's some updates and uh, some things to say. Will do. Always a pleasure, guys. Okay, thank you for coming on. Good night. See you, Eric. Feel better. All right, bye Okay, let's throw on a call here. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, this is uh, the world-famous Desert Runner. Yes, Desert Runner. What, you want to say something about PayPal? Yes, I have a whole new angle of it. Usually it's the gun angle. Um, last October at a very popular gun site, uh, Calgun, a guy wrote in at he, uh, PayPal stole $16,000 from him, and he's trying to go to arbitration. And the reason was for policy violations because he sold gun uh, firearm-related parts. And I guess it's been going on and on, arbitration, 180 days. <clears throat> and I introduced him and the whole gun side to Eric Benzamokin and the pending thing. So the funny thing is this guy got $16,000 clipped, nothing to do with poker or money, but for uh, firearm-related parts. So I thought you might find that uh, angle interesting. Yeah, I heard something about that. Anything? Yeah, I, I, you know what? Yeah, uh, and- Stop it's like firearms at all. Even if you kind of say you, you, you trim the words a little bit or you actually sugarcoat the wording a little bit, it's the exact same thing, I guess, as the gambling side. I figured you'd like that whole different angle. Yeah, yeah thank you. And and that's I, I'd heard something about that. So I think guys calling Eric. I finally kept telling him he's trying to do it on his own and trying to be a, a, a wheel and trying to be a player. I said, dude, call this guy. I think he finally said he contacted Eric. I don't know if he's on board or not. 
But yeah. these guys, you know, they don't want to listen. So there well, you go. Yeah, nobody can be on board until Thanks. until this is certified uh, class action. So, but I am getting a poker fraud alert from Screen Time over at uh, Cal Guns. So uh, they're 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 learning about it slowly and they're bringing it over. So there you go. Okay. Thanks, buddy. All right. Thanks. So anyway, I'm um, moving on here. I want to give you a quick puzzle case update. And there's there's not much I can say here because this is something that unfortunately is bound by a confidentiality agreement. You remember we had an involuntary bankruptcy petition against Possel, and it was regarding the judgment that was owed to me and to Veronica Brill over that uh, anti-slap motion that we had filed in the civil case against us. So we ended up winning that, if you remember, and $27,000 was owed to each of us, and there was an involuntary bankruptcy that we attempted in order to hasten collecting that money. So the involuntary bankruptcy is over. There has been a settlement involving the involuntary bankruptcy case only. And uh, there's been a lot of confusion about this. So I'm going to try to clarify this as much as I can. So what has not been settled is the entire matter. So I'm still owed money from this. Veronica still owed money from this. And we're still going to continue collections. The involuntary bankruptcy part is over. And that has been settled. And the settlement is confidential. So I can't give you the details on it, now or ever. But the confidentiality agreement only covers the involuntary bankruptcy portion. So I can give you details of everything else involving the case. I just can't give you details about that. So that's really all there is to say because the only new news here involves a confidential settlement, but it doesn't settle the entire matter. And that's where there's a lot of confusion. I see a lot of people believing the entire matter's been settled and that uh, we just did a confidentiality agreement and that uh, nobody will ever know what happens. That's not true. Only with the involuntary bankruptcy portion was there a confidential settlement. And because that was done, I cannot ever talk about that, nor can Possel, nor can Veronica nor can the attorneys involved. And yeah, that's the way it goes. You may ask, why was there a confidential settlement? My answer is, that's confidential. (laughs) That's really what I have to say. I cannot talk about it other than that this was done, that there was a confidential settlement and that the involuntary bankruptcy portion is over. But that's the only part that's totally over. And that's the only part the settlement involves. So I'll give you any further news about this, which does not involve the involuntary bankruptcy, which I, I don't believe any further news will because it's settled and over. So any further news will be about other matters involving the case and anything that happens like that, I will let you know. So that's just a quick update on that. So uh, I want to tell you about uh, Omicron in my house. I told you last week I thought this might be coming. I had no evidence that it was coming. But as I spoke last Saturday night on January 8th, I said that my son Benjamin might catch it at any time at school. And my son Benjamin did catch it at school. In fact, he had already caught it. I didn't know that as I was saying it. But Omicron was in his body and was infecting him as I was saying it. 
on the night of January 8th. On January 9th, he woke up after 10 and a half hours of sleep, which is a lot of sleep even at that age. Kids sleep more, but not 10 and a half hours usually. He woke up and he was feeling tired. He was feeling unusually tired. He didn't tell me this, but he was. And the entire day he felt tired, though he was active that day. That was what was misleading. He, he, he did a lot of stuff that day. But he was tired the entire time and just didn't say anything about it until it was time to go to bed. He actually wanted to go to bed earlier than usual because he said he was tired. And it was at that point when he told me that he was tired the entire day. And he said to me, I don't know why I got 10 and a half hours of sleep. But when I woke up, I was tired. And I felt like I had gotten only like four. And I said, oh, no. Because that doesn't happen to him usually. Every time he's ever woken up and felt tired, when it wouldn't make sense for the amount of sleep he got, he has been sick. And usually that's the case with me, too. If I wake up feeling unusually tired, then it's usually something's wrong. So I, I was already suspicious at that point that he had Omicron. Well, sure enough, next day on Monday, on the 10th, he got a sore throat. So at this point, it was clear he was sick, but that could be a cold. Colds start with sore throats as well. In fact, when I would get a cold, often the way it would work is I would feel unusually tired, and then a sore throat would follow. And usually at the point I feel the sore throat, I go, oh, that's why I've been feeling tired. Oh, no, I must have a cold coming. So it could still be a cold, I thought, at that point. But I knew about Omicron going around the schools. I knew about Omicron being cold-like. And I thought, you know what? I am concerned that this is Omicron. I don't think this is a cold. Well, there was another reason to believe it was Omicron. There were two known Omicron cases that were in his class already that previous week. One of them was a kid who was last in school on January 4th, and one of them was a kid last in school on January 6th. And we found out that his friend that he had most recently seen and played with on Friday the 7th was feeling some pretty strong symptoms that seemed like he was probably Omicron. So I really thought that he probably had Omicron. However, you guys know how hard it is to get reliable tests. Now, we did have these home tests, but those don't do very well for Omicron. You get a lot of false negatives. Very few people it seems to work for. So if you, if you have one of these home rapid tests and you go, oh, good, I'm negative. Uh, no, 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 no. Don't believe it. You'll be probably, I wouldn't say you probably are positive, but I'm saying you can't believe anything those tests tell you on the negative side. On the positive side, yes. If it's just negative, it really means nothing. So he got negative there, but that, I was not convinced. We managed to find a regular test for him that would be sent to a lab, a PCR test, on Monday night. But then we had to wait. Usually, in the past, you'd get these results the next day. Here we had to wait three days. Actually, a little more than three days. On Thursday night, at 10.45 p.m., the results came in. They must be working around the clock at these testing facilities. The results came in, and he was positive. So that was the confirmation. And there are very few false positives, by the way. 
lot of false negatives, very few false positives. So you see positive on one of these things that combined with the symptoms, you know you got it. What symptoms did he have? He had sore throat, as I mentioned, fatigue, as I mentioned, headache, which was coming on and off. He said the headaches were fairly bad, but they were coming on and then disappearing and coming on and disappearing. He had some mild congestion and he had a cough, a mild cough. Those are also the five most common Omicron symptoms. In addition to that, he had a fever of like 99.5 to 100. But it never broke 100. So very low-grade fever, plus those five very typical most common Omicron symptoms, plus an Omicron, or shall I say a COVID-positive test, which I'm sure was Omicron, because almost all the cases now are, and his symptoms are just like Omicron. So basically, Benjamin has Omicron. So how am I doing this show? Omicron is so contagious and is busting through vaccines. It's even busting through some boosters, though not as much. How do I not have it living with him all this time? It's now been almost a week. And the most contagious point was like Saturday, Sunday of last week. So how am I not feeling it? Well, I think the booster probably did its job. If you remember, I had a very strong reaction to the booster and the second shot. So even though I got very sick, that also is indicative that my body had a strong immune response and there was probably a lot of antibodies created. So there's a very good chance that what happened was that the virus did enter my body and it got fought off. Now, as a weird side note here, remember I mentioned last month that I had that issue with my foot where I just woke up with it hurting. I was walking with a limp, and then the following day, I couldn't walk at all. And then for two days, I couldn't walk. Well, guess what came back? So on Monday, I had the same issue. I woke up with my foot hurting, and I was walking with a limp. And I said, oh, no. I have a feeling on Tuesday, I'm going to wake up and I won't be able to walk, because it felt very similar to the first day of what happened to me last month. So I was bracing for getting out of bed on Tuesday and not being able to walk because that foot would be in such intense pain. But it didn't get there. It worsened on Tuesday, but only a little bit. It worsened even more on Wednesday, getting me on the verge of not being able to walk, but I could still walk just with a big-time limp, and it hurt a lot. And then somehow there was an improvement on Wednesday night, a further improvement on, t- on Thursday, And then uh, it was almost gone yesterday, and then today it's gone. Only thing I've been taking was a lot of ibuprofen. So I don't know if the ibuprofen helped or if this just went away on its own. I still don't know what this is. This is the same thing that got me last month, just not as severe. Now, there is a possibility that what happened to me was that my body was fighting Omicron, assisted by the vaccine, And that my body fighting it off brought on this reaction. Now, I don't know what happened a month ago, where it was worse. I guess it was possible it was also fighting uh, COVID then. There's no, uh, Omicron really wasn't here yet, but uh, uh, I guess it was here a little bit, but maybe it was fighting Delta. So it's possible my body was fighting off uh, Delta then, and I didn't realize it. But it's also possible it has nothing to do with this. 
but there is the possibility that this was like a reaction to my body fighting Omicron. And that's why I never felt sick, but I got this uh, issue with my foot again. It was the exact same issue, by the way. Exact same type of pain, exact same spot, everything. So we can probably rule out the vaccine? Well, um, I don't know. See, (laughs) Well, I'll tell you why I don't know. Because it is possible the first time this was a reaction to the vaccine because the vaccine is, is made specifically to be similar to COVID. It's just, it, it goes, it's not really a virus and it goes away after, after uh, two days, but it's basically teaching your body to fight COVID. So it, it's possible that uh, there's something I have that makes me prone to this condition and that, uh, yeah, if anything, it's your immune system's response, Yeah, you know, which could be to the, either to the vaccine or to the actual COVID virus. Yeah. Now, this was six months after, this was six weeks after the vaccine or the booster when it happened the first time. Uh, But I will say it's a little strange, the timing here, that this flared up like right when Benjamin was uh, showing the Omicron symptoms and he probably was contagious like two days before that. So this was about the right timing where if my body picked it up from him, let's say Saturday, that on Monday, if my body's fighting it off and I'm getting a reaction from my body fighting it off, and and this is the way it's showing itself, that, that could be it. So I don't know. But it's really hard to say because your body is such a complex system. I mean, the, the only thing I would say is correlation does not equal causation. So we don't, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like a lot of times things happen and the way we are, we're kind of uh, trained to look at similarities, you know, like, oh, well, I just did this, so maybe this caused that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think it, it very well might be, though. It very well could be that if you got that specific reaction, it, it was whatever your body's immune system response is, which would be the same from the, not, not the same, but similar from the vaccine as to actual COVID. And, you know, this is an unfortunate side effect of your body chemistry, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, you know, and also just getting older, you know, about to be 50. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> so know. so it's possible that what's happened here is that something just changed about my body where now I'm prone to getting this issue, whatever it is, and that something that throws it off can bring it on, where it's always kind of lurking in the background to hit me and to do this to me, and, and that when something uh, out of the ordinary occurs, then, then this can be some kind of uh, reaction to an immune response. I don't know. Or it could just be random. It could just be it happened to get me two times in the last uh, month or so, and one happened to be six weeks after the vaccine, and one happened to be two days after my son uh, probably was contagious for Omicron. So who knows? I'll have to see in the future going forward, and and hopefully I don't keep getting this every month. It's going to be a huge pain in the ass, especially if it's as bad as the previous time. This time wasn't as bad, though it was uh, at the worst point. It was getting pretty tough to walk, but I was able to. And and I'll say, being able to walk but in a lot of pain and not being able to walk at all are a tremendous difference. <laughs> that's, that's what I was saying here. Is like I'm not going to take the super strong anti-inflammatory in, unless I actually can't walk, because that stuff gets me sick. So I said, I'm, I'm not going to resort to this unless I actually can't walk. And I didn't get Are you thinking time. about revisiting that ER, maybe giving them a second <laughs> crack at it? <laughs> Fortunately, I don't have to visit anything because uh, it's, it has gone away. And uh, therefore, I can uh, do this here. And 
Yeah, so anyway, I uh, I don't know what to say about what's happening to my foot or what did happen to my foot. Fortunately, it's better. And as far as my son is concerned, you may wonder, how is he? Well, even at the very worst point, his symptoms were never terrible. He's had a mild case. And he's been up and about every day around the house, that is. He hasn't gone anywhere. But he's been up and about around the house. He's been playing on the computer. He's been talking to his friends and playing games with them. And sometimes you can't even tell he's sick. Other times... He goes up and lies down in bed and, like, watches videos on his phone, which he doesn't usually do. So that's... Whenever I see him engaging in unusual behavior, I can tell there's something wrong. So parts of the day it looks like something's wrong, and then parts of the day he looks totally fine. But he admits it's mild. He admits that he's been sicker than this in the past, even at the worst point here. And I told him, you know, my reaction to the second and third vaccine were actually worse than your feeling here, even though mine didn't last as long. But I will say, after six days, he hasn't improved. Mm. He's improved a little bit. I shouldn't say improved. He's improved a little bit, but there's not a significant improvement. So he said the headaches are gone. The sore throat's gotten a little better, but and the fever's gone down a little bit, though it was never very high. But he still mostly has what he had in the first place. So that's a little worrisome. Like, I wouldn't want him to be stuck with this in a long COVID form. But it's too early to say that, only six days in. Yeah, it's too early for that. Yeah. In fact, even two weeks in, you can't say that yet. Because it, I've had colds that last for weeks. And I don't have a long cold. But I've had colds that the, the symptoms have peaked, like, on day 14. And you may say, well, that's a cold. Well, this this is uh, similar to a cold. And in fact, it may have actually merged with a cold coronavirus. So who knows? There's not enough known. I even tried to Google like the length of symptoms for Omicron, and I really couldn't find very much. I think it's just not known enough yet of how, how long to expect yeah. the symptoms. Everyone's going so crazy just trying to deal with it, to triage it, that you know there probably isn't a whole lot of data on it. But there's also... Like some people, I was talking to someone, and some people have misconceptions about the way this whole thing works. Like, if you take the vaccine, are you 100%, you know, you never will get COVID? Well, that's not really how it works because it, let, let's say that you inhale droplets from wherever that have the COVID virus in it, right? If your body has the proper uh, training for its immune system, whether from having COVID before or the vaccines or whatever, it's going to fight it off before you even get any symptoms, usually, right? But that doesn't mean that you never had it in your system. You, you quote-unquote, have COVID when you reach a critical mass of the virus inside of your body. But you can, you can get COVID in terms of ingesting it into your bloodstream and never show any symptoms at all because your body, you know, maybe you didn't get enough of it in there. Maybe it didn't replicate. Maybe your body fought it off or whatever, you know? And because of that, you know, Benjamin's body is probably just fighting it off and it's still kind of lingering there. You know, it hasn't ramped up its uh, serious immune system response. So it's kind of kind of still hanging around. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's very hard to say with all this. And uh, yeah, I know it, it, it can appear to hang around for a while. I'm, I'm not too worried here. I, of course, have the worry any parent's going to have with something like this where there's not everything known about it yet. But I, I did make peace 
once Omicron was known to be as contagious as it is, I did make peace with number one, Ben is very likely to get it. And number two, that I'm semi-likely to get it. Though now I think I'm actually less likely than I believed before, at least at the moment, if I've had it in the house with me for a week and I'm not feeling sick yet. Now it's possible I'm going to say this and wake up tomorrow and feel sick. It's even possible at the end of the broadcast, I'm going to feel sick like what happened to me one time uh, with a dental infection, where at the end of the broadcast I was shivering because I was uh, having such massive chills when I started the broadcast feeling fine. That's what happens when you have a long show. It's likely you have ingested the virus in some form or another if you've been in close proximity to him, but probably not enough of it or it didn't get enough of a headway into your body, you know, either due to your uh, natural immune response or the 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 vaccine induced immune response or whatever it's it's unlikely that you haven't gotten it into that's what your I system think. somehow that's you know? what i think yeah. and ben's mom hasn't gotten sick either and she's actually yeah. spent more time close to him than i have i've kept distance for the most part from him but uh not not as much as i could be i i could be creating more distance but i actually haven't but uh i have avoided being right in his face and spending that much time in the same room as him and things like that so but i have been in the same room with him i've just i've it's just i'm not treating him like it's just normal and and being close to him for long periods of time but i i do think that probably the booster is protecting me here and that's why i haven't gotten it yet and and the longer that pat time that passes that i don't feel symptoms the higher chance is that I'm not going to get this from him because, number one, it probably would have happened already, and number two, he becomes less and less contagious. So the, the yeah. time you're most contagious is in the two days leading up to symptoms and then right at the beginning of symptoms, and then it goes down, and then there's even a belief that towards the end that even if you're showing symptoms that you may not even be contagious at all or very little. So I, the yeah, fact and again, that that's just the amount of the stuff that's in your body yeah you know yeah so uh that it is good that i didn't get a breakthrough case and his mom didn't get a breakthrough case at least not yet and uh, but i did i already made peace with it this might happen and i thought okay well at least with the booster which yes three months ago but still it's a booster and it's not super long time ago uh, i i I figure that i'm not going to get a severe case anyway that it'll just feel like a cold and if that's what happens that's what happens and and I'll deal with it. The real scary things with this were before the vaccine, when I had to face the possibility of permanent damage like lung damage or actually dying from it, uh, both of which are possible at my age, especially the lung damage thing. But even the dying is not so far-fetched that you can just dismiss it. So uh looks like the booster is probably working to protect me here. And also probably worked to protect me at the World Series from Delta. Remember, at the main event of the World Series, I was in the same room with the Delta variant with people who had it for two long days, maybe three long days. But I know for sure day two and day three, there were verified cases in that room that were playing the same time as me. Not at my table, but they were right there in that room with me for 10 plus hours each day. And I didn't get Delta. A lot of people did. I did not get it. So I think the booster probably did that there for me. And so for all the trouble that I had, both the uh, sickness immediately following it and any other side effects I may have had uh, going forward, maybe even like this this foot thing, I will say that it probably does work there. So that is good. 
It's weird, man. Like I said earlier, I know so many people now that, you know, in prior uh, iterations of this virus, I, I, I knew a few people that got it. I knew, I actually knew, I know a couple of people that died from it, but it wasn't as widespread. And now I'm getting, you know, like uh, very similar to your case. My sister's kid picked it up in daycare somewhere and he's in the house. No one else has, has gotten it yet. They're all vaccinated and all that kind of stuff and also i mean thankfully the omicron strain seems to be a whole lot milder you know yeah and that's i thought of that too when ben got it not only is he a good age to get it but yep. he also is getting the much less virulent strain that yep uh is probably much milder anyway so that that's good to know here and uh as long as he gets past this without any kind of uh long-term damage from it which he probably will then it'll be fine and in fact he's not even suffering very much it's uh he's not feeling great but he's not suffering you could see him on the computer playing with his friends and you would never guess he's even sick uh so what's what i've mainly been seeing is uh, yeah he's coughing he he has a sore throat he he uh he goes to bed earlier He's been sleeping longer, and sometime in the middle of the day, he'll go up and just lie down in bed, where before he wouldn't do that. So, uh, I, I I've been much sicker than that many many times, including when I was a kid. So if this is the worst it gets, then, and it's not likely to get worse. He's had this now for about a week, so this is probably as bad as it's going to be. And we'll see if uh, I dodge it. Now I'm not totally out of the woods because. Remember, number one, it's not clear how much he personally is transmitting. And I believe that, at least with Delta and the previous variants, that kids were not transmitting very much. Now, his class led the school in number of cases. There have been five Mm. positive cases since January 4th in his class, which is only 20-something people. No other class has that yet. So there was an outbreak in his class that's just about surely where he got it. Yeah. And that would mean it was probably from one of the kids. So the kids probably are transmitting it unless the teacher has it and is asymptomatic and is transmitting to the kids, which is possible. But it's also possible one of the kids is transmitting. But it's also possible that not everybody transmits much, especially kids. In fact, this has been a theory with COVID the whole way. That's why they talk about super spreaders that it, it's theorized there are some people who massively spread it and some people who don't. And that may be the case with kids too. Yeah. So so uh, it's possible Ben just isn't transmitting much and it's possible if I am in the presence of somebody who is transmitting a lot, then I could get a breakthrough case. And it's also possible that as more time passes since I got the vaccine, that I will become more vulnerable to it as was the case with the second shot. I did wonder about this since it's been three months, if I will have some degradation that will allow breakthrough to occur. And, uh, you know, Calwatt sent me a text that confused me at first this morning. And you can see a copy of what he sent me because he also posted it on the Poker Fraud Alert forum. Uh, said, I tested positive for COVID-19. Now, the only problem with this picture is it's actually showing a negative test. And that's what threw me off at first. So first I see a preview <laughs> on my phone without a picture that he tested positive. I'm like, oh, poor Calwatt. He, he tested positive for COVID-19. Then I take a look at 
what I think is him holding a home test. And I go, wait a minute, I know how these home tests work because Ben just took one and this is negative. So I responded, no, this looks negative to me. And then I brought up the picture again and I saw the point of it. Uh, it's a, a picture of a guy, hopefully not Calwatt, holding up a COVID test that's actually negative. And then if you look in the background, there's gay porn on the screen. So that's that's the that's yeah, the trick. It's, it's one of those things where a buddy of mine got me with that. He's like, "Oh man, I just got." And I, I looked at the picture, and then I like zoomed in. And I'm like, "Oh, you fucker!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's not a graphic picture because it's it's blurry in the background, but you can see enough. And it's like a um, a white guy who is naked, but again, it's blurry. Who's kind of standing in a position behind a black guy, and you know, it's it's. You, you can pretty much assume what's going on in this picture. So, Yeah, I mean, sort of like you, I, I've kind of come to peace with uh, I'm probably going to get the Omicron variant, even though we've been we've been careful and, you know, we've gotten all the vaccines and boosters and all that kind of stuff. But, man, just the way that I'm seeing so many people get it, I, I, I will not be shocked if one of our kids brings it home from, you know, either school or some of the various activities they do or... Who knows what, but I, I think it's probably likely that at some point I'm going to get it, you know? Yeah, that's that's kind of what I've thought here. And as I said... Well, hopefully I, not, but, you know. I, I could already have it. I could just not be feeling the uh, symptoms yet. So, taking a look at the uh, chat room, FTP Jesus says uh, he may have it. He says, clearly expect my PCR to come back positive. Temperature is 101.8. And all the damn symptoms have come back. Good good news, his wife got sick before me and seems to be slowly be getting better. So I hope that he uh, recovers. I know he also, he also had the uh, original COVID, like Eric Benzamokin did. Then CGen asked, how old is your kid? He's 11. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good age to be if you're going to get COVID, whether Omicron or the other variants. That was why when he got what appeared to be Omicron, I wasn't that worried. And Well, I, you know, you're always worried, right? It's your kid, you know what I mean? But you're not as freaked out as you would have been had he contracted something when Delta was running rampant, you yeah, know? Yeah, and that's that's how I uh, felt. And, and I've thought about before, if COVID was the way a lot of other viruses are where it tends to hit kids and old people very badly and everybody in the middle tends to be better off, there would have been way more panic about this if this was killing mm. a lot of kids. But because COVID is like a straight line up regarding how it affects people by age on average, and the older you get, the more vulnerable you are. In fact, I looked it up and I actually see that I'm in the exact midpoint age-wise as far as between Benjamin's age and between a 90-year-old, not only <laughs> I, am I in between exactly age-wise in that range, but the number of times worse that it would be for me to get COVID versus Benjamin age-wise is the exact same number of times that a 90-year-old would be worse off getting it than me. And it is a, a lot of times difference in both cases. It's not like two times, you know. It's like it's like a lot of times worse 
to get COVID as a 50-year-old rather than an 11-year-old, and it's a lot of times worse to get COVID as a 90-year-old rather than a 50-year-old. Yeah, I mean, the, the concerning thing to me is, and we, do, we don't know this, so it's just a matter of speculation, but we don't know that Omicron is going to be the last variant. Like, it, it would be wonderful if it ends up being, and as you were uh, talking about in previous shows, that it is kind of a mix between a regular old cold or flu and, uh, and coronavirus. It would be great if that just kind of worked itself out that way. It would really suck if additional variants started coming along, you know, and who knows? It, it definitely could happen. Yeah, if additional variants come and then somehow it, they're worse as far as uh, like we think, okay, well, Omicron's more mild. Great. Now we're on the path to more mildness and then it reverses. Now, usually it doesn't. Usually it gets less mild as it goes along or at least stays the same. But it has happened before that a worse variant comes. In fact, the, the Spanish flu, which is compared to COVID all the time from 100 years ago, even though that did eventually burn itself out and herd immunity took hold and that was it, the last or the second to last variant was actually the worst one. Mm. And then the last one was much more mild and then herd immunity hap- took hold and uh, between the two of them, it was no longer considered a concern. And I think it eventually became like a regular flu is, is what happened. So hopefully this eventually becomes a regular cold and that's the end of it. Even if it sticks around, it's, it's, it'll have the severity of a regular cold. I kind of think the way it's going to eventually land like permanently is as a similar threat to the flu where you're going to have a number of old people dying every year from it. Oh, yeah. Like like maybe five figures of old people dying each year from COVID or whatever it becomes. But that's what we have with the flu, and that we don't have panics about the flu. We had an 80,000 death flu season in the 1819 season. So in one year, 80,000 people died of the flu, and you barely heard about it. So that shows you once you're used to something, how much tolerance there is, especially when the people dying from it are those who are old and usually uh, also sick with something. Not that it doesn't matter if these people die, but society accepts that a lot more than where you have healthy middle-aged people dying of it, or even healthy people who are like 65 who are dying of it, who are expected to otherwise live a good deal longer. So that that's what's been... The, the scariest thing with COVID is that uh, it has been, in addition to killing mostly people who are old and old plus sick, it's killing people who are middle-aged or a little past middle age who don't have any problems. So that's uh, the scary part. And there's a few unlucky people that are dying who are younger than that. So that's... You know, one of the most amazing stats that i heard about all this stuff and actually doesn't really have much to do with uh covid at all but do you know in in general about how many uh cases of the flu that we see in a in a usually see in a typical year in the united states i'm forgetting that but i did see there was it was almost down to zero in the uh in 2020's season usually about 45 million cases of the flu happen yearly in the united states it's a lot right yeah and you're right that mostly people that are going to die from it are people that are 
already immune. Im, I can't even say the word immune compromised um, or old people or, or whatever. In 2019, when you know there was a whole lot of social distancing and masking and washing you, you, you your mean hands 20, you and mean all 20, that kind you of mean stuff. Mean 2020. I'm sorry. In 2020, there were. 1,455 cases. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that was a tremendous I, reduction. And, that and there, is insane. Yeah. And, and I actually, that, that's why I was saying at the time that the precautions that were being used in 2020 were very effective against the flu, but not that effective against COVID. And, and I said, it makes sense because if you look at the way the flu transmits, uh, it, it transmits in a lot of the same way that, that the common cold does. And if you look at uh, what was being done, people staying away from each other, people not t- people sanitizing surfaces obsessively, and uh, people staying home. So like like a lot of these things came together to where the flu had a hard time transmitting. There's also a second theory why that was happening is that there's some viral competition that yeah. that the that COVID being more transmissible was able to dominate the flu and and suppress it. So yeah, that was interesting how the flu almost well, disappeared. It, it, in that it's state. probably, as with most things, it's probably a multitude of factors. But it is, I mean, it does starkly show this is how diseases spread. You know, or at least these, uh, this characteristic type of flu, that's how it spreads. Is the, as you said, the, the social contact, the, you know, through surfaces and, and all that kind of stuff. And all the things that we were doing reduce i mean that is just ridiculous to go from 45 million to a thousand if like 1500 cases that's incredible yeah, yeah that now, was... if if omicron is more similar to the flu in terms of how it spreads and that is you know maybe that's why it is is spreading so much more quickly it's much more vir- virulent in that sense i, I mean i guess we're going to be doing the, that kind of stuff more you know yeah well i, I think eventually we're going to get to the point that People are going to just go back to living normally and just accept it's going to happen. As long, once people have the belief that, like the flu, unless they're already sick or very old, that it's not going to kill them and they'll just get Do it. Do you get your flu shot every year? You know, it's funny you ask that. I actually don't. I, I have. I, the last time I got a flu shot was in 2010. And I, I haven't gotten it because I wasn't worried about it. I, I hardly ever got the flu. I got a lot of colds, but I, I hardly got the flu ever. And before I had kids, I rarely got sick at all. <laughs> Once I had kids that were mixing with a whole lot of other people, I was getting sick more often, and we started getting the the flu shot, you know, just on an annual basis. Like, oh, it's just a thing that I do, you know. And you and you're right. Maybe COVID is going to be like that. That it's going to be just a thing that a certain por- portion of the population is just going to get their yearly covid shot you know or whatever it is and other people will just say ah fuck it and they they won't even deal with it yeah i might change that but just because i'm getting older and so i'm not quite in the zone yet of danger from the flu but i'm I'm getting closer to it so i i did plan like once i get old that i'm going to start doing the flu shot uh, every year but i i might start that now that i'm crossing 50 we have like uh uh shopping place we go to very often it lets people in the northeast will know of wegmans right so we go in there it's kind of like whole foods right you can just walk in and get your shot you know so what we would do is we would just walk in and do it once a year you know no big yeah. deal to, to show you how uncommon it was for me to get the flu even though i do get a lot of colds 
I hadn't had a fever in about a decade until I got my fever in uh, 2021 from the second COVID shot. That was It was so unfamiliar to me, the feeling of even having a fever, that I had almost forgotten what it was like because it had been like over 10 years since I last had one. And then... Uh, you know- Sorry, go ahead. So I ended up with, with three fevers, though, in the year 2021. Mm. Two from the COVID shots and, and one from a dental infection. So it was funny to get <laughs> three times in one year and, th- and all of them fairly high, where I hadn't had one in like a decade. So I really just wasn't getting the flu. And that was another reason I wasn't motivated to get the flu shot, because it just wasn't happening to me. So I said, okay, well, I, I don't seem to be getting it. So <laughs> for whatever reason, so F it. But I, I, I probably will start doing that and... The only reason I got it in 2010 was because I that was when Ben was born. I wanted to protect him because a yep. little infant is vulnerable. That's the only reason I got the flu shot that year. You know, it, it may sound weird, and obviously no one likes being sick, but one of the things, and I, I really, I very rarely get sick, but one of the things I like about being sick is what it feels like when the virus goes away or whatever it is, because, man, the the difference is so stark. You know, it's like without... There can be no shadow without light and vice versa. The contrast between the way that I feel when I'm sick and then the way that I feel normally is so stark that I actually, I really like that feeling, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And what's interesting, though, is after you've been sick, at least this happens with me, if you try to think back to how you were feeling and what it was like, you start having a hard time picturing it well. And and this is actually something your, your brain does on purpose in order to get you over the trauma of being sick, that you you are it's kind of programmed not to remember the feeling very well until you experience it again. So you can kind of have an idea, but you more have an idea of like what you were thinking as it was happening, not the actual feeling itself. And uh, I, I even a short time later, I, I kind of have a hard time picturing it. And that's why like with a fever, since it had been like a decade, I, I really couldn't even picture anymore what it felt like to have a fever. And then when it when I got one, I go, oh yeah, this <laughs> this feels like a fever, I think. This this is kind of what I remember from all that time ago. And yep. It, 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 I took my temperature and there it was. So yeah, but yeah, I I know the feeling because when you're feeling sick, then you're all you can think about is wow, I, all you want is to feel better and it's gonna be great. Everything's gonna be great. And it's going to be so wonderful for this to be gone. And so when you have that moment and everything feels good, then yeah, it, it makes you happy at least temporarily that it's no longer there. So I, I totally get what you're saying there. I'll let you guys know about what happens with Benjamin, which hopefully by next week's show, I will tell you that everything's gone. That there's no trace of it anymore. And that I never got sick. Hopefully I'll be able to say these things. I want to give you an update on the Mickey situation because a lot of you listened to that interview. It was part of last week's show. It was an interview I did on January 4th but didn't play until we did our show on January 8th. And I told everybody it was pre-recorded. I told everybody that I had to do this with zero notice. I actually had zero notice. What it apparently happened was he listened to the three-hour show I did the previous week where I talked about him at length, and then he was fired up having listened to it. So he 
messaged me back on Instagram. Remember, I had in, I had messaged him back in December if he'd like to come on. He was kind of lightly agreeing in theory. It didn't look like it was going to happen, and it probably wasn't going to happen. But then he listened to the show and got fired up, and he wanted to respond. He didn't say that specifically, but it's kind of what it looked like happened because he did tell me in the messages that he listened to the show, and he said, come on, let's do it. Let's do it right now. Let's talk right now. So I could have said, no, 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 the show is on Saturday. Well, we'll do it Saturday. But by Saturday, he may have changed his mind. So I decided to grab it while I could. It's always nice when you have time to prepare, but sometimes you just don't. So as I mentioned last week in the preamble to the interview, I did this with no preparation and had to come up with all the questions off the top of my head. And that's what I did. Now, some people noticed from listening to the interview that at some points he was rude to me. And he was. And some people asked me, why did you take that? Why didn't you respond? Why didn't you make nasty comments back to him? And the answer was because that wasn't the point of the interview. It wasn't a pissing contest. It wasn't uh, an opportunity for me to get in zingers or to try to make someone look bad. No, the, the point of the interview was to get Mickey on the show. I'm talking about Mickey Moz, by the way, the guy who's been claiming for the past uh, two months or so to be crushing the casinos for millions of dollars in Vegas. He's made a lot of claims on Instagram and gotten a lot of attention. He also appeared on Hustler Casino Live playing poker for very high stakes. He's 30 years old. So I wanted to get him on here and have him answer my questions in his own words. I already had a three-hour segment talking all about him and playing him answering other people's questions, but I wanted him to answer my questions. And I was willing to take the insults, and I was willing to take the rudeness because my feelings weren't hurt. It doesn't matter to me if he likes me or doesn't like me or he wants to say rude things to me. It doesn't bother me. The important thing to me was that we had him on here and that people got to hear his answers in his own words. And despite the rudeness which occurred sometimes, he did answer the questions. Now, does that mean that I am a convert and now I fully believe everything he said? No. And as I said to him at the end of the interview, when he asked me, remember, the whole thing ended with him asking me a question. And basically he asked, was I transparent? I meaning him. He wanted to know if he was transparent in his answers to me. And I think he was looking for me to say, yeah, you've, you've answered everything I'm convinced now. But what I told him back was that he did answer everything in detail. And I give him credit for that. But he did not provide any proof. And he did not show me anything, which I can say, oh, okay, well, this changes the game. This totally changes my mind, or this totally erases all doubt, or most of the doubt, because now you've proved yourself. He just, he gave answers, but he gave answers that were impossible to verify. So while these answers were interesting to hear, I wasn't giving anything verifiable. Now, something we talked about that could be verifiable would be him meeting up with me and allowing me to pick which casino statements I want to see and then have him bring them up on his phone or his computer and show me. And he agreed to do this in the interview. 
And that was another reason, by the way, that I didn't want to have an angry back and forth with him, was that I, I wanted to maintain the possibility to do this. But I also knew that there was a decent chance that he would change his mind about this and either refuse or just uh, not set anything up. So unfortunately, it is uh, questionable, to say the very least, that he is uh, ever going to do this. On January 5th, the day after the interview, but not before it aired on here, but the day actually after we actually did it, he sent me a long thing on Instagram and in the private messages about uh, basically he still felt I was too skeptical of him and was saying that, oh, you know, people just don't believe me. It's not fair. Sort of along those lines. <laughs> I, I, I did say to him that he has to understand that there's a lot of people who bullshit in the social media world. So if you are coming forward with claims that are pretty extraordinary in order to separate yourself from them, if you are telling the truth and you need to show proof, otherwise people are going to lump you in with them, regardless of whether you're telling the truth or not. Unfortunately, I didn't get and, an answer to that. And, and Druff, just the whole thing <laughs> just strains. It, it, it just doesn't make any sense that, this game that has been set up by the house to be negative EV for anyone who plays it, that someone has figured out after so many people have spent so many years, you know, trying to figure out angles and stuff around this, that he's figured out a way to do it. Like, it just doesn't, it strains credibility. It's just crazy. Yeah, and, and, and you get stuck in this endless loop where you say, well, show me how you're doing it. And he says back... Well, I can't show you because this is a, a very lucrative secret. Why would I want to show anybody and have the casinos <laughs> do something to counter it? And that that is a good point if he really is beating them. But the problem is you could also not be beating them and give the same answer. So that's where you get stuck where he's not proving anything, but then he also has a good reason why he can't show you. But then you're still stuck at the same point where you're not seeing any proof. So anyway, he didn't answer what I said there. And then... I, a few days later, I sent him a message asking, when can we meet up? I'd really like to see this. I'd really like to take you up on your offer. And he didn't respond. So he seems to have stopped answering me. Now, I thought that in December that he'd never appear on this show. I even said so, that it seemed like he stopped answering me and he's not going to appear, even though he, he didn't say no. But then he appeared. So you never know. If Mickey is hearing this, I would like to meet you in person and see these statements. And I will agree beforehand not to divulge any actual numbers. And we can hammer out all the terms before we do anything. So you can refuse to meet me until I agree to X and Y. The only things I won't agree to is I'm not going to agree to lie. And I'm not going to agree to let you pick what you show me. I want to be able to pick what I can see. Otherwise, the whole thing's pointless. So those are the only things that I'm demanding, but I don't have to disclose figures and there's other stuff that I can agree not to disclose and we can get all that hammered out before we meet. So your privacy isn't violated. I'm not looking to violate your privacy. Uh, but, and, and if you show me that, then I'll say, okay, well at the very least you've got win loss statements that I'm picking that add up to a gambler who has won. As I also said, that isn't proving you're winning because those things could be manipulated in various ways. I've seen people do it before. I've actually witnessed people doing it. 
not me. I haven't done it myself, but I've witnessed others doing it. So the, that's not ironclad proof, but that's already part of the way there. He did say he's not going to show me a strategy, but okay. If he's really got a winning strategy, it's understandable why he won't show me. But I would at least like to see winning statements at most of these casinos. He doesn't have to be a winner at every single one. But if they all add up to be a winner over a lot of hands, when you put it all together, and there's a lot of a sample size there, then I'll say, okay, at least according to these statements, he is beating the game, and that's pretty interesting. So I would like to see that. But his non-response over the last several days is making it look like it's not going to happen. Now, does he owe me this? No. Does he have a right to change his mind after our interview where he said he'll do it? Yeah. Am I disappointed that he is now not responding as far as uh, showing me? Yeah, but I'm not shocked. And he may have just decided he doesn't want to show me for whatever reason. And if I do get to see them, I will let you guys know, and I'll tell you as much as I can according to what I've agreed to be able to say. I think he wanted another Spencer moment with you, Druff. I think he, I think he just wanted you to be like, oh, wow, this is, wow, uh, yeah, he, he's actually winning. He convinced me, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, on one hand, I understand his point that I'm not someone he has to convince. There's There's no reason he needs my approval. And I'm not even the highest profile person in poker or gambling. So why me? Why would he convince me? Why would he put the time in to convince me? And he doesn't have to. Nobody has to. But he did offer on that interview. So I, I, I hope he's still open to doing that. If he's not, then I guess he won't. And everybody can make their own judgment about the situation. And I'm not going to continue really covering this very much unless there's something new to say. And you know, people are sending me these things all the time that uh, he's posting on his Instagram. And I see them because I follow him on Instagram. And I- I'm not going to every week come on and say, oh, guess what Mickey posted on Instagram? Like, it's kind of all along the same line. So if there's any interesting Mickey news that happens that's different from before, then I'll discuss it out here. Other than that, you know, if it's just the same thing over and over, you probably won't hear about it for a while. But if, uh, if anything comes up, especially if he responds to me and we get something arranged, I'll let you guys know. Just wanted to give you that little update. I hope you guys enjoyed the interview, especially based upon the fact that I had to put it together in my head as I was doing it. So I hope that was something you liked having on this show. And at least we have that. We'll always have that. Okay, so... Uh, Calwatt, how are you feeling regarding... Uh, being awake at the moment uh, i'm feeling like i've got a mild case of the omicron but i'm hanging in there okay would you like to hear the druffy time theater story about the cable company or would you like to talk about the update about the cuban cheaters that are added again uh tell you what let's do the uh cuban cheaters and then probably i'll pass out and and listen to the uh druffy time theater as i nod off how okay. about that very good that's what i thought All right, so if you guys remember, towards the end of 2020, a guy named Kanish showed up on Poker Fraud Alert in the Scam Scandals and Shadiness Forum and created a thread called Two Cubans Cheating at Live PLO Throughout USA. Now, that was actually accurate the way he was describing it because they really were going from poker room to poker room 
across the U.S., not just in California, not just in one state or two states or three states. They were really on a tour across the U.S., poker rooms large and small, and they were cheating. We went cheating across the USA in that hold'em and PLO wait. We will mark cards every day. We went cheating, cheating, cheating across the USA. Well, we got thrown out too early, so we say. Had to go, couldn't have our way. So we found a new casino, friends. Some brand new cards for you. You know I think they're catching on. I think it's time we flew. Cause we are cheating across the USA. A fair game is not what we'll play. We might collude. We might soft play. We went cheating, cheating, cheating across the USA. And apparently some tweets were found from a year prior where these same guys, presumably, were caught at commerce doing the exact same thing. Christy Arnett, for example, which was uh, a year to the day before this thread from Kanish. So this tweet from Christy was on October 26th, 2019, not 2020 when this thread was created, wrote, playing 510 at Commerce and two Cuban guys at my table were escorted out and Floor picked up their chips. Didn't think it was for cheating because they were both wailing around and losing, but apparently they were marking cards. And then a girl named Sasha said, me and other PLO regs have had suspicions for a while, but can never confirm. They finally got caught, but there must be more to it. Two Cubans always play the same table, always request to sit in diagonal positions from one another, both with hats and headphones. One has a large device in pocket. Ryan Feldman, who we had on the show, of course, uh, he's the one in charge of a Hustler Casino Live these days, played with him a budge. This is back on October 26, 2019. He's tweeting this. Same seats, very suspicious but they won some out-of-line hands that don't correlate with marking. They definitely played tight, 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 and then random spew where they got a bluff through or got lucky. They won a lot, but not always. There were some red flags, but I don't think card marking was it. Could be something else, could be nothing. Various other people showed up in the thread to say that they have played with these Cubans before and had the same suspicions. And these were different people around the country. I got a text from someone who deals poker in Texas that very shortly after we did the Poker Fraud Alert segment about them on this show, and Kanish came on here to explain everything that he was alleging, that these Cubans showed up at this Texas poker room where this guy was dealing, and this guy recognized from the description of what was going on and the fact that these guys were Cuban that it was probably the same dudes, and reported it to management who threw them out. And it was 
very, very likely to be them. So many things matched. This is a listener in Dallas. He said it's uh, known how they're pulling off the cheating, but he didn't get that info from management. That's what he said at the time in December 2020. This was the guy from Dallas, not Kanish. But that they grabbed the deck after kicking out the Cubans and were analyzing it. So I hadn't really heard very much about this since then. And I wondered every so often, are these guys still cheating? Well, apparently, yes. A guy named Tim Timbo123, and he's on Twitter as Rob Brown Pro, exactly as it sounds, R-O-B-B-R-O-W-N Pro, made an update post. And these guys have uh, apparently moved to a different state. These Cuban thieves made their way to Chaser's Poker Room in Salem, New Hampshire. They were marking cards, stole thousands from players, and management is not doing a thing to help they stole from. The, it's the same deal. Sat in seat one to see dealer's deck of cards easier. Chaser's Poker Room owners don't care about their customers and players will avoid the room unless they step up. And then this guy actually made a video of them on December 15th and posted it to Twitter. So I'm going to play this. I know you won't be able to see it. That video didn't really have very much to describe, but you, see, you clearly see one of their faces. And then uh, another tweet from him. This Cuban dude is a professional cheat making his way around local New Hampshire card rooms robbing players. So according to this Rob Brown person, who again posted this Tim Timbo123, that they're now jumping around rooms in New Hampshire. And I think this is their MO, that they realize they can't pull this off for very long, so they either run off before they get caught, when they think there's some suspicion about them, or they do get caught and kicked out, and then they move on. There's just so many poker rooms in the U.S. that they can keep traveling around and are counting on the fact that people don't know because people tend to only know what's going on in their local area. So to remind you guys, they're currently in New Hampshire, according to Rob Brown, and they tend to sit in seat one and seat six. They seem to be marking cards. One of them seems to have a large device with him. I think the guy in seat one. And they seem to make a big deal about always being in these seats diagonal from one another. So that has to be part of it. <laughs> That's not suspicious at all. Yeah. So, so if you see this, if you see Cuban guys sit down where they're insistent upon being diagonal from one another, or you just sit down at the table and they are, and one of them seems to have some device with him, uh, I, I would report this. And even... Go look at the thread on Poker Fraud Alert and the Scam Scandals and Shadiness Forum and, and show them on your phone. Show the staff there on your phone what they're suspected of. And now there's even a picture of one of them, a very clear picture of one of the guys in this tweet by Rob Brown Pro. So you can even see clearly what one of them looks like. And, you know, I think most poker room managers will at least kick them out seeing all this. You may have a hard time ever getting any money back. But I think this is convincing enough that to where most managers of the card room will get rid of them. Definitely speak up if you see them, because they're still doing it. I don't know their names, but there's been so many different complaints 
all saying the same thing and it's from all across the US and it really does seem like they stay in one spot as long as they can before moving on so they must have something going that works pretty well and the more the word gets out the better and look this show had an impact in Texas where someone in the Dallas area who listens to this show recognized the pattern immediately and had them ejected we need more of that we need more of the word spread but definitely if you see it you should say something don't be afraid don't go oh i i, I don't want to be racist I, I don't want to be uh falsely accusing someone it, it's a pretty specific pattern and they're not changing it so if you see this pattern it's not normal and look for that device look for one of them having a device on him they're both having headphones on probably to communicate with one another so if they both got headphones on both diagonal from each other. One seems to have a device on, both Cuban. Look at the picture also. Then you're probably being cheated. And you should say something to poker room management. Hopefully one of these days, th- these guys will get arrested and that'll be the end of this. I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. Like I would think at Commerce they would have arrested them. That's what's surprising to me. I understand these little rooms, they may not want to deal with it. But I would think Commerce if they were convinced enough that these guys were cheating to throw them out, why not arrest them? Especially if it was like for marking cards. Commerce does have the right to detain them to bring the police there. And you would think that at that point they could, uh, they could examine the devices they have on them. Or I, I would think there would be something that could be done at that point. It's different than an after-the-fact allegation when someone isn't using devices or anything. And it's your word against the other person's and even if the card room believes you and kicks them, there isn't much they can do from a uh, perspective of calling law enforcement. But these guys, I would think there's enough here to get them. So you you may want to suggest, if you see these guys, not just to have them thrown out, but maybe to have them watched and then to have the deck grabbed by management and then have security detain them and call the local police and confiscate their devices, hopefully, and uh, have those examined. And then these guys can go to jail for this this can be over so be on the lookout for this because no poker room is safe from them now it may kind of be like covid that once you have it you're immune for a while but also like covid you're not immune forever so they may come back to the scene of the crime to some of these places especially when they run out of rooms okay so i want to do uh druffy time theater is this to be the end of the line for you calwatt yeah i think i'm gonna listen in druff Okay, well, thank you for coming on this late, and uh, thank you for participating as always, and uh, I will talk to you later. All right, man. All right, good night. Hope hope Benjamin gets better. Thank you. Good night. Later. I was about to tell him I hope he gets better from COVID, and then I realized it's gay COVID, and it's not real. Well, you know what it's time for now. Hello, Ken and Nigel Fabersham here. It is time for Trophy Time Theater. Every week now, he seems to be telling some sort of story that occurred before. Maybe it's some battle with a, a company where he feels wronged him in some way. Maybe it's uh, some ludicrous story from his past. Uh, what, what, what is this? A phone call coming in. Interrupting. Uh, bollocks. Uh, um, uh, who's calling here at interrupting Trophy Time Theater? I barely get any time on this show, and now now I've got you calling in here and interrupting the whole thing. Uh, who's calling, please? Free the poker bunny. Free the poker bunny. Have you gone mad? What you, we're not we're not 
imprisoning anyone here. Oh, my bad. Okay, well, it's rather nonsense he does this. Free the poker bunny. As, as if we're imprisoning her. We, we, we haven't done anything here. We, we, we haven't uh, put anyone in any sort of confinement. What are you talking about? All right. Continuing. Oh, now I lost my train of thought. Oh, bollocks. Thank you, Colonel Fabersham. Sorry for that uh, interruption. This is Druffy Time Theater, where I tell you stories from my past only for your entertainment. This stuff is not newsworthy or relevant to your life in any way. This week on Druffy Time Theater, I'm going to tell you how a $14 mistake on my cable bill in the 2000s led to a massive cover-up attempt by a department there and what I did about it. Here's the story. I had recently changed my plan or something like that for my cable company, and I didn't change companies or anything. It was the same company I had before, but I think I changed something, and the bill came $14 too high. And it didn't make any sense because I had not switched anything. I hadn't switched the plan to be anything more expensive. So sometimes what they'll do when you switch plans is since you're paying a month in advance for your other plan, what they do is they charge you a month in advance for the new plan, but they credit you back for the time you didn't use of the previous plan. So if both plans are the same cost as this was, then it should break even because you're getting an extra charge in advance, but then you're getting a credit for the same number of days that you had already paid for that you're not going to be using. So while you see an ugly bill with a lot of charges and credits, the whole thing breaks out even, or at least it should. However, cable companies and cell phone companies, by the way, are notoriously bad at this. And often when you switch plans, an error occurs and you end up with a higher bill. And customer service has a very hard time explaining this because they do know that you are charged a month in advance. So they always tell you, look, Whenever you sign up for a new plan, either as a new customer or just you go to a new plan as an existing customer, we always have to charge you a month in advance, which kind of doubles your bill. But that's just the way it works. And at the end, it'll all work out. And then you say, well, wait a minute, though, I was already on a plan. So since I paid a month in advance before, I should get that money back and it should break even. They have a very hard time understanding this relatively simple concept. And I've had many frustrating debates about this over the years with the cable company and with cell phone companies whenever I switch plans. And if you ever run into this, never back down. You're always in the right. You've just got to get someone intelligent enough on the phone, usually a supervisor, but sometimes even they're confused. But never back down. Just keep insisting that this shouldn't be the case. Otherwise, you're getting ripped off. I'm not sure how this keeps happening because it's computerized, but somehow the errors are made and this occurs fairly often. So I assume this is what happened. And by this point, I was familiar with it. Even in the mid-2000s, I was familiar with this happening. It had happened to me several times before. So I didn't think it was a big deal. It was uh, $14 extra on my bill. You may say, $14? Come on. You're, you're going to make a big deal over $14? Yes, I, I do not want to pay $14 to the cable company that they don't deserve. If I should not have to pay this $14, I don't want to pay it. Now, if it's 14 cents, yeah, I'm not going to call up about that, but $14, I'm definitely going to call up and say something. 
So I thought it was as simple as calling up there, explaining the situation, maybe getting a supervisor on the phone, and uh, getting this $14 taken off. I was sure that the end result would be that. So I called up, and I got a woman who sounded, I'd say, like late 50s, if I had to guess. And I was in my early to mid-30s at this point. And she seemed nice enough, and I explained the situation to her. But what started to get frustrating was that instead of trying to look into what this was, she kept trying to come up with excuses for it. Basically wanted to say anything to me, so I'd say, oh, okay, that makes sense, and hang up the phone. She didn't feel like doing her job. She just wanted to get me to accept it and hang up. So the first thing she said to me was, well, I can already see what your next month's bill is going to be, and it's going to be back to normal. So this $14 is a one-time thing. I said, okay, good, but I still want the $14 back. She said, no, no, but I told you it's a one-time thing. It's not going to happen again. And I said, and I told you I shouldn't have to pay it. It's $14 too much. And she says, yeah, but it's only once, so... You know, why why does it really matter? (laughs) I hate that answer. I hate that answer. If it's only once, why does it matter? It's only this much. Why does it matter? Okay, you pay it for me then. I didn't say that to her, but that's what I was thinking. But I said, look, I want to pay a correct bill. This bill is $14 too high. And while I'm happy, it's not going to happen again next month. And I believe you, we need this month corrected. So... She looked at the bill and very quickly said to me, oh, it's probably tax. I said, what do you mean it's probably tax? Well, you know, there's tax on every month's bill. I go, I know that. I've been paying the same bill every month, and this one is $14 higher. The bills I was paying beforehand also had tax. Well, maybe the tax is higher, she said. I said, no, it's not, because you told me next month's bill, which is about to generate, is going to be back to the original amount. Well, maybe it was just tax this month. I said, do you have any information that there was a special tax this month only that makes people's bill $14 higher? Well, no, but maybe that's what it was. So I'm getting dumb answers like that, where she's hoping I'll say, oh, okay, well, yeah, maybe it was that. Okay, well, it's only this month, so no problem, goodbye. Now, keep in mind, she was fully authorized at any point to take the $14 off, even if she couldn't understand why it happened. They can give something called a courtesy credit for that amount of money. She couldn't give a courtesy credit for $1,400 and maybe even not 140 but 14 she definitely can. And there will be no questions asked. She won't get in any trouble. So even if she can't figure out what happened, she can just give that and end it. But she didn't want to do it. I don't know why. And she was friendly enough, but she clearly did not want to budge as far as fixing it. Then she said, oh, I see what it is. It was proration. So then I explained to her why it's not proration and why changing my plan shouldn't matter. And we had that frustrating conversation. And she couldn't get past the fact that I changed my plan. I said, well, do you see the cost of my plan is the same as the previous plan, right? She said, yes. I said, okay. And you see that next month's bill is going to be back to the original amount I was paying. So that proves that, right? She said, yes. I said, okay. And I paid a month in advance originally, right? She said, yes. I said, and I'm paying a month in advance now, right? She said, yes. I said, then why should I have to pay an additional $14 for changing to a identical price plan in the middle? Well, it's just this one time, she says. I'm not back to this again. So we went back and forth, back and forth. I don't know. We probably did this for about 15, 20 minutes. 
she just would not budge on this. She started to get more irritated. The fake friendliness started to disappear. I was getting irritated with her, too. But I wasn't going off on her or anything, but I was telling her very firmly that I'm simply not going to accept this $14 unless she can either show me specifically why it happened and have it make sense or just take it off. It's, I said, it's got to be one of these two things. I'm not going to accept any guess as to what this is, and I'm not going to accept proration as an answer because that doesn't make any mathematical sense. But she kept trying to go back to it next month it's not going to happen she just didn't want to fix it so then i said okay well apparently we're not going to solve this here between me and you can i speak to your supervisor please so she said the supervisor is going to tell you the same thing now that's another thing i hate i hate when they say the supervisor is going to tell you the same thing they can't predict the future they can't they don't know what the supervisor is going to say i can't tell you how many times i've been told the supervisor is going to tell you the same thing only to get the supervisor who agrees with me and doesn't tell me the same thing so i said no i'd like to speak to the supervisor anyway and i don't believe they'll tell me the same thing i think once they see what i'm talking about here they'll take it off so she says hold on and puts me on hold and i get the hold music so i'm on hold for a good 10 to 15 minutes, which is a very long time. Now, sometimes the supervisors aren't available for a while, so I wasn't throwing up red flags just yet, but I was already suspicious because she seemed very irritated with me and she seemed kind of not wanting to get that supervisor for me. And she sounded very frustrated as she put me on hold. Like, okay, I'll get you one and hold music and then I'm sitting here for 15 minutes. But then she came back. And she said, yeah, I just asked the supervisor and uh, he agrees with me and says that you're not doing any further credit. Is there anything else I can help you with? I said, wait a minute. That's not what I asked for. I didn't ask you to present this to the supervisor and get an answer. I asked you speak to the supervisor. She says, well, yeah, but he already told me that he looked at and agrees with me. I go, well, I don't know what you said to him, but that's not right. So again, I'm not looking for you to present this to the supervisor, I want to speak to the supervisor. And she started to sound a little bit nervous. Uh, um, um, oh, okay, please hold, I'll transfer you. I'll put on hold. 10 minutes pass. 20 minutes pass. 30 minutes pass. 40 minutes pass. <laughs> 50 minutes pass. Now, you might think I'm insane holding like this. Well, not as as insane as it sounds, because what I actually did was after about uh, 15 minutes, I put it on speaker kind of softly, but loud enough to where I could hear if anybody comes on the phone, put it on like speaker and mute, and then just turned on the TV and I was watching TV. Uh, So I, I was doing something else, basically, as it was on hold with hold music in the background softly. So other than the slight annoyance of the hold music, I had some stuff I had recorded and I wanted to watch from the days before. So this really wasn't any burden on me. And I did this because I wanted to see how long she'd leave me on hold. Because while I'm on hold, she can't take any other calls. So that means she's just goofing off and doing nothing. If she's putting me on endless hold, I want to see how long she's willing to leave it that way and risk getting in trouble. 
because obviously she can't justify why she's on a call that lasts hours and hours. So 50 minutes had passed. Then 60 minutes passed. 70 minutes. 80 minutes. Then 90 minutes on hold were reached. 90 minutes on hold. (laughs) You think that supervisor was ever going to come? I have a feeling I would still be on hold about 16 years later if I didn't hang up at that point. But I felt like 90 minutes was enough. So I hung up. And I decided that I'm going to get this looked into. You see, I was aware that things were logged at the very least. I wasn't sure if they were recorded, but I knew that things were logged. And that that company had the ability to look at the length of calls. So I wanted the time to pass long enough to where there's no way she could justify being on hold that long with a customer without ever telling a supervisor about it. The entire length of the call wasn't just that 90 minutes. That was the time I was on hold. But remember, I was on hold for 15 minutes originally when she supposedly went to go talk to the supervisor and came back and told me he agreed with her. And I was also on the phone for about 15 or 20 minutes originally arguing with her, meaning the call was over two hours. And I believed that there was no supervisor ever consulted. I believed that it was only just her. And when it was on hold, that she was just taking a break. And I wanted this to be looked into. Now, you may think, what an asshole. Why are you doing this to her? You're going to get her in trouble. You're going to get her fired for doing this. Well, possibly. But if so, good. Because I didn't do anything to deserve this. The $14 was incorrect. 100% it was incorrect. I knew it was incorrect. She could have fixed this in a second, even without understanding it. And she wouldn't. She dug her heels in and wouldn't do it. Didn't want to do her job. And then punished me with endless hold. First lied about talking to a supervisor, presumably and then punished me within this hold. Now, that's not doing her job. That's mistreating the customer. If you're going to mistreat the customer, the customer has the right to report a true and correct version of what really occurred to the supervisor or manager who then decides what to do. This isn't reporting an honest mistake. This is reporting something malicious. I was maliciously placed on endless hold, and I was probably maliciously lied to about the supervisor. So I don't feel bad about getting someone like that fired. I think someone like that should get fired and should be replaced by someone who will not do that. It's good for the customer that that type of person is replaced by a better employee. And there was no reason for this. And I was not rude to her. There was just no reason to do this to me. She just didn't want to. She didn't like that I wouldn't accept her BS explanations. And because I wouldn't give up, she decided to punish me. So you can't do that. If you, if you try to use your job to punish me, I'm going to make sure that your supervisor or manager knows about it. It's that simple. And that's, that's only fair. And I can't fire anybody if they don't work for me. All I can do is tell the manager or supervisor of the company what happened. And then they can investigate. And if they see I'm telling the truth, then they can do what they think is appropriate. So I decided that's what I'm going to do. So I called up the cable company the next day between eight and five and I got a department that could look into this 
And I said, what do you guys do here as far as tracking? Do you record calls? They said, unfortunately, no. Which, by the way, almost all places these days do. Keep that in mind. But back in those days, only some places did. Unfortunately, this cable company did not record calls, but they did have in their computer the details of the call. So I told the whole story to the person in this department that I was speaking with. I think it was the retentions department. And I said, what can you access? What can you see right now? So she brought it up and said, yeah, you know what? I see the length of the call is over two hours. And I said, can you picture how this could have been a legitimate circumstance that I would have been on the phone with her for over two hours? What could we have been talking about for over two hours if it didn't happen the way I said it did? And the person at the retention department said, yeah, I cannot picture one. I have to think that this is very suspicious, that something wrong happened here. I said, okay, can you refer this to her direct supervisor. They said, well, we can submit this as a complaint. I said, no, 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 I don't want you to submit this as a complaint. Can you have her direct manager, the person she reports to, call me and discuss this with me? So they said, we'll see what we can do. We'll try. So I hope for the best. Wasn't sure if anything was going to happen. Well, a few days later, I got a call. The call was from her immediate manager. Yes, my opportunity was here to get answers and to get someone comeuppance for slamming me on endless hold in a malicious fashion. So I told him the story. And I said to him, when you investigate this, while I am not going to tell you how to do your job, I would like to know, and I think as the customer who was the victim of this, I have a right to know, what was happening during those 90 minutes on hold? Why was I on hold 90 minutes? Can you ask her why I was on hold those 90 minutes? And obviously, you'll be able to see that I must have been because the call took over two hours. And I know you, I know you can see that in your system because they told me that at the retentions department. Well, he was very nice. And he said he's going to look into this. He said to him, this sounds pretty bad. That if it really did take more than two hours, that phone call, obviously something wrong was done. And that he's going to thoroughly investigate this and get back to me. And he couldn't have sounded more friendly and serious about looking into it. And I said, okay, great. This is better than I was hoping for. He promised to call me back within 48 hours. Now, I did not demand this. He just promised this on his own within 48 hours. He said, give me 48 hours. I'm going to talk to her. I'm going to look at what the computer says. I'm going to get to the bottom of this, I promise, and I'll give you a call back. 48 hours passed, and I did not get a callback. Well, I thought, I'm not going to hold him to this. This isn't urgent. I'll give him a little more time. Another day passed, no call. Another day passed, no call. Another day passed, no call. Well, I still wasn't smelling conspiracy yet. I thought, all right, well... The guy has other things to do. He may have just forgotten me. So I called him. I did have his number. I did get that from him before ending the call. I called him up. He didn't answer. I got his voicemail. I left a message, a very polite message. And I asked, can you please call me back? And I even said something like, you said to call him 48 hours, but it's no problem. I just would like to know what happened here. So if you could please call me as soon as possible, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. No callback. 
Another day, no callback. Another day, no callback. Now I started to worry that they wanted this to go away. I wasn't sure why, but it looked like he didn't want to call me back. So I called back and left him another message. Hello, I don't know if you got my last message, I said, but you said you'd call me back within 48 hours. It's now been about a week and a half, and I haven't heard from you. Can you please let me know the results of this investigation? Now, you may say, I don't have a right to know the results of the investigation. And I will say back to you, they're not compelled by law to tell me anything, but as a customer, I do have a right to expect an explanation as to what happened. I don't have a right to expect to know if they fired her or disciplined her. That's company private, and they usually won't tell you that. But telling me this is what we determined happened or yes, we determined that uh, some things happened in that phone call that were not appropriate and we're taking action or whatever. Like That I have a right to know basically what happened to me. I don't have a right to know what happened to the employee as a result. And when I say a right, I don't mean a legal right. They can just say PayPal style, we're not telling you anything. But usually the way companies handle it is they will tell you what they found occurred but they won't tell you what was done to the employee in question. Though sometimes they will too. But they, I never expect them to tell me what they're going to do to that employee. If they tell me, they tell me. But anyway, I wasn't getting a call back here. So I, I was getting suspicious here because he was now ignoring not just one, but two messages. Plus ignoring the original callback. And several more days passed, still no callback. So now I was convinced. Now I was convinced that the guy decided he's just going to avoid me. But why? Surely, upon looking at the information, it should be very clear what happened. There would be no way she could explain how the call took two hours. There can be no way that she could explain why she claimed that a supervisor was consulted. In fact, I asked him, did she ever ask you about this? He said, no. He said this never happened. She never came to him, and he said he was on the floor that day. So she never went to him. She lied. He confirmed that to me. I said, can you imagine any circumstance there where one of your reps would be on the phone two hours with a customer and never consult you, even if the customer doesn't ask to be consulted, where one of your reps would actually be arguing with a customer for over two hours without you ever hearing about it? He said no. So he should have some answers. There's no way he could have investigated this over two-hour phone call and come away with the belief that she was in the right. So why wasn't I getting a call back? He sounded so nice. He sounded so helpful. Why wasn't he calling me back? So I decided to play hardball. I looked up who was above him. I forgot how I looked it up, but I found it out. I found out who was above him in the company. I found out how to reach them. I found out their extensions. But I decided to give this guy one more chance. I called him up and I left him a message. I said, this is very disappointing to me because I was very encouraged by our one conversation that you were really going to honestly look into it and get back to me in 48 hours. It has now been over two weeks and not only didn't you get back to me, you've ignored both of my last two messages. What you don't know, I told him, is that I have been documenting all of this and that I'm about to call such and such person and such and such person's boss at such and such extensions and tell them about the entire matter, tell them about the two-hour phone call, the exact date it occurred, and the fact that you have not been calling me back about this, and that I believe that there is some attempt to cover up 
for this employee's misdeeds for reasons they don't understand. But I'll have them look into this. However, just in case this is a mistake, I will give you a chance to let me know what's happening here before I make those phone calls. So if you don't call me within 48 hours, I will make these phone calls, but I will give it 48 hours before I call these people that I'm mentioning here. And I hope to hear from you. Goodbye. Well, did I get a phone call from that? Yes. How long did it take? One hour. (laughs) That got his attention. That got his attention. Calls me up within one hour of that message. Remember, he was ignoring me for over two weeks. One hour later, he calls me. I'd like to apologize to you, he said. I didn't have time to call you back, he said. I said, I, I left you two more messages. You couldn't return those either? Well, you know, I, uh, I, I just was very busy. I said, okay, well, what did you find in your investigation? He said, um, well, um, I did tell her what you alleged, and she said that that's not what happened, and she said that... Uh, she had believed that you owed the $14 and that you didn't agree and that you just kind of both got locked in a stalemate where neither person agreed to the other. And, and that was pretty much it. And I said, well, then how did that take two hours? He said, I don't know. <laughs> I said, you don't know. So wait a minute. Um, You didn't ask her? Aren't you her supervisor? Didn't you ask her what she was doing for those two hours? And did she put me on 90-minute hold? He said, well, yeah, I asked, and she said she didn't put you on on that 90-minute hold. I said, well, then did you ask her how the call took two hours? He said, no, I didn't. (laughs) Now, from speaking to the guy the first time, he wasn't dumb. I could tell he wasn't dumb. Sometimes I talk to someone on these customer service calls, and I can tell they're not all that bright. This guy wasn't dumb. So he wasn't so stupid where he believed that this wasn't an actual issue. And some people I told the story to at the time said, you know what, I bet he's banging her. I bet that's what's going on. I said, no, I don't think so, because this guy sounded like he was around my age. And this woman sounded like she was in her late 50s. And if she wasn't, she was pretty close. So Unless he had, like, a thing for way older women, I don't think he was banging her. So what happened here? Well, I don't know for sure, but he did admit eventually, because I said to him, I said, look, this doesn't make any sense to me. This doesn't look like a serious investigation. You didn't ask her very obvious questions. You didn't ask why the call took over two hours, which I know you're smart enough to realize is a problem. And you didn't call me back. I mean, you see to me how this looks like a cover-up, right? You, you see to me how it looks like you're trying to make me go away and you realize you did something wrong and for whatever reason don't want to have to f- deal with that. You see why that's exactly what it looks like to me, right? And he said to me, well, I admit there may have been some things in this whole situation that probably shouldn't have happened, he said. And I, I said, well, do you mean with her or with you? He says, uh, kind of with both. So he was kind of admitting to me that, yes, she did what I was alleging, and yes, he was kind of covering it up. I think the reason, by the way, is that this was probably an older woman he felt bad for. It was probably an older woman who wasn't very bright, who probably really needed the job, 
and who probably got flustered very easily. Now, I don't know why she didn't just say, here's your $14, I can't figure it out either, here it is back. So I don't feel bad for her, because at any point she could have done that, and it would have been totally justified within within company policy. And she chose not to. She chose to refuse it and make it a pissing contest, okay? But he probably perceived this, that she messed up, and when he went to her, she probably admitted she messed up, and he didn't want to fire her. He probably felt bad for her. And he realized that if he wrote her up, that she not only did this to me, but that she sat there for two hours twiddling her thumbs instead of taking calls, that this was a fireable offense. This, he didn't say this to me. This is my guess, and I think I'm right. So I think he realized that if he did a real investigation and wrote her up for this, that he would have been compelled to fire her at this point. Otherwise, he would have looked bad for not firing someone, for putting someone on 90 minutes intentional endless hold. I think that he realized that and that he didn't want to fire this older woman who made a mistake and an error in judgment and decided to fuck with a customer. He felt bad for her. So he didn't know what to do. He knew I would be aggressively wanting an answer, but he knew that he probably couldn't BS me. So he was afraid to make that call and hoped I'd just forget about it. And he was kind of stuck in this situation when I kept calling back. And at that point, then he was additionally going to have an issue because he knew I was going to keep pressing for answers. He just wanted it to go away. And he only called me when he realized it was going to get worse for him when I was going to report to his superiors that he was doing this. And I had the smoking gun proof because they had in the computer it took over two hours. And if I told his bosses that I reported this to him weeks ago, which they could see on the call log, and that he did nothing, even though it was clear in the computer the call took over two hours, they may have fired him too. And he realized that. That's why he picked up the phone and called me right away. But how did this end? Well, here's what he told me. He said, first of all, you're right. The $14 was erroneous. I don't even understand how it got on the bill, he said. But it was an error. You're right. It was an error. And she didn't uh, see that properly. So I'll take off the $14. But I have a feeling, he said, you're probably looking for more than just the $14 at this point, aren't you? And I said, well, yes. He said, well, um, what exactly are you looking for here? I said, well, uh, let me put it this way. After everything that happened here, including your refusal to call me back, which seems very intentional to me. I'm not exactly looking for $30. He says, no, no, I understand that. Well, uh, let me see if we can do this for you here, uh, and maybe you'll feel a bit better about the situation. I see right now your bill at the moment is uh, about $200. Uh, I can wipe that bill away. So I can just uh, remove the entire balance of that bill to where it's 0.0. And in addition to that, I see you have some pay channels here. And I see that these pay channels are about uh, $25 a month, which is about uh, 300 a year, these channels you already have. I could put them on a special promotion 
which isn't usually available, to where uh, for the next 12 months you'll get these two channels for free. So uh, would you like that as well? And there was no running promotion at the time like this. Like this wasn't something that was available as a regular customer, even an existing customer. So I said, yeah, yeah, I'll take that too. So I said, okay, so uh, again, I apologize very much for everything that happened here. And, you know, you were right and we were wrong. And I admit some things happened here that probably shouldn't have. But uh, are are you satisfied now? (laughs) And I said, yeah, okay. And that was that. And I didn't call his boss. Some people said I should have because he basically bribed me to go away. This was worth $500, 200 off the bill right away, and then 300 worth of pay channels that I was definitely going to be keeping for the next year. This wasn't channels just coming off a promotion or anything. These were channels I had been paying for for some time and was literally going to save me a real $300 over the next uh, year, 25 times 12. So it ended up being a $500 credit over that year because of what happened here because they were trying to avoid giving me a $14 credit that I deserved because the bill was wrong. So this really was the ultimate case of the cover-up being far worse than the crime because the, quote, crime here was simply a computer billing error. This wasn't even something intentional. This is the computer made some mistake and charged me $14 extra. All they had to do was fix it, and they wouldn't. And the woman dug her heels in. She's going to win the argument, she thought. She's not going to let this punk on the phone browbeat her into giving this $14 that she can't understand. This cheapskate. He needs to understand it's not going to happen again next month, so just pay the damn $14 and be done with it, she thought. Why would this guy demand $14 off his bill when next month... It's going to be back to normal. It's never going to happen again. So pay the damn 14 and move on, she thought. Why am I wasting her time with $14? Right or wrong, why was I doing it, she thought. She's not going to give $14 to this cheapskate who just demands an explanation for why it's being charged. No, she's going to come up with reasons why she can't. And if I demand anything further, then what she's going to do is just slam me on hold and teach me a lesson. Didn't work out, did it? Did not work out. So she tried to lie about going to the supervisor, then realizing that she had lied, had to cover up for that lie by slamming me on endless hold. I don't know why she didn't just disconnect me. That would have worked too. But somehow she slammed me on endless hold. I think because I stressed her out and she just needed to take a break (laughs) And, and also just wanted to punish me. I think it was a combination of the two. She was stressed, didn't want to talk to the next person after me, and also just said, F this guy, let's leave him on hold forever here and punish him. And then her supervisor didn't want to have to fire her over this when he realized he was going to have to. So he tried to cover it up, and then, uh uh-oh, now he might get fired if his boss finds out that he's trying to cover it up. So now he has to offer me $500 worth of credit to fix the whole thing. To this day, this remains the biggest customer service credit I have ever received for anything in my life. 
I realized it wasn't an immediate credit. 200 was immediate. The other 300 was uh, taking off uh, pay services charges where I keep the service and don't get charged for a year. But it really did work out to $500 in my pocket at the end of the year that otherwise would not have been there. But that was the largest credit I ever got for a customer service fail. I'm not talking about a fix for something. I have had it where things have been fixed for more than $500, but that was fixing an error. This is actually giving me something above the error for the trouble that was caused. But the reason that much was given is because he wanted me to for sure be satisfied I got a lot out of this so I'd go away. And it worked because I went away. Do I feel even the slightest bit bad about this? No. They shouldn't have done this. They should not have slammed me on endless hold. And the supervisor should not have lied to me about the investigation. That's his job, to investigate and discipline employees who abuse customers, even if you like them. And if you try to cover up, then you risk that you're going to get fired. And keep in mind, the guy had another option here that he didn't take for whatever reason. He could have lied to me that he investigated her and I'm totally in the right, blah, 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 and then never do anything to her, never write her up. And maybe give me a credit, not as a large one, but you know, maybe give me $100 credit and send me on my way. And I probably would have accepted that and moved on. And I have no way to check if he really wrote her up. So I don't know why he didn't take that route. But clearly there was some sort of sympathy going on. He wasn't dumb enough to think nothing happened here. By the way, it was actually on the original phone call with him that he acknowledged that the $14 was incorrect. So it wasn't even like he was just telling me what I wanted to hear at the end. He right away said, oh yeah, this is, this is a mistake. Let me correct, yeah, I can fix that. Anyway, I hope you, hope you enjoyed that story. Probably frustrating at some points, but at least it had a happy ending. I felt a little dirty taking the money only in that I kind of felt like the guy deserved to be fired after screwing with me like that. But the reason I accepted it was like I put myself in his shoes and I go, okay, if I was working there and I just like this nice older woman who just tends to get flustered easily and isn't always the best at her job. But personally, I think she's a a nice woman and I feel kind of bad for her situation. I can understand like in that spot where it's not that easy to fire the person. So I always try to put myself in the other person's shoes when these things happen. And some people don't believe that about me, but I really do. I don't just coldly come at bad customer service employees and try to get them in max trouble and not consider the situation. I always try to consider the situation. I always try to consider what they're thinking, what led them to behave the way they're behaving. I'm not saying I justify it, but I I at least try to think, like, can I at least understand their point of view in any way other than just laziness and and aggression? And in his case, I kind of thought he was trying to do something nice for someone that he probably felt bad for and kind of had to screw me in the process. So that's why I, since he gave me this big credit, I was like, okay, fine. Let's just, let's just end it here. Let's just be done. Everybody can walk away from this. It's not, I didn't need the $500 that badly or anything. I didn't need it badly at all, but I also felt it was deserved after all that shit. I posted the story Back on Neverwin Poker, in case it sounds familiar to you, if you're reading it back then, I posted it on Neverwin Poker when it happened. 
And I remember one of the users had the nerve to say to me that I should feel bad about this because this credit screws the stockholders and that it doesn't screw the people who actually did this stuff to me. (laughs) Which, yes, is correct. Technically correct that this supervisor wasn't giving me $500 out of his pocket, nor was that woman who slammed me on hold. But they are representing the company. So what can I do? I'm not going to say, well, I'm not going to take this 500 because the poor stockholders, now the stock's going to crash. I don't think I had any effect on the stock price. However, if the typical employee is like that, that probably affected the stock price. But maybe not. Maybe they make additional money that way. We're going to have one of these most weeks, by the way, at least until I run out of stories. The problem is that these are all from the past, obviously, and if I do one every week, since I don't have something like this happening every week that's worth discussing on the show, eventually I'm going to run out and there won't be enough new stories to replace them. See, at least the other stuff on this show, we have new poker and gambling news every week enough to talk about on here. So we have endless material, but from my own life in the past, there's a finite number of stories. And on a weekly show, we will run out. Well, I want to talk about an allegation from Sean Deeb. Sean Deeb is a very outspoken individual, as you probably know. I do respect him for that. Sean Deeb says what's on his mind. He doesn't care what people think of him. He does not care if people think he's an asshole. He and I don't get along that great. I don't hate him. He doesn't hate me. We've had issues before, but not major issues. He once called up the show angrily because he didn't like what I was saying about him. But after that, he has DM'd me about things of concern that he thinks maybe I can help with. So, like, if he feels that my participation in some issue he's bringing up will be helpful, he will consult me. He will DM me. So... Obviously, if he hated me, he wouldn't do that. But I I don't think he's a big fan of mine either. And as far as what I think of him, you know, I I can be fair for the most part. I, I don't love all the aspects of his personality. And there's things he says and does they have a problem with. But other times, I think he's right. And other times, I will respect that he is outspoken about issues that others won't say anything about. So I I see the good and the bad with him. And I overall don't really have anything against him. As I said, I have my positive and negative opinions of him. But overall, I don't see him badly. So here is his latest drama he's bringing to Twitter. And again, these are allegations, so I can't tell you if he's correct here. But he is going after Mark Herm, also known as Diphthrong. You might remember that Mark Herm appeared on Poker Fraud Alert Radio some time ago. And he he appeared on here because uh, he felt that uh, somebody owed him money and he wanted to call it out. And people actually liked when he was on the show. This was on uh, July 21st, 2015. He claimed that someone named 
Ben Warrington, who went as Kid Cardiff at the time online, scammed him. I don't even remember much about the segment, honestly. What I do remember is that people really liked his appearance on here because he and I actually had pretty good chemistry in our interview. People said, oh, you should make him a co-host here (laughs) because people really liked the way we went back and forth. Like, we got along. We weren't insulting each other, but people liked just the general chemistry we had on the radio, which I agreed. It was was a good interview, and we did get along. The funny thing is, like, we really haven't talked since then, so I don't really know the guy other than just seeing him on Twitter and other than that one interview we did six and a half years ago. And I don't believe I've really talked about him since then, and I know I haven't said anything negative about him at any point. And I hadn't really heard anything negative about him at any point. He's been around for a very long time. But now something negative is coming out, and this is an allegation by Sean Deeb, which was presented without proof, but the way it all played out, I will say that there may be something to it. So here's what happened. On January 13th, Sean Deeb tweeted, Since I'm fired up, I'm sure many of you know this, but I hope all poker sites ban Mark Herm and all his accounts. He really thinks it's okay after 20 years to continue to steal equity from his peers by multi-accounting. Sad I used to call him a friend. So what Deeb is trying to say, and it's always hard to understand his tweets because he doesn't write very well. In fact, there's even a parody account called Coherent Sean Deeb or Coherent Deeb, something like that, that translates his tweets into something more understandable. But even Coherent Deeb isn't all that coherent. But what he's saying here is pretty clear, that he feels that Mark Herm has been multi-accounting in online poker for 20 years And he's still continuing long, long after it was determined by the community that multi-accounting is unethical. And that he's sad that Mark Herm is still doing this because he used to be friends with the guy. And I'm not sure if he's not friends with him because of this or just because of other things. But he's saying he's sad that a former friend of his is still multi-accounting after all this time. So Mark Herm did respond, and all he said was, you guys need to get better at poker, which is kind of a weird response, but most of his responses in the thread were like this, where he was just sarcastically answering. So he never gave any kind of serious answer to this. He he gave a number of responses to a number of people in the thread, but he was kind of just screwing around and either being sarcastic or joking and not answering to any of this. He did seriously answer one person, and that was Kane Callis. Kane Callis said this, There are people with high empathy. There are people with low empathy. There are people with no empathy who act morally because they take on moral cues from others. There are people with no empathy who act morally because they fear being exposed. Then there are people with no empathy who could give two fucks about right versus wrong. And then he put at diphthrong, meaning he's trying to say that Mark Herm is in that category. He's not someone with high empathy, not with low empathy, not without empathy who still acts morally because of some consequence that could happen otherwise, that he's someone with no empathy that also doesn't give a shit. So Mark Herm responded, this is to Kane Callis, not to Sean Deeb, you're a complete fraud sociopath 
and a lot of the people in poker know it. Oh. Harsh. No response to that, by the way. <laughs> That's what he said back to King Kala, the fraud sociopath, and a lot of people in the poker world know it. Ooh. Now, I don't know what he means by that. I had never heard that King Callis is a sociopath or a fraud, but that's what Mark Herm said back. A person named Edward Foldinghands, of course, they play on Edward Scissorhands. Edward Foldinghands said, thank you for at least providing some details while outing a scammer, better than just listing someone's name and providing no additional context. And then Sean Deeb said back, I mean, his friend circle literally admits it, when talked about it, Mark doesn't deny it either. So Sean is claiming here that people who are friends with Mark Herm will say, oh yeah, Mark Herm multi-accounts all the time. And that if you ask Mark, he just won't deny it. So Sean is saying this is pretty strong proof in his eyes that it's true if the friends admit it and Mark won't deny it. Again, I haven't verified any of this, but this is what Sean Deeb is claiming on Twitter. Then someone named Sudude Sup wrote, Why'd Paul G's never get brought into this? He tried asking me to team view multiple times on AIM. Team view is where you're using a program called Team Viewer to see someone else's screen. So he claims that uh, another person asked to team view with him. And this is Paul Volpe, by the way. Paul G's 81 is his screen name on Twitter. So he's saying, why aren't you outing Paul Volpe for this, who asked me to team view and share my cards with him as we're playing? That's what this guy is saying back. Again, I don't know if this really happened. This is what this uh, dude sup is claiming happened. I don't know who that guy is, by the way. Sean Deeb said, what was done 15 years ago is not the same as someone doing it for 15 years straight while learning what rules and ethics are. So it seems what Sean Deeb is saying here is that he's aware that Paul Volpe used to do this, but it was like 15 years ago when a lot of this stuff was happening and wasn't being called out much and people weren't really thinking much about it. Now, I have to say team viewing with someone and seeing their cards, uh, you should know, is obviously very unethical. I mean, with their permission to where someone's like, hey, let, let's share cards and team view with each other, see each other's screens while we're at the same table. Like, you shouldn't have to get cues from the community to know that's wrong. But I will say that multi-accounting was very rampant until the mid-2000s when there started to become a change in how that was viewed. Prior to that, it was extremely commonplace in online poker for people to both use multiple accounts, that is, or one person owns like three different accounts, like one in his name, one in his wife's name, one in his brother's name, and also share accounts, which is also a form of multi-accounting, which means that uh, maybe you'll borrow a fish's account, who you're friends with, and play on his account, and everyone's expecting to play a fish, and then you play as him and crush everybody. So that went on all the time, too. You can think now, okay, that's obvious that this is unethical, but back then it was happening a lot and it was kind of considered part of online poker. I didn't do it 
except on sites where multi-accounting was allowed. And that's another factor is that some networks actually allowed multi-accounting. And if you didn't multi-account, then you were at a disadvantage. Like the CryptoLogic network, it was within the site's terms to make as many accounts as you wanted. So if you didn't have several accounts on the CryptoLogic network, then you were at a disadvantage because your opponents would know how you play and you wouldn't know how they play because they keep switching accounts. So I had to keep making new accounts also. I didn't use multiple accounts like at the same time, meaning I never did it at the same table and I never even did it like one day to the next. I would use one and then discard it and switch to another. There's always a guessing game on there, who's who. I actually had everybody fooled for a while. I've talked about this before, but I had this one account that was supposedly a guy from Africa and, and they bought it. Like they, they really believed it was a guy from Africa. <laughs> and then some people thought, well, it's not really a guy from Africa. It's one of these guys from Norway pretending to be a guy from Africa. They, no one figured out it was me for a very long time. And partially it was because I had changed my play style somewhat around then. So they didn't know who it was. And you had to do that on there to keep up with the Joneses. And that was okay to do according to the site's terms of service. But this all changed, where no sites were allowing this, and the community really, really frowned upon any form of multi-accounting, whether it's borrowing somebody else's account or having multiple accounts of your own, or both. So what Sean D. was saying back to him is, I'm not calling out Paul Volpe because this is like 15 years ago. And a lot of people who did that back in those days learned to stop it. If you remember, one of the best-known multi-accounters from the 2000s was Justin Bonomo. Justin Bonomo actually multi-accounted in the same tournament. Now, when that was caught, that was a big deal because that's clearly cheating. That's far worse than using different accounts to play on cash games to throw people off. To use two accounts in the same tournament is pretty bad, especially because you could end up at your own table. So Justin eventually admitted to this. And I will say, even though a lot of people don't like his personality, that he did reform as far as the ethics in poker. And since 2006, he hasn't had any scandals. The only issues people have had with Justin Bonomo is the way he behaves on Twitter. But as far as anything scam-related or multi-accounting related, he hasn't done anything like that since 06. So people have pretty much forgiven him, especially because he was very young back then. So people still joke about it, but... They don't really hold it against him unless they're arguing with him. Sometimes people will throw it in his face. They, you know, yeah, you're a cheater. You're a multi-accounter. But the truth is, it's been so many years and he was young then. So, okay, I can look past this. I can look past that young Justin Bonomo had to learn a, an ethics lesson and has since reformed. So Sean Deeb is kind of saying that about Paul Volpe, Paul Volpe, who was born in 81, presumably meaning he was in his uh, 20s when this happened, like around 24 or whatever. So he's saying what was done 15 years ago, I don't care so much about it. It's someone who's still doing it today is the problem. So then someone named Andreas Torbergsen said, out Nick's question mark. And he's not talking about a guy named Nick or multiple people named Nick. He's saying out the nicknames, out the names he's using. So then Sean said back, I know he won a WSOP bracelet in the 3200 or something, referring to an online bracelet. I'm not in his inner circle or play online regularly, but he clearly brash about it and has no shame admitting to it 
and his friend circle won't deny it either. They mostly defend him, saying everyone does it. So what he's trying to say here is that if you want to see what name he plays of under on WSB.com, uh, go look at when he won that bracelet, the online bracelet, and they'll give his screen name, and that's the name he uses, but that he also multi-accounts and admits this to his friend circle, and they admit it, and then he won't even deny it if you ask him, and that his friends defend him and say, oh, everybody does it, so Mark has to. These are Sean's claims. Now, does Mark Herm have to answer Sean Deeb? No. Sean Deeb is not in law enforcement. Sean Deeb does not work for WSOP.com. Sean Deeb is just another player. So Mark does not have to answer him. However, Sean Deeb is prominent. Sean Deeb is making a very public allegation of cheating on his Twitter account, followed by 41,000 people. And the 41,000 followers are almost all people who are in the poker community. So a lot of people saw these allegations about Mark Herm. Now, if Mark Herm was not multi-accounting, was completely innocent here, you would think he would say, false. I don't know what you're talking about, Sean. I didn't do it. Where are you coming up with this? He didn't say anything like that. From what I can see, he's just being sarcastic and joking around. That's a little suspicious to me. Human nature is when, if you are accused of something by a high-profile person to where it's going to be seen a lot, that if you are innocent, you want to shout it from the mountaintops. I'm not saying you have to answer to everybody. If a complete nobody with two followers on Twitter accuses you of something, you're not expected to give them a response. In fact, if you do give them a response, it can draw attention to what they said in the first place. So those type of people, it's better to just ignore. But Sean Deeb is not in that category. Sean Deeb is not a nobody. Sean Deeb is one of the bigger names in poker, and he has 41,000 followers. So clearly, Mark Herm must be aware that Sean Deeb has put it in a lot of people's minds that he is a cheater via multi-accounting. And you would think that if Mark Herm is not doing this, that he would want people to know that Sean is full of crap, but he hasn't said it. So that is suspicious to me. That is suspicious. Now, what about the possible response that Sean is claiming that Mark's friends are giving, that everybody does it? What about that? Well, that is only okay if one of two things are happening. One, if it really is like everybody doing it to where if you don't, then you're at a tremendous disadvantage to everybody. And when I say everybody, I don't just mean a few other pros. I mean, if it's so rampant that most of the active players on the site are multi-accounting, and the only way you can compete with them is to multi-account yourself. And when I say most, I mean most. I don't mean just the like 10 regulars you know. And this is never going to happen anymore, by the way. I'm, I'm not ever saying this is a realistic scenario in 2022 then I can understand someone doing it, saying, I just can't sit here and play with a disadvantage, being the only one following the rules. The other excuse is that it's okay within the terms of service, like it was on the CryptoLogic network, which there it was both. There it was everybody was doing it, and it was okay within the terms of service. But neither is true here. 
it's not okay within the terms of service on WSB.com or any online poker site I know of today. And second, everybody is not doing it. Do I believe some pros are doing it? Yes. In fact, I've heard a lot of allegations that there is a lot of multi-accounting going on on WSOB.com. I have heard that. I've heard these allegations that these online bracelets are kind of BS for that reason. Well, for that and other reasons too, but that they shouldn't be giving bracelets out because there's a lot of things going on that aren't honest and that can't happen live. So I have to agree, regardless of what the situation is with Mark Herm, and I have heard a lot of different multi-accounting allegations, even non-specific ones, even that a lot of people are doing it, but where they're not named to me. It is possible that Mark Herm is doing this, but that he's observing all the other regulars he knows are doing it too, and he feels if he isn't, he's going to get crushed. So he feels like he doesn't want to do it, but has to. But then according to Sean Deeb, he's been doing it since the beginning. Sean Deeb has been saying he's been doing it for 20 years. I didn't even think he's been around for 20 years. I think Deeb is exaggerating it. But whatever length of time Herm has been around, which is long, that Sean feels that since the beginning, he's been multi-accounting and just won't stop. So it's not even a matter like he's throwing up his hands in frustration that everybody's doing it on WSB.com that's a pro and that he feels the pressure to do it otherwise be at a big disadvantage. That Sean Deeb is saying he's been doing this the whole time and just hasn't learned. Everybody else has learned and he hasn't. That's what Sean is saying. Definitely Mark Herm should say he's not doing it if he's not doing it. He doesn't have to, but he should. Otherwise, it looks like he's doing it. Because Sean Deeb has a big following. Because Sean Deeb is someone who's prominent. That's the big difference here. If Joe Smith, poker player, with 10 followers, posts shit about Mark Herm. Mark Herm would be smartest to ignore it. When Sean D. posts it, the lack of a response can speak volumes. I feel that WSOB.com should just clamp down on this. And there's plenty of ways to do it. I think a lot of this is their problem. Not to say it excuses anyone who's multi-accounting, but a lot of this is their problem. If it's so rampant on there and they're not stopping it. They, they really need to put some effort into tracking down multi-accounters and stopping it. You know one way they can stop it, too? Is they can make an announcement that anyone caught multi-accounting on WCB.com will not only be banned, but they will be banned from all Caesars properties and never play WSP ever again, online or live. And with... How many properties are Caesars these days, especially with the El Dorado merger that occurred? I don't think many poker players would want to be banned from all Caesars properties, including the WSOP. I think that threat would scare these people silly, and they would quickly change their ways. I think those who are multi-accounting on WSOP.com right now are doing so because they perceive that WSOP doesn't give a crap, and that if they get caught, it's not going to be the end of the world. So even without putting any effort to catch anybody, they could just put out the word that this isn't going to be tolerated. They can even say it in a way without making it look like it's rampant and looking bad because WSOP is not going to announce, hey, everybody, we have a big multi-accounting problem here. 
So uh, sorry to all you players who've been getting cheated that way, but uh, we're going to be taking it seriously going forward. Like, I understand why they don't want to say that, but they can say that just to remind everybody, multi-accounting, and then they can define what they mean by that, is strictly against our terms of service, and anyone caught multi-accounting will face harsh consequences, including a ban from the system and a ban from all Caesars properties. And boy, would that stop quickly. Maybe not completely, but boy, a lot of these people would not continue knowing they're putting their ability to play at Caesars Properties and the World Series in jeopardy. That's what they need to do, because I do believe it's a problem, regardless of whether or not Mark Herm is one of the people doing it. Now, Mark Herm, if you'd like to come back on the show and defend these allegations from Sean Deeb, you are welcome to do so. I will admit that Sean Deeb is not the ultimate arbiter of truth and that every allegation from him is not necessarily accurate, but it also might be accurate. Your lack of serious addressing of the issue while at the same time being in that thread doesn't look the best. I will say that. And you know I have nothing against you. We've never had a problem. I enjoyed your appearance on the show. And, in fact, I was disappointed to read this, thinking that if this is true, that does uh, make me think a little bit differently. I didn't know all that much about you, but I always thought, just like, you're a respected poker pro who wins. It's been around for a long time. And I liked your personality on the show. That's what I thought of you. But if you don't want to come on here, you don't want to respond to me, because I'm not making any allegations. I have no knowledge of this. I, I'm only going by what Sean Deeb is saying and what your response was and wasn't. Then at least respond to Deeb. At least post on your own Twitter. Okay. So moving on to our next topic. We're going to talk about a weird situation which is not getting that much press, at least in the gambling community. But I think it's an interesting, albeit a bit complicated story, which I will try to break down for you so it's not complicated. Here is a story involving what appears to be a major scam that took place in Las Vegas. And it had to do with casinos and a company that was supposedly going to be installing monitors. Now, you may be asking, why would a company be installing monitors in casinos. Well, when I say monitors, I mean like screens. And these are usually going to be in sports books, though they can be elsewhere on property. But you know when you're in a casino, especially in a sports book, you see these big monitors on the wall displaying whatever. It could be games that are going. It could be odds. It could be information. But there are a lot of big monitors around hotel casinos, especially ones with sports books. So a guy named Brandon Sattler, S-A-T-T-L-E-R, founded a company called Satcom, S-A-T-T-C-O-M. And he claimed that Satcom had big contracts to install these monitors in several casinos, mostly in Las Vegas, but also in Atlantic City and elsewhere. And he solicited investment into his company because he claimed that 
he had the contracts to do it, but he needed to raise money to be able to do the job and get the equipment. So three people invested in SATCOM. James Russell, Grant Witcher, and Julie Russell. Collectively, they invested a lot into SATCOM, believing it to be a very nice opportunity. $100 billion! No, but they did invest 11 times... $1 million! So together, about $11 million was invested from these three combined between 2016 and 2018. This was given to Brandon Sattler to invest in SATCOM. Sattler is now accused by the three of simply stealing that money to gamble and buy luxury items for himself, such as expensive cars. It's also alleged that he falsified various documents, including bank statements, to make it look like that he had a fortune coming to him. Uh, basically, it was the old story of uh, that he's receiving a, a trust fund and, and other forms of uh, money that weren't immediately accessible. So they didn't feel like they're just investing in somebody's idea, but who just doesn't have any money behind it. They were believing they were investing in something with someone who already has a lot of money, but just can't access it at the moment for whatever reason. He was ordered by a judge in uh, U.S. bankruptcy court to pay monetary sanctions. He was ordered to pay them by September 22nd, 2021. Now, keep in mind, this case was filed. This is a civil case that was filed against him. I don't know if there's any kind of criminal investigation. It kind of seems like there should be. It kind of reminds me a bit of the Firefest thing and Billy McFarland, who's presently in a federal prison over what he did. But this is a civil case, and in U.S. bankruptcy court, he was hit for monetary sanctions. I'm not sure for what. I was having a hard time understanding that part of it. But what happened from there is pretty interesting, that he was hit with these monetary sanctions, and he was ordered to pay the sanctions by September 22nd, 2021. However, instead of paying these sanctions, he went on a gambling spree at the Wynn and Resorts World over the summer. And that spawned an uh, additional set of hearings that was uh, meant to look at that. So, as part of the whole process of these hearings about him not paying the sanctions but rather uh, going and uh, blowing more money gambling, there was an interesting subpoena that came down. And that was for Scott Sibella, who is the Resorts World president and CEO, that he was subpoenaed to sit for a deposition in association with his case, and specifically in association with the lack of payment of the sanctions. Now, you may wonder, what would Scott Sibella, the CEO of Resorts World, have to do with this? Well, remember, one of the two places where the money was blown was Resorts World. So you may say, okay, that makes sense. Why is that a big deal? Well, because this is very uncommon. What they usually do in cases like these where someone 
is ordered to pay money in some way in court, whether it's sanctions or something else, and then proceeds to blow the money at a casino. This isn't the first time this happened, obviously. Uh, Typically what they do is they subpoena the person who has the best knowledge and connection to what happened, who works at the casino, such as a casino host or somebody else that the person dealt with at the property who almost never is the CEO. But in this case, they were subpoenaing the CEO, which is very uncommon because you could say, well, he's the one at the top. Why not do with him? Because what would happen is if you subpoenaed him for a deposition, he could honestly say he doesn't know about a lot of these things. The CEO is not going to keep track of everybody's gambling. And while this uh, Sattler guy did gamble at high stakes, he wasn't gambling at ridiculously high stakes where the CEO would have to know about it. Uh, he made various cash deposits to the win, for example, over the summer of uh, 55000 40000 60000 and 65000 These were all after the sanctions. So if you add these all up, this is over a few-month period, if you add these all up, it's roughly 200000 a little bit more. And then uh, he did something similar at Resorts World, totaling about 400000 So that's not chump change. 400000 is a lot of money to gamble. Believe it or not, he actually won at Resorts World. So he didn't even blow it. I don't know how he did it at the win, but he actually won a little bit at Resorts World. But anyway, he did send almost $400,000 over there while he's supposed to be paying the sanctions during a combination of seven visits. Now, it is possible it was the same money over and over that he'd send it, then withdraw it, send it, withdraw it. But overall, he sent uh, 394000 to Resorts World. But this is not so much to where the CEO would know him. This is not like uh, Terrence Watanabe, the biggest gambling fish of all time, who blew like $60 million in a short time in 2007 at Caesars. It, that is something where the CEO would know him, not when someone uh, is sending over six figures. That happens all the time. So obviously there's some reason why it's believed that Scott Sibella of Resorts World has the most familiarity with Brandon Sattler in this situation. And it's not clear what that is. But people were very curious about this who've been following this case. There is a request from a website called CDCGamingReports.com where I, I read about the situation. There was a request for comment from the Resorts World General Counsel and they declined to comment. That's interesting. Now, you may think, okay, we just got to wait. Just a waiting game here. Obviously, Scott Sibella is going to come in and do the deposition, and we're going to find out. Well, probably not, because what's happened here is that now, through his attorney, Brandon Sattler has declared under penalty of perjury that he already tried to contact the attorney for the, uh, the other side and wanted to make good on the sanctions, which uh, seemed to be due to the plaintiffs here. So they're supposed to be getting some kind of money. So he was hit with some kind of sanctions to pay the plaintiffs something in U.S. bankruptcy court, and he didn't do it. So then that's what these hearings are about, that he just not only didn't do it, but went and gambled with the money. But that he swore under penalty of perjury that he had actually contacted the other side's attorney and was trying to pay the sanctions and claim that uh, 
the other side's attorney didn't get back to him in time. But he's saying that he's still willing to pay immediately the fees and costs associated with the case plus the sanctions. So basically, if he does this, if he pays the sanctions immediately and coughs up whatever court fees there are and attorney's fees there were to bring the hearings about the failure to pay the sanctions, then it basically becomes a zero-sum situation where nobody's out anything. And that will make the subpoena to Scott Sabella, the Resorts World CEO, moot to where he doesn't have to come in. Because remember, this subpoena was only about him going to gamble at Resorts World while he's owing the sanctions. So that's too bad that we're probably not going to be able to find out what that is because it's possible that he has some kind of relationship with Scott Sibyl. I'm not saying a romantic relationship. I'm saying that he has some kind of friendship or even some kind of contact where Scott Sibella deals with him directly to where Scott Sibella, the CEO there, actually would be the best one to subpoena about this. There's even some question if perhaps the way he's coming up with the money to pay these sanctions is maybe with some help from outside parties who don't want to see this deposition happen. Now, he did have the money in the first place to keep uh, sending to the wind and to Resorts World. He didn't lose at Resorts World. He actually won a little bit. But I don't know. You would think that if he had the money to pay the sanctions at the time, he would have just paid it, but maybe he still wanted to gamble it. Maybe he thought he maybe he was delusional and thought that what's ultimately going to be ruled against them that he owes, that the only way to ever come up with that is to try to run it up at the casino. According to court records, he claimed to have a trust worth $108 million and to have these lucrative contracts to install these monitors at the casinos in Las Vegas, Atlantic City, and in parts of Florida. And apparently none of this was true. Apparently there were no contracts. And that there was uh, no trust worth $108 million or anything. And that the bank statements that were shown to the investors were falsified. It also is alleged that someone else was brought into this to uh, pretend to be a loan broker and that uh, this loan broker or this fake loan broker had originally contacted these three victims to try to get them to join in this project to install these monitors and that this broker claimed that Brandon Sattler was worth tens of millions of dollars and that he claimed he himself was making a $1.2 million a year salary. And the court records indicate that all the documents furnished to show his personal finances were doctored and bared no resemblance to reality. Also, Sattler is alleged to have introduced these three to a partner in order to make them believe that... uh, There were guarantees on this money, and apparently he also made some interest payments and made it appear as if these people were getting some immediate return on their money when in reality the money was gone, or mostly gone. And there were just a lot of different 
doctored bank statements, financial reports, and other fabricated documents. In reality, the $11 million was mostly used to gamble and buy luxury cars. It does not appear that any kind of television sets or monitors were ever purchased. Also, it really looks like the Sattler guy doesn't give a crap about what the court says because he's also accused of selling a home he had in South Lake Tahoe without permission from the bankruptcy court. The reason this is a big deal is that once there's a bankruptcy issue going on, then you're not supposed to dispose of any of your assets. This is supposed to be the domain of the bankruptcy court. And you have to get permission from the bankruptcy court to make a sale like this. But apparently he just went and did it. And his previous legal counsel, which is a firm called Goldsmith & Gaiman, actually withdrew as his attorneys because he did this and hid it from them. They stated that their client, quote, has willfully concealed the sale of his second home located in South Lake Tahoe, California, as he knew it to be a violation of the preservation order. So basically, he was given a preservation order from the court not to sell anything without the court's permission. And the law firm advised him of this. And then not only did he sell it, but he hid it from the law firm. See, I've explained this before when Mike Postle was dropped by his attorney. But when his attorney dropped him, uh, they couldn't just leave because it was in the middle of the case. So what happened was that they had to get the court's permission to withdraw as counsel. So paperwork has to be filed. And at the very least, the paperwork said that they could not make contact with him for like a month. And that that's the official reason that they're withdrawing. Because basically the court has to approve the withdrawal of counsel in order to protect the rights of the people in litigation so their attorneys can't just decide they're done with them and leave them high and dry. There has to be a good reason the attorneys leave the case. So in this case, the law firm said that they don't want to be counsel anymore because he's not behaving honestly with them. I'm talking about this uh, Sattler guy that he concealed that he sold that second house in Tahoe without telling them and that they don't want to work with him anymore for that reason. And apparently that was granted because they're no longer his attorneys. South Lake Tahoe, by the way, in case you're wondering, is where it's the area of Lake Tahoe where most of the casinos are located, except there's no casinos in South Lake Tahoe because South Lake Tahoe is part of California. In that part of Tahoe, South Lake Tahoe is the California side, and then what's called State Line is the Nevada side. All the casinos, like Harris and Harvey's and everything else over there, those are in State Line, but you can walk very easily from State Line Nevada to South Lake Tahoe, California, because they're right next to each other, just separated by the border. Heavenly Valley Ski Resort is located right there as well. And it's actually located over there in California. But then you could actually ski into Nevada 
within the resort, and you could actually end up on the Nevada side in a different part of the Lake Tahoe area. But Lake Tahoe has a number of towns and cities surrounding it, and the ones on the east side are in Nevada, the ones on the west side are in California, and then there's the South Lake Tahoe state line area, which is right on the border between the two. So that's where South Lake Tahoe is, in case you care. I don't know if this is going to eventually become a criminal case or if there, there is a criminal investigation. Currently, this is in uh, U.S. bankruptcy court. But this really looks like a scam to me. Right now, it's an involuntary bankruptcy that was filed in October 2018. But I don't know how much they're going to get because all these documents about how rich the Sattler guy was were fake. So I don't know how much money the guy really has left. They might be able to get some of these assets that he got from the sale of that home if he still has that money. But I have a feeling he doesn't have anywhere near a million dollars, $11 million. He may not even have a million. I'm surprised they didn't hit him with contempt for the blatant disregard for the sanctions. <laughs> He's supposed to pay the plaintiff's money and then he goes and gambles. <laughs> But it is interesting that this whole thing was centered around the installation of these monitors that he apparently never even had a contract to do. I'm surprised these investors didn't at least try to verify with the casinos that these contracts existed. That's what I would have done. If I was interested in investing in a company like this, I wouldn't just want to see how rich this guy is from his documents. I would want to see that the casinos have such a contract and I'd want to verify it with them, not to see a contract that's presented to me that's supposedly from the casino. But it looks like these contracts never existed. This whole thing was made up. At least everything I'm reading from that article appears to be that way. So that is an interesting story, especially with all these side things about the sanctions. I really wonder what the story is with this Resorts World CEO and why he was the target of that deposition. Hmm. Now, this was requested by the attorney of the three plaintiffs, almost as if they knew something here. And Maybe that's why it's being paid back so quickly. This was filed, by the way, this subpoena for Sabella, the CEO, on October 22nd, 2021. Hmm. Well, if this guy gets away with no criminal charges, that's a win. But I don't see any evidence of this. And because the name Brandon Sattler is, I'd say, semi-common, it's not like Mike Smith, but it's semi-common. If you Google Brandon Sattler, there are some criminal charges, but I see one that's to a Brandon David Sattler from 2004. I see a Brandon G. Sattler from 2019. The one from 2004 is involving bank fraud. The one from 2019 is aggravated second-degree battery and home invasion, so judging from these two charges and what this guy is accused of. I would say the one more likely to be him would be the bank fraud one, but neither could be him. Obviously, one of them isn't him. It's a different middle initial. 
And I don't know what this Brandon Sattler looks like, so I don't even know how old he is. But it's funny how many of these frauds and scams involve casinos or gambling in some way. This guy did it in two ways. He gambled with money that was allegedly stolen, and the whole thing was based upon installing monitors in casinos. Now, I think the reason you see a lot of this surrounding casinos is because gambling attracts people who want easy money, which is funny because it usually is the path to losing easy money. But it attracts people who want to get rich doing something that is enjoyable rather than hard work. And when it doesn't go well, which usually is the case, then they will sometimes resort to scamming to keep in action. A lot of the scamming that occurs in the gambling world, including poker, is not done to accumulate a lot of money and then ride off into the sunset. A lot of the scamming that is done in the gambling world is to feed a gambling habit. And I've seen that time and time again. And this includes poker, where people will scam to keep in action. Only a small percentage, a very small percentage of the scams are ones that are perpetrated for the reason of just getting as much money as possible and then just running off with it. Usually, it is for purpose of gambling. Now, some of the poker scammers believe that if they could only get a bankroll again, they can run it up, and then they can pay, back, pay people back, and then no one will ever know they were scamming in the first place. So if you borrow $10,000 from someone to go play poker, and you claim you'll pay them back next week, and then you win $40,000 with it, well, yeah, then you can pay them back the 10000 next week, and they never will have known that you would not have paid them had you lost and that you misrepresented your ability to pay them. They will not know that when you pay them back until you eventually lose, <laughs> and then they will know. But a lot of times these scams are not done out of pure evil that the scammer just wants to steal and enjoy stealing. In some cases, that's the case, but a lot of times it's about staying in action to feed a gambling habit which I'm not excusing. I think it's sicker to want to scam someone for the fun of it or to at least scam someone knowing that you're just going to take the money and run and never pay back. But it's also very bad to obtain money based upon fraudulent pretenses and no, you're only paying the person back if your plans with the money end up working out, especially if the plans involve negative EV gambling. But even if it's positive EV gambling, then it's very, very wrong, and it is still theft. So that's what's going on there. If you can find anything about a criminal case with this Brandon Sattler, I don't know his middle initial, but if you can find any criminal case about him and SATCOM, let me know. But I can't. So there may not be one, which is weird to me, because this would seem like something that's perfect for a criminal case. It involves a lot of money. It involves accomplices. It involves a clear attempt to deceive. So provided everything that is 
alleged here in the civil case is correct, I would think there should be a lot more than a civil case. And eventually the statute of limitations is going to run out. I don't know when the last action the guy did that was criminal would be able to be uh, considered. But I have a feeling a lot of this is going to be out of the statute of limitations very soon. Maybe it's like four years. So if this ended in 2018, it may end sometime this year. Weird. I don't quite get that one. I mean, this does not appear to just be where somebody solicits investments and then the partners don't like the way the business went and sue the guy. That That is a civil case. The, this looks like criminal behavior if what they're alleging is true, which from everything I can see kind of looks like it. Well, if I have any updates here, if you find any updates, please let me know. The WPT has decided to sign a high-profile person to represent the brand. DJ Steve Aoki is now an ambassador for the WPT. Now, Steve Aoki is not just some random who is famous that they decided to sign He does have at least a moderate interest in poker. It was found that he tweeted back in 2013 that he was playing some kind of heads-up game with Phil Ivey. I don't know if it was a serious game or if they're just messing around, but he he was hanging out with Phil Ivey about eight and a half years ago and posted this on his Twitter. So he definitely has some interest in poker, and he's been tweeting about poker occasionally for the last decade or so. So, I mean, this is better than just picking some random dude who needs the money or wants the money who is known and signing him as an ambassador. There are people out there that will sign to be ambassador of anything, regardless of their actual interest in the product or service, provided they get paid. In fact, there's some people who have plenty of money that will just do it for more money. So it is good to see that at least Steve Aoki has a real poker interest. But at the same time, this is not a guy who's playing poker all the time. Like, you know, there's certain stars who show up to play the main event every year at the World Series of Poker. Guys like uh, Brad Garrett and I, Ray Romano was going for a while and uh, Jason Alexander. And there's others. There's various athletes who at the very least, were interested enough in the World Series of Poker to show up every year to play the main event. But I don't know if Steve Aoki has even played the main event before. Now, he's not signing with the World Series. He's signing with the World Poker Tour. But they announced on Thursday that he is now the ambassador. That is, that is Thursday, the uh, 13th of January. Steve Aoki said, It's such an honor to be joining the WPT family. I have watched and admired the WPT for many, many years, and now to be part of the WPT family, it feels so surreal, and I'm incredibly grateful. Steve Aoki is 44 years old. Adam Pliska, who is the CEO of the WPT, said the passion and energy in which Steve Aoki approaches every aspect of his life is both inspiring and very much in line with a new vision of the WPT. What new vision is that? <laughs> what is he talking about? Steve's love of poker and his dedication to inspiring others to live life to the fullest makes him the ideal WPT brand ambassador. We are honored to have him play an active role in our transformation and in the celebration of the WPT's 20th anniversary. I don't know what transformation they're talking about. I don't know 
I mean, I haven't followed the WBT too closely, but to me, it's kind of a has-been at this point. It's still the second biggest tournament series by far behind the World Series of Poker. But it seems like people are less excited about the WPT now compared to before. Now it seems like, for the most part, it's mainly the tournament pros who are into it and people who play the really high rollers. But it's not something that everybody really wants anymore. It's not something where everybody wants a WPT title the same they want a World Series bracelet like it once was. There once was a time where if you were a tournament player, like in the 2000s, if you were a tournament player, you really wanted both a World Series and a WPT title. And I don't think it's like that anymore. And this is just my impression from someone watching from the outside. I don't play the WPT. I've played very few WPT events in my life, like very, very few. And I mean, I understand why they are signing someone like Steve Aoki. He, he does have a following and they are hoping that by signing him, that they will attract more people to the WPT brand that otherwise may not have been following it, especially if he is contractually obligated to play in their events, which I have to imagine he is. I have to imagine that he's probably going to have to go to some of the major WBTs and and play in them. Of course, they're going to cover his buy-in. And then I'm sure they're paying him a nice salary on top of that. He has 8.2 million followers. Yeah, he's a pretty well-known guy. I have to imagine he's getting paid well for this. The WPT may feel that they are becoming more and more a has-been, more and more secondary, and this might be their attempt to turn it around. And if you remember, the World Series of Poker did something similar. They signed Vince Vaughn as their master of ceremonies for 2022. So maybe this is the WPT keeping up with the Joneses. They are going to have a charity tournament that is going to be associated with the WPT. There's going to be an invitational charity poker event in Vegas to benefit the Aoki Foundation, which focuses on brain health. But as far as I know, that's the only event that is going to be centered around him. But as I said, I'm guessing they're going to have him promoting it on his Twitter and promoting it elsewhere and and playing in events and maybe part of the draw will be, hey, you know, come over to the play the WT and maybe Steve Aoki will be at your table. I don't know. Maybe that's the new thing now is to sign famous guys to be brand ambassadors for these tournament series. But maybe this really was pushed by the Vince Vaughn signing. I I think the whole thing's kind of weird. Like, as a player, I feel it's weird. I can understand from a marketing perspective or it's not weird, but as someone who actually plays poker, I don't care if Steve Aoki's there. I don't care if Vince Vaughn is there. I don't need any of that fluff or that nonsense. I just want the structure to be good. I want the floor people they hire to be good, the dealers to be good. I want the structure of the payout to make good sense. I don't want it to be a money grab where there's these uh, day two buy-ins, which the WBT does do. Of course, so does the World Series of Poker. So they're both guilty of that. Like That's what I care about as a player. 
I don't care about celebrities being associated with it. I mean, it's interesting if a celebrity ends up at my table. But it's more interesting if the celebrity is there because he wants to be there and is not being compensated for being there. For example, James Woods. James Woods legitimately likes poker a lot. He plays a lot. He spends a lot of time playing poker these days. And he plays a lot of World Series events. And he's made friends with a lot of people in poker. And when James Woods plays poker, he doesn't act as if he's someone who's more important than anybody else there. He acts like any other player, and that's why a lot of people have gotten to like him. That's why he's made a lot of friends in poker. Not just because he's famous, but because you sit with him and he just acts like a regular guy. So that's what's nice to have at your table. You have someone you've seen on TV or in the movies, and they're right at your table, and they're acting like just one of the guys there. But having a paid ambassador there isn't that much of a thrill. Yeah, sure, you can go home and say, hey, guess who I played with? Steve Aoki. Hey, uh, hey Vince, Vince Vaughn was at my table. I don't even know if Vince Vaughn's going to really play. I think he may just be like on the microphone before events. So we'll have to see at the World Series this year, which, believe it or not, is coming out or coming up in four and a half months. Like, we, we just finished. It's, it's coming back in four and a half months. In fact, the schedule is going to drop very soon from what I am hearing. The 2022 World Series schedule will be known soon, including that seniors event that I'm going to play. The only way I'm not going to play is if there's some sort of development with COVID to where I don't feel comfortable playing. But given that COVID is going in the direction of of less virulent, I think I will play. Because I missed all of it in 2021 except the main event, which still hurts that I came so close to cashing and didn't, especially with the mediocre cards I got that I stretched it. I stretched it. Didn't get there. All right. Not much more to say about that. I almost didn't cover it. I'm like, ah, you know, I know if I don't cover this, I'm going to have people texting me going, why didn't you cover Steve Aoki being the brand ambassador of the WBT? By the way, they they won't disclose the terms of the deal. (laughs) It's a secret. We can't know how much Steve Aoki is getting. But I can guarantee if he is going to be in WBT events that they're paying for his buy-ins. Guarantee that part of it. Okay, final poker topic. Then we'll do the coronavirus. Then we'll shut this down. Final Final poker topic is another Helmuth match. And you may say, oh, who cares? Yeah, Helmuth played a bunch of people heads up and he's beaten every single one of them. Who cares? And I wouldn't blame you if that's your attitude. But this one will be interesting. He's going to be facing No Limit Hold'em legend Tom Dwan. Tom Dwan is going to play Helmuth heads up in a $400,000 match in the Poker Go studio, and it's happening fairly soon. It's going to happen on January 26th. Now, Phil Helmuth did already play Dwan, and he lost. That was the first time Helmuth has lost in these heads-up duels that have been going on recently. Helmuth had this long streak of beating everybody, and finally he uh, lost. But uh, this is a rematch so if you enjoyed that one, 
which was in August, that this uh, rematch now is going to happen. They were discussing the rematch a short time after the original match in August, but it uh, just didn't come together until now. In 2008, they had a famous back and forth on TV when Phil told a fairly new-to-the-scene Tom Dwan, we'll see if you're even around in five years. And of course, even though Tom Dwan's had a lot of ups and downs, he very much is still around. Tom Dwan began in this community, not on Poker Fraud Alert, because he predated that, but he began on Never Win Poker as a nobody. And he rose up to become one of the best-known modern poker pros. In fact, there was some person asking on Never Win Poker about bankroll advice. They were asking me, and I gave an answer. And Tom Dwan responded to that. I think this is like 06. He responded by saying, I wish I had listened to that advice. (laughs) Because he went broke. And I met Tom Dwan, I think, in 06. I met Tom Dwan, and he was excited to meet me because he was a nobody at that point. And I was the one who was more (laughs) well-known. But that quickly changed. Quickly changed, and Tom Dwan quickly became much more well-known than I was. So he'll be playing Phil Helmuth again. And if you were interested in the match the first time, you'll probably be interested in this one as well. They are each putting up 200K, and the winner walks away with 400K total. Phil Helmuth had beaten a lot of people prior to losing to Tom Dwan, including Antonio Esfandiari, Daniel Negreanu, and Nick Wright, among others. He had won seven straight matches before finally losing to Tom Dwan. Okay, so I'm going to finish off here by talking about my advice of what to do regarding exposure to COVID. And this is a question I'm being asked all the time. And this is something that is being discussed with me, even if people are not asking me anything. But this is especially coming up with me in the past week because I have someone with COVID living in the house. The question is, what do you do regarding isolating if you don't seem to have COVID, but someone you live with does or someone you worked with had it and you were exposed to them for a long time while working with them before they realized it or you were in a place where there was a lot of COVID-positive people or someone who was COVID-positive that you know you were exposed to for a while and that you're afraid you might have it now. So what do you do, especially given that testing is no longer quick because there's so many people wanting to test and not enough tests to be done and not enough labs to process them, and these home tests are pretty much useless. Benjamin, for example, got a negative on a home test taken the same day as the PCR test that eventually came back positive, but we took three and a half days to find that out. The home test, we found out the false negative immediately, 
though we didn't know if it was false or true. But then three and a half days later, I highly suspected it was false negative, and I was right because he tested positive. So what do you do? What am I doing? Because I'm in that situation. There's a COVID positive person right here with me. Well, there's no question that Benjamin himself has to isolate because he has COVID. He still is symptomatic. So obviously he hasn't been at school. Obviously he won't be back to school until he satisfies the requirements they have there. And obviously he hasn't seen anybody. He hasn't left the house. So he hasn't seen friends. He hasn't seen family aside from who lives with him. He fortunately can still interact with friends online. So he's been playing games with them and talking to them on Zoom or whatever. But he has not left the house to see anybody. But what about the people in the house with him, such as myself, who are not showing any COVID symptoms, but might have it and be either asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic? What should I do? Is it safe for me to see anybody? Is it safe for me to leave the house? And what about people who have a more complicated situation than me, such as somebody who needs to go to a 9-to-5 job, which I don't, but a lot of people in my situation do, where they have someone in the house with COVID and they also work, but they are not symptomatic at all. And they can't get a quick result from a reliable test. So here is my advice to you about what you should do. And this is my advice. This isn't any official advice, but this is my advice regarding COVID and exposure and how much you should disrupt your life when you have been exposed to COVID. Before I begin, it's important to know that the game has changed. Number one, vaccines are and have been available for a long time. Anybody who wanted to get vaccinated could have by now. Anyone who got wanted to get boosted could have by now. So those that didn't chose not to. So that's the first thing. Number two, Omicron is less virulent, less deadly than Delta was. It seems by a wide margin. It's still being looked at, but it seems like by a wide margin, there's a big difference in how sick you're going to get from Omicron even if you're unvaccinated. Number three, Omicron does bust through vaccines. It definitely is busting through people with two shots, especially if the two shots were a long time ago, at a high rate. And it is busting through some people who have gotten the booster. Number four, Omicron is by far the most contagious variant of COVID. So it is out there more than any other COVID variant in the past. There's way more people right now with COVID than at any time since COVID started. So it's not even close. It's by a very wide margin that there's way more Omicron out there. So these things are all different than before. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. But you should not be behaving according to what you should do in 2020 in 2022 because the game has changed. Now, first of all, if you have COVID, if either you 
have a positive test or you have a negative test, but it really seems like you probably have COVID, then you should stay home at the very least until either you get a negative test if you had a positive test and or the symptoms disappear. In fact, you really should wait till the symptoms disappear, whether the test is positive or negative. Because you're sick and you can and probably will transmit. The transmission is probably more at the beginning and even right before you show symptoms. Like, I have a feeling that Benjamin was most contagious on Saturday before he showed symptoms. That is of last week, Saturday. I think he's probably significantly less contagious now than he was a week ago. But do I think he could still be contagious now? Yes, because he still has similar symptoms to when this whole thing started. Once his symptoms go away, I think he probably will not be very contagious or contagious at all anymore. So let me tell you first what the CDC says, and then I'm going to tell you what I say. The CDC says if you were exposed to someone with COVID-19, it says if you have been boosted, that is three shots of the vaccine, unless you got Johnson to Johnson, which is two shots, then wear a mask around others for 10 days and test on day five if possible. And if you develop symptoms, then get a test and stay home. This is from the official cdc.gov website that I am reading from right now in the early morning of January 16th, 2022. So notice what they're not saying. They are not saying if you've been exposed to someone with COVID, then stay away from everybody for 10 days. They didn't say that. That, that used to be the advice. That is no longer the advice. And I agree with that. I've been critical of the CDC a lot, but I agree with this one. And the question I'm getting for everybody is, what should I do? What should I do if I've been exposed to somebody with Omicron? Some people ask me this without even knowing that Benjamin has Omicron. I have people asking, what am I doing? And I say, I'm not going to lock myself at home because I do not have any symptoms or any sign that I have Omicron or any form of COVID. But at the same time, I am minimizing any contact I have with people outside of my home. So I'm not going out and living totally normally, but I'm also not saying, okay, I can't set foot outside this home or I'm going to get everybody sick. So if I've got to go to the grocery store, I'll go to the grocery store. But I'm not going to go see my parents. I'm not going to go see anybody else's parents. I'm not going to go see friends unless they are aware of the risk and okay to see me. So I am trying to be courteous here. But at the same time, I'm treating myself differently than I would be treating myself if I had COVID. Even if I had COVID and I was able to function, like Benjamin can function right now. Let's say I had the equivalent symptoms to Benjamin, I would feel strong enough to go out and function. But I would not go to the supermarket with that. Then I wouldn't do it. If I had actual COVID right now, I wouldn't be going to the supermarket with it. I'm not going to be a dick like that. But me living with someone who has COVID when I don't seem to have COVID then I will go. So I agree pretty much with this. Now, the problem with test on day five, and they say if possible, the problem with test on day five is 
you probably won't get the results until like day nine. So that's not going to help you very much. That is the problem with testing on day five. The reason they're saying test on day five is once you're exposed, then there is a time you have to wait until you would actually come down with COVID. When you get exposed, you don't have it immediately. So they're saying to wait five days, then take a test. But then the problem is you wait all that time and then you got to wait all that time until the test comes back. By then, it's almost a moot point. By the way, this is the same advice if you have gotten the second shot in the last six months, they say. So even if you're not boosted, but your second shot was six months ago or fewer, then they also say to just wear a mask around others for the next 10 days and test on day five if possible. But other than that, you don't have to stay home. So like if, if you had a job, the CDC is actually saying, yeah, go to work. Wear a mask, but go to work. Now, I would say you should wear a quality mask like a KN95 or an N95 if you are exposed to someone with COVID. But I do think it's okay. And I'll explain why shortly, and I'll explain why the CDC says this, which is for pretty much the same reason I think it. Now, what if you only had two shots or one shot of the Johnson & Johnson and it was more than six months ago? Or what if you're unvaccinated? Then they say to stay home for five days, and then after that continue to wear a mask around others for five additional days. And they say if you can't quarantine then wear a mask for all 10 days and test on day five if possible. Now, if you can't quarantine is an interesting way of putting it. What do they mean if you can't quarantine? What they're trying to say here is if it's incredibly burdensome for you to have to stay home for five days, then fine. Then go out where you have to go, but then wear a mask during that time when you go out. And the reason they're saying that is because there are some people who just can't afford either monetarily or just uh, due to a burden from having to miss something to stay home. So let's say, for example, uh, you're, there's a, an event coming up that is uh, something that's not going to take place again like a relative's wedding, a close relative's wedding, your brother's wedding or something, and you have no symptoms, but your last shot was back in May of 2021, and you've been exposed to someone who is positive for COVID, but you have zero symptoms, and it's been fewer than five days since you were exposed. They're saying here, well, you know what? You can go. Just wear a mask the entire time. You can go because... There's only one of these weddings. You're not going to be able to go to his second wedding next week. Maybe you can go to his second wedding in a few years after the divorce. But if this is something you absolutely can't miss or you have to be at work or you run your own business and the business is going to collapse if you're not there, if if there's circumstances where it's a huge burden for you to stay home for five days or you're going to miss something really important, just go. Just do it, which is very different than before. Before they were saying, no, you got to stay home. Super important to stay home. Any exposure, stay home 10 days. That was the old way of doing things. Old way meaning all the way up until very recently. But now they're even saying if you're not boosted or you didn't get a recent second shot, 
or if you're unvaccinated, yeah, try to stay home for the first five days of exposure. But if you can't, then fine, go out, just wear a mask. Very different than before. Now, is the CDC being reckless here? I actually think no. And this is why. The days of being able to avoid Omicron or to be able to avoid COVID, the days of being able to avoid COVID are over. Omicron is probably going to get you if it is destined to be able to get you. What I mean by that is if you are vaccinated regularly enough to stop it, and if the vaccine works for you to stop it, as you have heard, it broke through for Eric Benzamokin, and it did not break through for me. So maybe the vaccine works better in my body than it does his, and I didn't get it. It's also possible that Ben is just isn't transmitting that much, and I just am not getting a breakthrough for that reason. We don't know. But there can be many reasons why one would not get symptomatic COVID. And if you're boosted, there just may be differences in genetics where some people are going to be able to have their body fight it off if they're boosted, and others it'll break through. As we see, COVID affects people very differently. Even people in the same family will get it very differently. And there's not a lot known for why it gets people in different ways and why it affects some people so much worse than others. It's known somewhat that have to do with age and existing health and even weight somewhat, but there's also a lot of variance to it that just isn't understood. Remember, the second oldest person in the world got it and was fine. So what I'm saying is that if you are vulnerable to get Omicron, then you're going to get Omicron. You are, because it is so contagious. It is spreading around at such a rapid rate that it's going to get you if you have the capability of getting it. So for that reason, it's actually less important to prevent yourself from spreading it, as strange as that sounds. If this sounds weird to you, let me give you a simple example. It'll sound less weird. Let's say there was one person in the entire world who had COVID. Just one person. Let's say we knew who that person was. What do you think would happen? That person would be grabbed by the government and isolated until they were sure they were not contagious. Why? Because that is patient zero. That is someone who could potentially cause an outbreak. So they would quarantine that person until they were sure that person was safe. So this way, nobody else would get it. So if one person has it, if you only have the patient zero and they can be identified, then it is extremely important to keep this person away from everybody until they're 100% safe. So that's the first extreme. Let's take the other extreme. Let's say 95% of people have COVID right now. They don't. They never will, but let's say 95% of people presently have COVID. That'd be pretty bad, but let's say it was happening. If you had COVID and went out, how much would that affect with 95% of the population having COVID? It would affect almost nothing. Because while you could transmit it, even if you stayed home with 95% of the population having it, then 
the remaining 5% either can't get it or will get it from somebody else. So you going out there is not going to matter much. It, it would be impossible to contain it with 95% of the population having it. So in that case, even if you had an active COVID case, it wouldn't matter if you went out. It would, it would have uh, very little impact, pretty much no impact. So that's the other extreme. Now let's look at the middle. Let's look at some kind of middle ground in between these two extremes. The more people that presently have COVID and are transmitting it, the less of a big deal it is for another one to go outside their house and possibly transmit it. The more prevalent it is, the less impact you have overall on the whole thing. So if Omicron is contagious enough and spreading at a fast enough rate to where it seems like everybody who's vulnerable to it is going to get it, and it may be this week, maybe next week, maybe two weeks from now, maybe three weeks from now, four weeks, but sometime pretty soon it's going to happen. You going out and spreading it is much less of a big deal. Much, much less than it was in 2020 with the original COVID because there were people who were dodging it for a long time, either intentionally like I was, where I just wasn't exposing myself and keeping at home, or people who just got lucky. I know people who just went out everywhere and didn't even get vaxxed in 2021, and they were able to dodge COVID all the way up until now, and now they have Omicron. Omicron finally got them. But prior to Omicron, they just lucked out and didn't get it. But those days are over. You can't luck out and not get it. It's going to happen. So does it really matter if somebody gets COVID today versus getting COVID three weeks from now? Probably not, unless there's some sort of hospital shortage as far as beds in the hospital in a few weeks and that person needs the hospital. But I don't think we're going to get there. We're, we're not seeing real hospital shortages because Omicron is much less virulent. And I think in three weeks, we're going to be about in the same situation with the hospital, maybe even better. So the bottom line is that it doesn't really matter if someone's going to get it now versus later. I'm not saying you should just intentionally get yourself exposed to COVID or intentionally get COVID at this point. But I'm saying that it's not the end of the world if someone ends up getting it from you because they'll probably get it from somebody else anyway, even if you don't give it to them. So while you shouldn't be an asshole and go out if you know you have COVID or you strongly suspect you have COVID, you also shouldn't worry to an extreme if you've just been exposed to it but don't see any sign that you have it. So that's the way the CDC is operating. Because you know what? The CDC finally learned, as has a lot of the country, that there is a cost to mass numbers of people staying home. That it cripples the economy. It cripples essential industry. It causes all kinds of trouble. So this isn't something we should do lightly. So this is kind of the beginning of the living with COVID phase. Instead of saying, okay, well, if you got exposed, even with no symptoms, stay home 10 days no matter what. That isn't practical anymore. And that has been realized, especially with a variant which is much more contagious, but much milder. So now it is, if you know you have it, or you think there's a high chance you have it, stay home. If you've just been exposed, 
you know, try to stay home if you can, but it's not a big deal if you don't. Just wear a good quality mask around people, especially if you are unvaccinated or haven't been vaccinated in more than six months. I think that's good advice. I actually pretty much agree with the CDC on this one. So to answer an earlier question, if you've been exposed to someone with COVID, let's say in your house, but you have no symptoms, should you go to work? Yes. Should you wear a good quality mask at work? Yes. Good quality meaning like KN95 or better. Should you get tested? Yes, because you're going to want to know if you have it just in case it's uh, an asymptomatic case, which you may not be transmitting anyway, by the way. There, there is still a theory that asymptomatic people aren't transmitting. Not pre-symptomatic. Pre-symptomatic is different. But there is a belief that asymptomatic people don't transmit or transmit less. Now, if you're pre-symptomatic, the test is not going to help you much because by the time the test comes back, you're going to have symptoms. Again, there's going to be so many people transmitting it that you're not really saving people by not going out. But if you have COVID, yeah, stay home. Don't join everybody else transmitting. But I don't think it's enough to think, well, it's possible I have it. I'm just not feeling it yet. That's just not enough to cause your own life a great burden. Everything you do in life, in fact, is a series of calculations of what burden do I want to cause general society versus what burden do I want to cause myself? And you're constantly making these decisions without even thinking about it. Uh, Even just driving your car around, that contributes to pollution. But you're not going to stay home because you don't want to contribute a tiny bit extra to the uh, to, to polluting the air and say, well, I can't drive where I need to go. I don't want to pollute the air. No one's going to say that. So when you go out and drive anywhere, you are causing a little bit, a tiny bit extra pollution, and you accept that trade-off from the immense burden it would be to not go out or to make sure to carpool everywhere you go with people who are already driving. That's just one of many examples of where you choose to reduce your burden versus what's perfect for society. So you need to do the same with COVID. You need to be logical about it. You can't carry around guilt. So if someone in your house had COVID, don't go, oh my God, I can't go to the store the next 10 days. I I have to stay home. I can't go anywhere. Now, is it fine to say, you know what, I'm going to do my part and I'm going to do grocery shopping online where I get my groceries delivered or I go pick it up curbside. I won't go in a store. I'm going to try to be extra courteous. That's fine if you want to do that. But I'm saying this isn't expected of you anymore. So don't be afraid to go back to work if you've just exposed to COVID. Don't be afraid to send your other kid to school if one of your kids has COVID, if that second kid isn't sick. Definitely get tested if you can. But as I said, with a slow turnaround time, it's not going to do you as much good as it would if you found out the next day. And the home tests are pretty useless, so don't count on those. 
But the general rule of thumb is if there's no sign that you have COVID, then for the most part, treat your life as if you don't have it and just be a little extra careful. But don't stop your life. Only stop your life if you really have it. Now, since it is tough to get a test, I want to say something about that. It's getting tough to differentiate between cold, uh, having a cold and having COVID because of the symptom overlap. In fact, Ben pretty much has the exact symptoms they listed as being common for Omicron, which also match having a cold. So you do have to assume if you're getting cold-like symptoms, it's probably more likely Omicron than colds because Omicron is going around more than colds right now. So the higher chance is you have Omicron. If you have something that doesn't seem to resemble a cold, then it probably isn't COVID. If you just don't feel good, it probably isn't COVID. It has to resemble the symptoms probably in some way. And that is sore throat, fatigue, congestion, headache, cough. Sometimes a low-grade fever. What you're not really seeing much anymore are the uh, loss of taste and smell. It's happening occasionally, but not that much anymore. And the body aches somewhat, but not as much anymore. Like Ben doesn't have them. But it's really more just the cough, the low-grade fever, the fatigue, the headache, sore throat is a big one, the congestion. So you have that stuff. It's probably Omicron. Could be a cold, but it's probably Omicron. If you have a low-grade fever, like between 99 and 100, that makes it a lot higher a chance you have Omicron versus a cold. So if you have all this stuff, but one of the things is a low-grade fever, it's probably Omicron because colds usually don't carry a fever with them. If you have a higher fever, then there's a much higher chance it's it's uh, Omicron. Some people carry a higher fever, like Ben's friend, who tested positive for COVID and very likely Omicron, has similar symptoms to Ben, but he had a fever that got near 103, where Ben did not. Something else that is more associated with Omicron than colds is a persistent sore throat. Usually with colds, but not all the time, the sore throat will come at or near the beginning, but last only about a day before rapidly disappearing and turning into congestion of some sort. So my typical cold will start off with me being tired and not understanding why I'm tired, and then a sore throat. Then the sore throat vanishes in about a day, and then I start having the nasal congestion and the sneezing and the coughing and all that. And then I'll also develop uh, body aches, sometimes a headache, a lot of fatigue. Never a fever for me when I get a cold, even a bad one. And as I said, the sore throat goes away pretty fast. I've had a few colds where the sore throat sticks around a long time. I've had a sore throat stick around for a week and a half twice in my life from colds. So it can happen, but it's not common. Yet with Omicron, the sore throat tends to stick around most of the way. So if you're on day four and you still got a sore throat, it's very likely Omicron. Whereas if you get the sore throat for one day and then you have the runny nose, it's more likely a cold. But you can't rule out Omicron. There's too much overlap. 
But if you're looking to lean one way or the other, if you've got the persistent sore throat, then that's a big sign that it's Omicron versus a cold. In fact, Benjamin's mom talked with Ben's principal, who just happened to call her to talk about the COVID situation. She reported to the school, and then he called her. And he said that what he's hearing from all the parents is this persistent sore throat. He said, oh, yeah, the persistent sore throat, you could pretty much assume it's Omicron. I'm hearing this from all the parents here that they, every time the kid's testing positive, they also have this persistent sore throat. So the sore throat apparently is a big one that just doesn't go away. Meaning it doesn't go away during the symptom period where with colds, it, it does usually disappear pretty fast. And sure enough, with Ben, he's still got the sore throat now. It's not a terrible one, but he's got it. It's still there. So that's one thing you can look at that might be different from a cold. You are also unlikely to get anybody really sick with Omicron if they are vaccinated, especially vaccinated and boosted. They may have a tough time, meaning they may have a pretty bad week or two. But as far as getting hospitalized, it's looking pretty uncommon that anyone who has had the full course of vaccines, even without the booster, is getting hospitalized or dying of Omicron, except maybe some very old people. But someone who's young or middle-aged, if they at least have had two shots, even sometime in the middle of last year, You may get them very sick if you give them Omicron, but they're not going to end up in the hospital or suffer any major damage in all likelihood. So that's something else to think about. No, you don't want to get people sick, but there's a difference. In 2020, with no vaccines, if if you spread COVID to somebody, then this could either permanently damage them or kill them. So imagine having that on your mind that you were careless and went out when you knew you might have it or knew you got exposed at least, then you gave it to somebody and now they're dead. That's that's very hard to live with, right? But that's not going to happen really here. And those who are not vaccinated yet chose not to. And I'm not saying that they deserve to die. I'm just saying that they made a choice. They took a risk. They said, okay, I'm not going to take any risk associated with the vaccine. I will instead take the risk associated with COVID. And then whatever happens is on them. And I don't feel the world should revolve around unvaccinated people. And I will say something for the unvaccinated people. They don't feel the world should revolve around them. So you don't hear unvaccinated people saying, hey, you've got to stay away from me because I'm not vaccinated. They don't ever say that. In fact, they're the ones who want to go out and do everything. So you're not hearing that from the unvaccinated people. They know what risk they're taking. They're not expecting you to stay away from them or be careful around them. They're saying, I'm willing to take the risk. I don't want to take this vaccine. That's what they're saying. So they've made their choice and they've had every opportunity to take it. They've been told why they should take it. They are choosing not to. I feel that's their right to choose not to. I also feel that if they suffer a consequence from it, they've made their choice. Now, similarly, if you've chosen to take the vaccine and you suffer a consequence from it, even death, that also was your choice. And I made peace with that when I took the vaccine. Not that it was ever a debate in my mind because of my age, but I did know there was a small risk of taking the vaccine that it could 
do something harmful to me, even kill me. I knew that the chance of it killing me was very low, but it was existing. And I knew there was also a chance it could do something harmful to me. But I chose to take it, and I made peace that whatever happens to me as a result of the vaccine, that I've still made the right choice. It's kind of like in poker where you make the right move and then you take a bad beat. You, you can't say, oh, I shouldn't have done that because you made the right choice with the data you had. So at the same time, I don't worry about the unvaccinated people. So what if Ben actually gave me Omicron and what if I'm destined to feel the symptoms, say, uh, 36 hours from right now? And then let's say in 12 hours, still not knowing I have it, I go out and I get someone infected who is unvaccinated and then they get very, very sick and end up in the hospital. Now, if I hear about this, I'm not going to feel zero empathy. I, if I hear about this, I'll say, wow, that's too bad. And if it came from me, I, that I, I feel especially bad. But I'm not going to feel, wow, I was an asshole to go out knowing there's unvaccinated people out there because they chose not to get the vaccine. You may say, well, what about the people who can't get it? There's some people, a small percentage of people who can't get the vaccine or who the vaccine won't work for them because of their immune system. Well, that's too bad. I mean, I I feel for these people, but you can't revolve society around them. You can't revolve decisions of society at large around this tiny percentage of people who are extra vulnerable. Then they kind of need to be the ones to modify what they're doing. And that's really the case with everything. Let's say you heard about a tiny percentage of the population that would die if they caught the common cold. I don't think you would stay home and lock yourself in your house every time you got the common cold, right? You'd say, look, this is a tiny percentage of the population. If the, if the common cold is going to kill them, they, they need to just never go out or, or just take the risk. But I, I can't revolve my life and everybody in the world can't revolve their lives around this tiny percentage of the population. So same thing here for those people who either can't take the vaccine or it just doesn't work for them. So the bottom line is you you can't worry about the unvaccinated at this point. They've made their choice. And while I feel it's a choice they have a right to make, you also can't live your life out of concern for them. And the people who are vaccinated, you're very unlikely to cause any permanent harm to them if you do give them Omicron. So bottom line here, if you feel okay, go out. If you've been exposed, show some extra caution, but don't knock yourself out showing caution. Now, I've gone out very little in the past week since I've known Ben had Omicron or suspected. I didn't know it till Thursday night, but I highly suspected he had Omicron days before that. But have I gone places quickly? Yeah, I've I've picked up food. I I went uh, into a supermarket once briefly. I've done things like that. But I haven't seen anyone outside of the household for any length of time. And I have cut down as far as places I go that I don't have to go to. And I would suggest the same approach if there's someone in your house who has Omicron. But if I had a job, would I be going? Yes. All right. That's it. We've been doing the show on Saturday recently. And I 
don't know if we're going to stay doing the show Saturday. Every time I think of doing it Friday, I go, oh, we just don't have enough to talk about. It's only been six days, and I don't know. It just seems like that extra day gives us more potential stories. Now, truthfully, everything we talked about today could have been talked about yesterday. There really wasn't anything that happened in the past day. Really, the, the biggest news to come down related to this show was the PayPal thing. But that happened on the 13th, so we easily could have done that yesterday. And even that Sean Deep story was on the 13th. A lot happened on the 13th, but nothing really happened uh, on the 14th or on the 15th. So we, we could have done the show on the 14th instead of the 15th, and it would have been fine. But sometimes I will find that a big story happens on the day of the show, and I'm happy that I didn't do it the day before. Truthfully, there wasn't a lot of big news this week. Aside from that PayPal thing. So if, if the other stories I covered this week didn't seem like major things that happened, then you're right. Some weeks more happens than others. And I thank Eric for filing this this week so we had a major story. Otherwise, there would have been no major stories this week. We had a lot last week. Like we did that whole long Mickey interview. Now, yeah, it was pre-recorded, so I didn't have to burn out my voice doing it. But I looked afterwards. I'm like, oh, my God, there's so much to talk about. There's so much here. This week, not as much. That's the way it goes. Check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert for information about next week's show. Hopefully I don't come down with Omicron in a delayed fashion. If I do, then I probably won't be doing the show. Unless it's very, very, very mild. But if I have any kind of sore throat, then no. But the fact that I don't have it yet is a good sign. In about uh, six weeks or so, we're going to have our 10-year anniversary. Have I decided what we're going to do for the 10-year anniversary? No. I think we'll have some kind of free roll. Well, we always have a free roll, like a better free roll. I'll see who I can get together. Maybe we should try to get together some people who've been on Poker Fraud Alert as co-hosts for the past 10 years. If we get Brandon, Calwatt, of course, Trader Ruski. See if we can scare up uh, Daredevil. Maybe China Maniac. Remember him? I don't think we can find vowels. She kind of seems to be out of poker gambling now. I'm trying to think what other. Uh, regular co-host we have. Oh, the Northern California guy. If he's still listening, I haven't talked to him in a while, but if he's still listening, I'd like to have him on a 10-year anniversary show. He did some good co-hosting with us. And I think I've covered all the major co-hosts. We've had some, like, one-time guest co-hosts, but I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about ones that repeatedly came on the show and co-hosted with me. I'll have to think what else to do. If you have any suggestions of what I should do for the 10-year anniversary show, let me know. Text me 775-372-8355. Well, that is all. And I don't have much more to say here until next week.
Good night, everybody. If any of you have Omicron, I hope you feel better. Feel better, Eric. Shalom. <laughs>